Welcome to the Grand Theft World podcast hosted and sponsored by GrandTheftWorld.com. It's February 20th, 2022. This is episode 68. This is the Bay of Rigs. It's been a, uh, a chilling effect past week. I'm not just talking about snow in Canada. I'm talking about the fact they're freezing people's bank accounts. There's a lot of things we're going to cover tonight. Uh, we have a long show list. We're going to cover clips from uh, the Nuremberg 2.0 public grand jury. Some fascinating information coming out on day two as to the history behind this COVID pandemic. I also got to speak in Anarchapulco this past week. I did a virtual presentation. That has now been leaked to the public. We're going to have a clip of that later. We've got the, uh, well, you know, Epstein didn't kill himself and McAfee didn't kill himself and Ghislaine didn't kill herself yet, but apparently Jean-Luc Brunel killed himself. He hung himself in a prison cell where the cameras malfunction. Now, I know you think you've heard this before, but it's a completely legit story. It's being covered everywhere. There's nothing to see here. Uh, Prince Andrew settled with uh, Jufre, and there's the, 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 everything's taken care of. All the loose ends have been taken care of, I think, except for uh, Ghislaine still waiting for her appeal. But you're not going to hear any more about uh, Epstein's child sex trafficking network beyond probably this week in American history. Also, coming up, Canadian history, the Canadian protests that we talked about last week, they turned violent. They turned violent this past week. It wasn't the protesters with the bouncy houses that turned it violent. There's a lot of clips circulating, and uh, we'll take a look at those as we go through the night. Also, the World Economic Forum agenda penetrating the Trudeau administration in a very open way to the point that you not only have Klaus Schwab talking about it, now you've got members of parliament asking questions about it. And then last but not least, one of the other clips I wanted to mention up front was uh, a leaked clip. I guess it's a lost clip. Uh, Justin Trudeau and his oath of fealty to the queen as part of her privy council. I think that's also worth taking in. So tonight we are not going to go to Luke Ranowski as our first story. Well, it'll be the first story, but it's not, not going to be the first clip. First clip we're going to go to is um, a reenactment of some famous words by Patrick Henry. And this in this, t this case tonight, it's being brought to you by former Navy SEAL Jocko Willink. Let's kick it off. Let us not, I beseech you, deceive ourselves. We have done everything that could be done to avert the storm which is now coming on. We have petitioned. We have remonstrated. We have supplicated. We have prostrated ourselves before the throne and have implored its interposition to arrest the tyrannical hands of the ministry and parliament. But our petitions have been slighted. Our remonstrances have produced additional violence and insult. Our supplications have been disregarded and we have been spurned with contempt from the foot of the throne. In vain. After these things, may we indulge in fond hope of peace and reconciliation? There is no longer any room for hope. If we wish to be free, we must fight. I repeat it, sir, we must fight. 
and appeal to arms and to the God of hosts is all that is left us. They tell us that we are weak, unable to cope with so formidable an adversary. But when shall we be stronger? Will it be the next week or the next year? Will it be when we are totally disarmed and when a British guard shall be stationed in every house? Shall we gather strength by irresolution and inaction? Shall we acquire the means of effectual resistance by lying supinely on our backs and hugging the delusive phantom of hope until our enemies shall have us bound hand and foot? Sir, we are not weak if we make a proper use of those means which the God of nature hath placed in our power. The millions of people armed in the holy cause of liberty and in such a country as that which we possess are invincible by any force which our enemy can send against us. Besides, sir, we shall not fight our battles alone. There is a just God who presides over the destinies of nations and who will raise up friends to fight our battles with us. The battle, sir, is not to the strong alone. It is to the vigilant, the active, the brave. There is no retreat but in submission and slavery. Our chains are forged. The war is inevitable and let it come. I repeat it, sir, let it come. It is in vain, sir, to extenuate the matter. Gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. The war has actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it that we gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. I don't know that the Canadians ever had a declaration of independence from the Queen. I'm guessing since the Queen stole the money, probably didn't. But those are things before people in my country that I grew up in that I've had family members die in various wars before I was even born to instill me with the freedom that I started with and learned to have responsibility over. People in Canada never really had that chance. Now's their chance. They're, they are 
it's I don't want to compare it to Gandhi against the British colonization in India, but it's pretty similar because what Gandhi figured out was in order to show um, the world the brutality of the British Empire, it had to be on film, had to get photographed, had to be done in public. And when you've got horses trampling grandmothers and walkers, that's pretty Gandhi-esque right there, a demonstration. So that uh, Jocko Willink video, I think it came out pretty recently. It showed up in my feed today. It's like, hey, let's add it to the show card because I think freedom's for everybody. It's not just an American thing. Declaration of Independence doesn't say just for America. It talks about all people, all people. It's a message to all people subjugated by a royalty and a city behind it of financiers, the city of London. Uh, that was uh, something that caught me off guard this week, listening to the Nuremberg 2.0 public grand jury was day two. I, I tune in to check out what's the history behind this thing they're talking about. And uh, it's subject matter that I'm pretty well versed in. And the people, uh, I was uh, a guy named Alex Thompson, former GCHQ analyst, and uh, another fellow from Canada that I wasn't familiar with named Matthew Errett. And they laid out a history of the British Empire from the position of people, I guess, in the empire. I've always looked at it personally as it's the empire trying to take America back into it. But what they're pointing out is they're part of the empire that has been doing this. And there's a, there's a deeper history that also surrounds the American roads aspect of the secret society to get America back into the empire to create globalism and a world government. So... With all that being said, there's a lot to dig into tonight. We're only going to get to it if we take another step forward. So let's go to Luke Radowski of wearechange.org and bestpoliticalt-shirts.com for the official kickoff. Now, I, I think these agents for Big Pharma, excuse me, sorry, sorry. I, I think these unthinking, order-following Canadian police officers really meant to say is move a boot back better, sorry, eh? And assist the transition towards the Great Reset or I destroy you, sorry, eh? <laughs> That's my Canadian accent. Welcome back, beautiful and amazing human beings. This is Luke Radowski here of WeAreChange.org. And man, do we have some absolutely crazy news to get into. As of course, it looks like there was just a major Clinton side as we have the shocking news coming in of Hollywood establishment connected modeling mogul Jean-Luc Bernays demise. Lots of sketchy things going on there. We're going to be talking about that plus a lot more in this video as well as just the utter insanity unfolding right now in Canada. There's so much news. We're just going to jump right into it as of course we have the latest news coming specifically from you. Ukraine, where we're getting reports that now two soldiers have been killed in shelling attacks that have been escalating between both sides on the eastern side of Ukraine. Tensions that, of course, have been escalating with major fears of a Russian invasion, as now there's nearly 2,000 ceasefire violations being logged right now in eastern Ukraine that just happened recently within the last few days. The United
United States government is still talking about the possibility of a false flag being used here as nearly 700,000 civilians were placed in refugee camps in Russia from eastern Ukraine. The situation is getting tense there. Most likely will get more intense from here. We, of course, will be following it very closely. And then, of course, we have crazy scenes like this unfolding as if it was a war in Canada, where, of course, there was a brutal crackdown by the Canadian government on, of course, peaceful protesters calling for personal freedoms to be restored. Since we last talked about this video, organizers of this protest have been arrested. Family members, children, dogs were threatened with confiscation as bank accounts were being frozen, all in the name of an Emergency Powers Act by Justin Trudeau in order to stop individuals who are being charged with alleged mischief. Yes, one of the trucker organizers is being charged with counseling to commit the offense of mischief. And as previous trucker protests were peacefully disbanded and ended, Justin Trudeau still decided to send the most obedient and violent men he could find with the latest lethal and non-lethal munitions, tanks, horses, the whole entire cavalry, along with SWAT and riot police squads in order to crack down and send a message that any kind of political speech against him is not accepted at all. Hundreds of cops, armed vehicles, arrested at least 100 people, confiscated 21 big rig trucks, which of course the city of Ottawa plans to sell and keep the profits for themselves. Yep, the images and videos that you're seeing in front of your screen right now are not from Ukraine. They're literally for grandma that wanted to live the end of her life with a little bit of liberty and freedom. That of course is unacceptable to Justin Trudeau, who's decreed that she would have neither. These police officers didn't just look menacing and extremely violent, they acted like it, as of course there's numerous videos of police officers routinely abusing, hitting, and hurting individuals who were already detained in handcuffs, immobilized, as brutish order-following thugs literally hit them repeatedly when they couldn't even defend themselves. There's nothing more cowardly than a man using the letter of the law and handcuffs in order to immobilize someone and then pummeling and beating them to the ground when they are at their most vulnerable state. Disgusting behavior exemplified by the Ottawa police that deserves to be called out as of course there was also another incident of an elderly woman that was trampled on by a horse with her mobility scooter, which the Ottawa police decided to say on record was a, quote, violent protester that threw a bike at them and their horses. This, of course, was not true, as, of course, all documented videos and photos of the events clearly show an elderly woman with a mobility scooter, not, of course, a violent protester throwing a bike at a horse. This nasty, disgusting behavior on the streets of Ottawa was met by, of course, the talking points issued by the Ottawa Police Twitter account that, of course, correctly, many people online ridiculed for their clear slander, lies, and excessive use of force, which is only continuing with more aggressive hyperbolic language from the Ottawa Police Twitter account, officially declaring they will be actively looking for and identifying people who have protested, and of course, looking to take away their financial bank accounts, to criminally charge them, and to try to destroy their lives for simply voicing dissenting opinion 
against the current political class. Comedian Rob Schneider, I think, made a very interesting point about this current situation, saying specifically, quote, when citizens assemble to peacefully air their grievances and question government policies, they are participating in democracy. When a government labels those people terrorists and says that they are a threat to democracy, they are authoritarian and they are participating in tyranny. And I would have to agree with Rob Schneider's assessment. And so does even the New York Times, surprisingly, as the New York Times editorial board backed the Freedom Convoy and their right to peacefully protest. The New York Times even reminded Justin Trudeau that he was supporting farmers blocking highways in India for a full year. I think it's pretty clear for everyone paying attention that Trudeau and the Canadian governments are acting like despots here. Even, of course, threatening to euthanize pets as a form of punishment for people who dared to even just speak out and think against them. Ottawa police chief right now is still saying that protesters, if they retreat and go home, will be hunted and punished. Protesters have no incentive to, of course, back down. Of course, what will happen from here, time will only tell. This is a very serious escalating situation. We should all be paying very close attention to because what's happening in Canada is a plan being implemented by many people from the World Economic Forum that seek to implement this plan to the rest of the world. Meanwhile, there's other violent protests happening right now in Canada as 20 left-wing protesters armed with axes at fuel lines in British Columbia shot flare guns, cost millions of dollars of damages. The Coast Gas Link Pipeline protests like this are accepted by Trudeau since, of course, these protests are on same kind of political paradigm than, of course, the ruling establishment is on, so it's acceptable because if you don't think the same way as the government does, government will, of course, use the full might of the authoritarian non-thinking low IQ police state in order to crush you and destroy you which admittedly they plan to do for a very long time as of course the deputy prime minister of Canada just announced that the emergency efforts that were supposed to be in play just for 30 days temporary orders will now be the new normal for the people living in Canada. Now, that's not the only bombshell crazy news that just broke within the last few days. We, of course, have the latest Jean-Luc Bernay doubling development, which is absolutely mind-boggling. But before getting into that plus... Said this over the weekend, I forgot exactly who, but they said something to the tone of if only the corporate media was as interested on who Ghislaine Maxwell's customers were as they are. The people who donated $20 to, of course, the trucker freedom convoy, the world would be a better place. And I would agree with them as, of course, the same banks that are closing down the accounts of, of activists, of people who want liberty and freedom, of, of peaceful protesters, of organizers are the same banks that were OK with laundering money for Mr. Jeffrey Epstein that literally sold children to powerful people so they could do whatever they wanted to do with them. On the heels of all of this hypocrisy, we have the latest breaking news that Jean-Luc Bernay, a man connected to, of course, Mr. Epstein, a lot of celebrities, the intelligence agencies, was found dead in his jail cell, where magically, once again, surveillance cameras stopped working and he allegedly 
offed himself as he was facing a criminal court case surrounding the larger international trafficking extortion operation he was a part of with Mr. Jeffrey Epstein. Jean-Luc Bernay was, was known as an individual that was procuring the small children to Jeffrey Epstein so Jeffrey Epstein could sell them to the people, the powerful people he used to hang out with. Jeffrey Epstein is even on record saying that Jean-Luc Bernay provided him over a thousand children, part of this larger intelligence operation that had, of course, a lot of powerful people hurting these children in Jeffrey Epstein's mansions, where, of course, he had secret cameras recording everything. Those tapes were dumbfoundingly lost by the FBI and, and can't be found, even though they had FBI labels on them before. Even according to the Daily Mail, Jean-Luc Bernay partied with Jack Nicholson, Leonardo DiCaprio, who was in the fashion model world where he discovered Sharon Stone and many other models. And, and, and of course, I, I've been talking about this for a while. There's a reason. The modeling agency usually hires model that, models that, that look like little boys. A lot of horrible things in the modeling industry, as of course a lot of people connected to it, including Les Wexner, the man behind Victoria's Secret, also is connected to Jeffrey Epstein, intelligence agencies, and doing unspeakable things to small children. Now, is there any sadness that this man lost his life? No. The, the, the true crime here is the fact that he will not be standing trial and the many things he knew about very powerful people that are still walking the streets free are, of course, going to be buried with him, as, of course, this was a man connected to very powerful people that were committing some of the worst horrible atrocities on the face of this earth. Now, with this man's passing, so does the chance of any kind of real justice, accountability, when it comes to the extremely powerful people in our society, that did the unspeakable. Again, the prison that Jean-Luc Bernay was in was in a high-security prison. For there to be no surveillance footage, for there to be no accountability for the jail here, for there to be a major Prince Andrew deal that just happened, highlights an extremely terrifying situation, showing you how desperate a lot of powerful people are in order to, of course, prevent you from knowing the true scope of reality of what your government is doing with your taxes. They're afraid, terrified of you finding out the truth behind them. We still only know 1% of this entire Epstein saga. It probably gets a lot more sicker, a lot more twisted than we even know about. The very little we know is absolutely unacceptable. Now imagine what we don't. What do you think that is? Let me know down in the comment section below. I always appreciate your constructive criticism. I always appreciate your feedback. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you guys. Excellent reporting once again by Luke Radowski. Uh, there's also good reports on uh, Jean-Luc Brunel's recent suicide uh, by Jason Burmes. Uh, did a good deep dive into it. And then I wanted to focus in on a couple of things. Let me press this button and get to my browser here. <clears throat> uh, this, this was the other day when I was watching Dan Dix. I saw these guys, uh, the riot police were brought out in Canada. And I said, Oh, looks like they got the, the fellas from the Denver airport mural coming over to cattle, the protesters. Uh, just, they didn't, I didn't see the swords. They had Billy clubs, but, uh, this is probably where they want to take it. And then as far as other tweets on the, uh, the protest, uh, I covered many of the tweets and the memes on my Twitter page. That's at tragedy and hope. Here's the first Jean-Luc Brunel found dead meme that I saw this morning. Uh, lots of pictures, of them together. And again, she was, she was between Prince Andrew 
and Epstein. She's the one that's friends with Prince Andrew. She's the one that was at his wedding. There's a lot more to this story than the public's going to hear about because everything kind of just went away with Brunel dying in prison and Prince Andrew settling publicly with uh, with Dupre. at least yeah at least yeah. one of his defendants. Well, Right. Here's a good example of what's happening to Canada. If you like your memes in graphical form, you just can't quit quit loving Klaus. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the horses. I was surprised to see horses for such a peaceful protest and all the pushing and shoving. Um, Dan Dix drove, I think, six days to get to the protest to cover him. I got some of his stuff right here. Uh, he's done excellent coverage over the past couple of days and interviews and uh look at that wind burn from being out there it's cold so hats off to the truckers hats off to the people who were out there and even there was a couple of nice cops this is not one of them but there was a couple of nice hugs and exchanges of uh, camaraderie this is what they don't want you to see on tv look at all these people i didn't see a lot of drone coverage of footage this is from calgary this isn't uh ottawa where they just emptied it out and <clears throat> God save the queen. Heard she's got COVID. She's triple jabbed. King Charles is in line. You know. Anyway, we can go to uh, the next clip. Christy Lee with This Week in Media Malfeasance. And then we have a special guest coming up uh, at top of the hour. We'll be right back. After bombshell news broke over the weekend tying Hillary Clinton to spying on her opponent and blaming Russia. Russia, Russia, Russia. Legacy Media tried real hard to ignore the latest Durham report findings. A Washington Examiner reporter tried to question Hillary Clinton. What are you going to comment on the spying allegations, Hillary? Did you pay for the having spied on? And when MSM finally got around to reporting it, they tried to blow off the findings. People are desperately trying to connect Hillary Clinton. Uh, with this lawyer giving him money saying, go spy on Donald Trump. That never happened. I, I, I should ask you, how many charges? There's one charge. There's one and charge. they're saying he lied to the FBI agent. But seeing as Russia is always the scapegoat, and Tulsi Gabbard was also accused by Hillary of being a Russian agent, here's what Gabbard had to say. What's being revealed here, Jesse, is, is the truth. Hillary Clinton and the power elite in this country manufactured this Russian collusion lie, actively undermining our democracy and stoking the fires, moving us into this new Cold War with Russia. By Wednesday, Hillary finally breaks her silence, sharing a Vanity Fair article, and you'll never believe it, blaming Trump for the latest Durham revelations, calling them lies. Try as Vanity Fair and others might, a filing from Durham on Thursday argues that his reasons for making public findings asserting that a tech exec with whom Sussman was affiliated was working to dig up dirt on Trump were valid, and that any media misinterpretations do not undermine the facts. Jim Jordan makes this extremely obvious revelation. If they can spy on a sitting United States president, they can spy on anyone. Well, duh. Where you been? The ACLU pretends it's breaking news with this tweet. Breaking. Newly declassified documents reveal that the CIA has been secretly conducting massive surveillance programs that capture Americans' private information. And truckers keep on trucking on in Canada, despite it looking more like China every day. There's a level of, of uh, admiration I actually have for China. 
Media gaslights the public into thinking this peaceful protest is dangerous, while Canada's justice minister brazenly admits the authoritarian reaction is not about health or liberty, but purely political. If you are a member uh, of you know, a pro-Trump movement who's donating hundreds of thousands of dollars and millions of dollars to this kind of thing, then you ought to be worried. Propaganda pushing through media is a global epidemic. This German TV interviewer is pushing for a sooner jab mandate when this poked up woman suddenly starts to collapse. But remember folks, correlation doesn't equal causation. Keep on saying that no matter how often we make this observation. And CNN might get an award for most times featured in media malfeasance. Will BS be the next out at CNN? Radar Online is reporting Brian Stelter might be up next to get the axe after his boss Jeff Sucker and his mistress Allison Gullist have both stepped down in response to their revealed romance. But it seems BS knew all along and failed to report. What else will be unraveled about how Brian Stelter himself broke ethical news standards? And finally, we've seen all kinds of definitions change over the past couple of years. Words like vaccine, immunity, racism. And instead of defending the power and intention of words, the propaganda puppets have followed in lockstep with whatever new meaning the government and its agencies deem a word should now represent. Is transitory up next? Two weeks to flatten the curve now means two or more years. And transitory or temporary inflation now just means rising. Here to stay inflation. Here's a sake bomb from May last year. Uh, they believe the impact will be temporary, transitory, however you want to refer to it. But they're looking at it closely, but I don't have any projections on that to make from here today. And legacy media ran with that, even spinning it as a good thing. But here we are nearly a year later. Price surges that are running at the fastest pace in 40 years. Bringing you what's ignored, sensationalized, unbalanced, misleading, or just plain false. That's your media malfeasance for the third week of February. For KLIM.News, I'm Christy Lee. That's Christy Lee, independent media right there. Another fine media malfeasance. It must be hard to cover all the stuff that goes on with CNN and Stelter and the boys over there and uh, all those sexual accusations flying around, people getting fired, having to reformat the network. Must be tough. Uh, but that's not what I wanted to point out after that clip. I actually missed a point in Mr. Radowski's report from yes uh, earlier today, and it's on screen. LD, if you could bring that video back up. He put it on screen. He didn't want to say it in the video. He probably talked about it for his members-only group, but he knows about it, and it was from the Ottawa Sentinel, and it referred to, yes, uh, Christia Freeland's grandfather did collaborate with the Nazis. And I thought, well, that's interesting because that seems to be the background of Klaus Schwab and she's mentored by Klaus Schwab. And there seems to be like some sort of uh, underlying tone that the people that funded the Nazi experiment never really went away after Hitler did. And that, uh, that underlying theme of uh, funding continues today. There it is. The Ottawa citizen. Sorry. It wasn't the Sentinel. It was the Ottawa citizen. We want to be correct on this show. Christia Freeland's granddad was indeed a Nazi collaborator so much for Russian disinformation. Cause that's the first thing people say when, when it comes out like that, they're like, ah, oh, it's Russian disinformation. And that works on some people and they go the other way. 
other people say, maybe we should look at the facts. So I have not dug into that article yet, but I did catch it on screen because Luke put it there on purpose. And I think that was the purpose to communicate that to his viewers and not to the transcribing AI from the YouTube algorithm. Uh, but on this show, we can speak freely about such things. And I wanted to point out that story. Uh, Tony, you want to cover maybe the first paragraph so we can get it in the record? Sure. Yeah, let me bring it. Well, let's see. Do you want to, I don't have the actual article. <laughs> That's there right. Maybe LD. LD's got it. Yeah, LD go. He had it on the screen. Or if he wants to and we're doing it. Yeah, more. we're doing it live. This is all right. It was just there. What was her name? Christina. Christia Freeland. Let's see if I can bring it up real quick. Here, here. Yep, here I got it. Okay. Okay. Make this bigger for the audience. Christia Freeland's granddad was indeed a Nazi collaborator. So much for Russian disinformation. The news conference on Monday by Foreign Affairs Minister Christia Freeland was interesting, not for the announcement that Canada was extending its training mission to Ukraine, but for the questions and answers about the minister's grandfather. There have been a number of articles circulating about Freeland's Ukrainian grandfather. That's interesting. Mm. Michael Chomiak and his ties to the Nazis. And there's also a weird Hasidic connection with Ukraine. I'm just starting to find out. That's a whole separate thing. I don't know if there's any, but anyway, some of those articles have appeared on pro-Russian websites. Freeland, who strongly supports Ukraine and is a major critic of Russia's seizure of the Crimea, suggested to journalists that the articles about her grandfather were part of a Russian disinformation campaign. The Russian government sees Freeland as virulently anti-Russian and has placed her on their travel ban. Quote, American officials have publicly said, even Angela Marco has publicly- Who's also a graduate of World Economic Forum's Young Leaders Program, along with Trudeau. Trudeau and and Macron and the 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 prime minister of um, New Zealand. I can't think of off the top of my head. Many, many. Angela Merkel has publicly said that there were efforts on the Russian side to destabilize Western democracies. And I think it shouldn't come as a surprise if these same efforts were used against Canada, end quote. Freeland told reporters after they raised questions about the articles about her grandfather. The Globe and Mail also reported that an, off- that an official in Freeland's office denied the minister's grandfather was a Nazi collaborator. In addition, the claims were dismissed outright by those in the Canadian-Ukrainian community. Quote, it is the continued Russian modus operandi that they have, end quote, Paul Grode, president of the Canadian-Ukrainian Congress, told the Globe and Mail, fake news, disinformation, and targeting different individuals, it is just so outlandish when you hear some of these allegations, whether they are directed at Minister Freeland or others. So what's the evidence? Is there evidence? Well, it actually isn't so outlandish. Michael Chomiak was a Nazi collaborator. What are the sources for the information that Freeland's grandfather worked for the Nazis? For starters, the Ukraine archival records held by the province of Alberta, it has a whole file on Chomiak, including his own details about his days editing the newspaper Krakowicki Visti. Chomiak noted he edited the paper first in Krakow, uh, Poland, and then in Vienna. The reason a lot he of edited- people were Nazi collaborators because they didn't want to get shot by the Nazis. So is he one of those people or did he enjoy his work and like do it with fervor for the Reich? There's a difference. You see, Klaus's grandfather seems to be someone who had fervor, thus Klaus's position in the world today. I was just seeing. And then the other thing I want to clear up is this Christia Freeland. Is she the deputy prime minister? 
that works for Klaus or is this a different, I thought it had a different title for it. The, beginning the news conference on Monday by foreign affairs minister. Foreign affairs minister. Freela, Can I see your picture, please? Okay. That's definitely not the woman I thought it. Okay. So that's a different person. That's world economic forum that has Nazi grandfather. So foreign okay. affairs minister Christopher response. All right. I got there. you. Yeah. Foreign affairs. I got the, got my note wrong on her. That's good. Here's, we found that out. Gotta ask questions. The, we can't just make assumptions on the show. Here's the archive itself, which is interesting. So the reason he edited the newspaper in Vienna was because he had to flee with his Nazi colleagues as the Russians advanced into Poland. The Russians tended to execute collaborators well, uh, as I should say, as well as SS members. Chomiak Michael Fons, let's see, date range 1919, 1983, scope and content. This font uh, contains personal papers of Michael Chomiak, 1905-1984, prominent figure of the Ukrainian-Canadian community in Alberta. He grew up in Western Ukraine, annexed by interwar Poland. Michael Chomiak graduated from Lviv University. Lvo, with mas- yeah, Lvo. Lvo, yeah. okay. University in the, with master's degree in law and political science. In 1928, as a journalist, he started work in the Ukrainian daily Dilo. And from 1984 to 1939, he served on the editorial staff during the Nazi right, occupation. So I don't think this is necessarily... A big deal. But I did read another story and I thought it was the deputy prime minister, her background, her grandfather ran paper, not worked at a paper. There's a difference. You're a journalist. It's an occupied country. You do what you got to do to survive of Of Canada. But I just didn't have her name because I'm an ignorant American. Nazi. Let me see if I can find some. She's the one that came out and did the bank seizures in the past week with the terrorist financing. If you help to fund the bounty house or the porta potty or the it gas, says here on Wikipedia that she is the deputy prime minister of Canada since 2019. Mm. Christia Freeland. This mm. is, there's, this is strange. We're um, going to have to deep dive that at another point then. Yeah. I just wanted is, to pick yeah. up that that was in Luke's video and it needed to be, I, you know, identified and let's t- check it out and see what that's all about. Cause I think in today's media, out there they're not talking about that and there might be something there because there's definitely something to the nazis and the world economic forum because prince bernard of the netherlands who was an ss officer for hitler he was one of the founding members at the davos manifesto it's like it's in their history book of the world economic forum (laughs) all right so uh at this point tony i'm going to go to uh patrick wood and we're going to start our interview with our special guest patrick how are you this evening can you hear me? Doing just great, Richard. Thank you. Let me get my microphone up here a little bit closer. Sick. No, you, you, look, you look and sound outstanding. This is fantastic. All right. Oh, so for you. everyone at home, Patrick Wood is an author, a researcher. He's been doing this since your, the first book I have here of yours was published in 1979. Is that accurate or were you published before that? No, that's accurate. All right. So since 1979, he has been on the tail of they, them, those who can easily be named. So Ernie Hancock has this expression, they, them, those. I like to say that can easily be named because of scholars like Carol Quigley and Anthony Sutton and Patrick M. Wood. So, Patrick, I'm glad that you were able to uh, accommodate our schedule tonight and not have to pre-tape this because, you know, doing it live is so much more fun and interesting. Uh, What are your thoughts on what's going on today with with everything, uh, everything technocracy and uh, globalist related. What's your what's your current position? Yeah. What do you see? Well, here we are, right? Yeah. What can you say we're Talked living about it. it for a we long are time? Living it, and that's uh, that's no mistake. And by the way, I did uh, I did generate another book on technocracy called "The Hard Road to World Order," 
uh, wow. after my first book of Technocracy Rising. And uh, I'll read you a quote from this in a minute on why I wrote it. You probably might even recognize the title right off of where the title came from. But um, when... Well, for the audience, where did the title come from? <laughs> well, it came from an, an article uh, from Foreign Affairs magazine that was written by Professor Richard Gardner in 1974 called The Hard Road to World Order. Now, did he and, happen to be um, a Rhodes Scholar by chance, Richard Gardner? You know, I don't remember if he was or not. He well could have been. I'm he was supposed one to of know the that. I shouldn't members. be asking you. I sh I'm going to find that out. I'm pretty gotcha. sure. Gotcha. He was one of the core members of the, the founding members of the Trilateral Commission. He was uh, on a par with Zbigniew Brzezinski, although Brzezinski was a co-founder. Richard Gardner was considered to be like, you know, same level in, in the organization. And um, he wrote an article called The Hard Road to World Order. And what he said in this, in this article... Uh, what, I've been writing about this probably for 40 years, but he wrote, in short, the house of world order will have to be built from the bottom up rather than the top down. It will look like a great booming, buzzing confusion, uh, but an end run around national sovereignty eroding it piece by piece will accomplish much more than the old fashioned frontal assault. I looked at this as a sea change where <clears throat> the frontal assault of the, uh, the, the rest of that century before 1970, those frontal assaults had failed miserably for them, and they were disappointed in it. And so, and Brzezinski knew that. And so Brzezinski at that time, knew that. they were trying to figure out the answer to this question. Okay, go on. That's right. So they figured, okay, we need a new strategy. We need something that's going to be different than what we're doing. So let's drop the frontal assault approach. Let's go after an end run around national sovereignty, death by a thousand cuts. And we have seen this play out, I think, very well ever since. But um, the whole plan, the architecture that had been created for this new international economic order, as they called it, um, the coup de grace took place, I believe, in January of 2020. And I wrote an, I made that claim uh, in January 2020 based on the fact that all of the people that were involved in the global warming, climate, you know, whatever, uh, panic machine, the, the alarmists that were stamping their feet at the United Nations saying, your house is on fire. Those people had a problem, and I had noticed this problem. They, they had run out of steam because they had no dead bodies to show for the dangers of climate warming, you know, of, of global warming. They, they said they had polar bears. Oh, they were dying. They were going extinct. But then a big report came out by the premier polar bear researcher in the world says those polar bears are doing great. They're breeding like cats up there. And, you know, there's a bunch of them and that shot their whole thing to pieces, but they weren't getting traction. In other words, the, there was no more elasticity to their push for panic. They jumped track over onto the, pan, uh, the pandemic uh, meme at that point. And the reason I recognize this and it caused me immediately to, to be alarmed was that they were the same people that were doing the climate alarmism stuff, same universities, same crack computer models um, that were completely trashed later on when independent programmers got to look at what they were doing. And it was basically was the same pitch. It was it's just almost like I could hear the words of Al Gore, you know, that the, <laughs> the, the, the seas are going to rise and we're all going to die. And, um, it was just that thin. The other thing that clued me into the to the to the change when something was really really different was that um, 
there's only one thing that they ever offered as a solution. It doesn't matter what you're looking at. There's only one solution offered, and that is sustainable development, which I argue um, very pointedly is technocracy warmed over from the 1930s. And, um, you know, they, they push sustainable development. There's no plan B. There's no other option ever. You know, let's, hey, let's take a look at, you know, what we got going now, and maybe there's some things we can do to fix it. No, what we need, as they say, is we need the Great Reset. We need to burn it all down and start over from scratch. And so anyway, we're here. And I do believe this was the declaration of war by these technocrats, this, this whole sustainable development crowd. And um, that wasn't, you know, uh, maybe I'm jumping ahead, but that wasn't really surprising because back in 2015, you remember that the 2030 agenda was taking place then at the United Nations and also the, the climate agreement in Paris that was run by Christiana Figueres. She retired after that. Well, she left her position at the United Nations. She's doing something else in England now, I believe. But Christiana Figueres was in charge of the entire climate, uh, Paris climate agreement thing. She was the one who organized it, pushed it. Uh, in one sense, you say she did a brilliant job. She really did. She got all the nations of the world there to sign on to this crazy crackpot thing. And um, she let the cat out of the bag in 2015 in a press release in Europe. And it was stunning. This was also stunning to me back then, but I've never forgotten this statement. It's just emblazoned in my mind. She said publicly in a press conference, this is the first time in the history of mankind that we're setting ourselves the task of intentionally within a defined period of time to change the economic development model that has been reigning for at least 150 years since the Industrial Revolution. That's what she said. This tells you, it, this isn't just a vague, well, I'm you know throwing this out to see what will stick to the wall. It indicates that the United Nations had an intention, number one, that specifically they had an intention. Secondly, that they had a time frame to execute it. And she says that this is, we have a, a schedule and a plan on how, how we're going to do this. So in 2015, we had no way to, to tell what, well, what, okay, so what's the timetable? How are we going to know? Is it going to be two years, a year, five years, whatever? Um, and we didn't know. Uh, lots of things happened between uh, 2015 and, say, 2019, that four-year period. Lots of stuff happened. Nothing really impressed me as being the coup d'etat that they were going to spring it until July, or excuse me, until June of 2020, when the United Nations first, or the World Health Organization in particular, first declared that there was a global uh, health emergency. They later called it a pandemic, but that was the first thing. That was the first warning that we had from um, uh, from the World Health Organization. That same month, <laughs> this is just incredible. That same month uh, was when Davos was taking place in Europe, and so we had lots of little sound bites coming out of that, right? And good old Mark Benoit. Benoif, who is in charge of Salesforce, uh, the CEO, major globalist, he got up and said, capitalism as we have known it is dead. He just said it. <laughs> Boom. He also said it was cool to sit at that table because everybody at the table was one of his clients. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And Angela guy. Merkel got up right behind him and said, right. capitalism is the worst of all possible economic systems. 
like, okay, the death crosses in, you know, the, the, that the hit job is is nearing complete at that point. And then when COVID hit, man, I mean it was all over. It just in my mind, I saw everybody rushing for the for the the keyboard or whatever to pump this to no end. And they have. And but, so here we are. Very few people recognize that war has been declared on the world, but one of the main objectives was to kill capitalism and the free and free market economics throughout the world. It's, it's an it's an asymmetrical type of war. Yes. It's a war of the mind and the heart and the soul. It's not a yeah. war fought on a battlefield with tanks, guns, and bombs, at least not yet. Yeah, it's right. thus far the, been emotion-based. They yes. censor the information so you get emotional about what's left, and that takes the moderate people, and it's like a centrifugal, centrifugal force that sends them out to the edge and makes yeah. them more polarized. And I think that your observation is the world's on fire, there was a group of people that had a plan to set the world on fire. And that same group of people is now in charge of managing the fire. And it's not going so well after two years. And we see this long trail of lies that they've told us and censorship yes. and now violence because of their yes. intellectual bankruptcy. Yes. Is this like uh, first they fight you, then blah, blah, blah. Then you win. Are we, are we almost at that point? Cause they're using violence and it's intellectual bankruptcy. They don't have points on their side that can be made with logic and reason and evidence and human rights and civil liberties. I know. And you know, when, when Klaus Schwab says uh, we're going to have, have to have a great reset and that there's a narrow window of opportunity to do so, you have to ask a question. You have to break down the concept of great reset and, and why I, I there's a narrow window. Lot. Because people are traumatized and it's like they have yes. the idea yes. to hypnotize people during that trauma yes. to be like, this is the way out of COVID is the great reset. That's right. And the concept of reset in, in my mind, I think, and probably in his too, is it's like it, it's, it resets you back to zero. When you reset a counter, stopwatch, whatever, you, you don't go back five seconds. You go back to zero and you start over again. Um, I think this is the most plausible context of when he says we need a great reset. That's reinforced by the fact that he said um, that you will own nothing and be happy. Um, getting from here in, in uh, 2022 to 2030, where he refers that statement to, you'll own nothing and be happy. There's a lot that needs to change between now and then. And it's inconceivable that we, the people of the world, would own nothing just, you know, attritioning, you know, somehow just dwindling away over the next eight years. Something cataclysmic has to take place in their mind. This is their thinking. Something cataclysmic has to take place in order to so transform or kill capitalism so that uh, sustainable development technocracy can rise out of the ashes and create their vision. You know, when he talks about reimagining the world, well, I didn't know it was imagined in the first place. That that's new to me. That's new kind of thinking. What does he mean reimagining the world? Well, it's nothing good that people can hang their hat on. That's for sure. Because you know, the, for all we know, the guy was in the was in the head smoking a joint one night and came came up with this vision. Or maybe he, I don't know, maybe he was taking psilocybin or something, <laughs> some magic mushrooms, and he had this vision. And I reimagined what the world should look like, and it's good. You'll see. Trust me, we're going to reset the whole thing. You're going to like it because you won't have to own anything and you'll be happy. This is absolute gaslighting of the whole planet, in my opinion. It's just you know, incredible. 
you but, mentioned the concept of time frame. I think that's the key thing here. Because I remember speaking with Richard, we talked about this back in 2020. They're behind on their goals even for 2021, let alone 2030. And then all of a sudden a pandemic hits. And I mean, that's such an apt observation. And to your point, climate change was too abstract for most people. Most people on the ground just can't feel or experience it the same way they can in a pandemic, or at least the way in which they they pronounced and ran with the narrative of the pandemic and the various narratives. And I think also, you know, Maurice Strong from the Unsaid Conference said something about entering a fourth world order, essentially. So he mentioned this like they called it the world. fourth world Congress. Back yes. Then. Yeah. And that's essentially the zero you're alluding to here. Patrick, yes. with uh, yes. out of the ashes will rise this new, almost in a symbolic right. fashion right. of the Phoenix. You know? right. And I think right. to that end, capitalism right. is a mode of productivity and they're trying to destroy the West, destroy productivity. They've reached the technology that they need for their, they, they think they have, they don't need more invention and genius in the world. They've got their people. They're working at, you know, their Google alphabet type companies for those projects. They don't need the rest of the people to, you know, we, the, it's like they, they identify useless eaters as most people on the planet, except them. And they've had plans for a long time to depopulate yeah. and I think this was all known, by the way, and even back as far as 1973, when when Rockefeller, then the big the big money mountain, he was chairman of Chase Manhattan, uh, Chase Bank, um, you know, huge influence in global finance throughout the world, as being one of the most prominent international bankers. Certainly had a lot of swing with like the Bilderberg Group, for instance, in Europe. And um, um, when when Rockefeller was figuring out the future of money, uh, after the gold standard was dropped uh, under Nixon. Um, I think he saw the handwriting on the wall. I think a fifth grader with a calculator could have figured this out, that there would be a time when money would be useless. Just it's, It would have been completely like horse manure at some point, and that they needed some other game plan. If they're going to protect their wealth, they could not dominate their wealth in terms of money, in terms of fiat currency, because duh, you know, it's, it's guaranteed to be zero at some point. As musical so chairs, the only, and they knew it when they created And they knew it. it. I think Rockefeller, yeah. as a banker, understood this perfectly. The answer was to get a hold of the resources directly, not just to make money off the resources, but to grab the title to the resources of the world directly. Then whatever monetary system might come along later, if they own the resources, they would be calling the shots. Because if you want to eat avocados, and they're the only ones that got avocados— you're going to pay them whatever they say, you know, if it, maybe it's going to be, you know, Indian beads, but it doesn't matter what the currency is. They've got it. You want it and you'll be a slave to it. It, it. You know, you pay them or you're never going to see it. And I think the whole scenario from 1973 on when they declared that they're going to create a new international economic order. And I honestly, I didn't understand exactly what they meant back then. I, neither did Sutton. I do now, I'm pretty sure. But uh, when they said they wanted to create a new international economic order, they really meant new. I, <laughs> we should have taken them at their word. New meant new. It's reminiscent of Bill Clinton when he got, you know, when they tried to nail him, did you do it without what woman or whatever? He said, well, it depends on what you mean by it. <laughs> it's like, well, excuse me, the word it is just ID. It's a word. Well, new means new and it what was too Klaus unbelievable. Calls he calls it what stakeholder capitalism. Oh, what a euphemism, right? That's like public-private 
cooperative yeah. partnerships. Yes. It's just legalese for plundering your stuff. And I apologize because okay. I do know Richard Gardner. He's a, yeah, I have him from the Washington Post. I have him Post here, too. and yeah. I do have the full text of the Hard Road and World Order. It appears I've talked to Patrick before, and I my brain's just getting older, and I forget these things. But <laughs> yeah, he's a he's definitely an interesting uh, character in all this. I got some quotations, but yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, that aspect of this continuing to go on for so long unchecked because you're talking about 1973 that's the same year they do the davos manifesto patrick yes so this has been going on well before you and i were born we were born into it and during your lifetime you tracked 40 plus years of these characters rolling into high positions of political and corporate power conglomerating and like distilling their wealth into this finite layer of only a couple big companies own almost everything. Things are tied back to patents and the crown and all sorts of crazy things. And then in the middle of that story, King's college, New York, better known as uh, Columbia university starts the technocracy movement in 1932. Can you tell my audience a little bit about that? Cause a lot of them probably haven't heard about it and they haven't seen my three hour interview with you from 2015, but I'll have LD put that in the uh, the show notes for people. As well. <clears throat> well, sure. The, and uh, by yeah. the way, that was one of the best interviews that I ever had, uh, partly with just because of you guys doing the job that you did. But I've had more, uh, you know, pe- people write me and say, my eyes were opened by that particular interview. So uh, thank you for all that back in the day. I don't know how long ago it was. Yeah, it was like it uh, seems, probably six or seven years ago. And it's evergreen know, too. It, if people watch that like, today, they'd say, this is what's going on in Canada right now. They see it clearly <laughs> now. I know it seemed like my childhood at this point. It was so, so much stuff has happened. But uh, what technocracy was? Scientists and engineers at Columbia University got together and, and codified this thing that had been brewing. Uh, they called it technocracy, but it was a science, as a scientific economic system, scientifically managed economic system. They felt that capitalism was dead. And uh, that was a Great Depression, 1932, horrible time. Lines around blocks, people just trying to get basic food. Unemployment was huge. There was 30 million people out of work at the time. It was horrible. And, and so these progressive engineers and scientists thought, wow, it's got to be up to us to do something new. So they set about pencil and pad to create a new economic system from the ground up, from scratch, Designed the whole thing, and they this is what they called it in 1938. This was their magazine, the technocrat that put out this definition. I'm just going to read it because it says everything that needs to be said. They said, this is a direct quote, technocracy is the science of social engineering. That's number one. The scientific operation of the entire social mechanism to produce and distribute goods and services to the entire population. The article went on to say there will be no place for politics, politicians, finance, or financiers. And then they said technocracy will distribute by means of a certificate of distribution available to every citizen from birth to death. That that's the most concise statement of what technocracy was to them back then and still is today. We see often I see this exact same phraseology maybe not the exact same words, but I, boy, I see the mindset coming out today like crazy. The science of social engineering. See, that was a big thing back then. Social engineering, you know, animals, they believe people were just animals like dogs and cats, whatever, and they could be socially engineered. So, hey, why not? If we're going to create the perfect economic system, then why not engineer the people to fit into it, make them docile and happy and they'll own nothing and be happy. And by the way, 
the original technocrats had all the all the part all the uh, the, the the pieces of agenda 21 like they were going to have no private property that was out nobody's going to own anything they were going to they were going to support people by issuing what they called energy scripts where they would make an estimate of the energy going into the economy for the next say month or quarter divide by the number of people and they would just send out that many energy scripts to every individual if you ran out before the end of the month you can have to go borrow you know live off somebody else if you save some up and didn't spend all your energy script during that month, um, you couldn't carry it over because it expired. So there's no way to make savings. There was no way to make any money. You couldn't leave anything to your kids. You're just living at the instance of the technate. And there was a book, by the way, written in 1932 that modeled technocracy. It was Brave New World. And uh, by Aldous Huxley, who was watching it like a hawk. Columbia University was the progressive university in the world at that time in the in the 20s and the 30s and um huxley wrote the book brave new world if, if anybody would dare to go back and read it again they will find completely science scientifically engineered society everything was based on science there was no political system there was no hierarchy of well i have i'm going to go to the council and make a request there's none of that they told you what you were going to do and that was it they engineered the babies to be, you know, like deltas and alphas and so on. Um, this is a lot of what technocracy kind of looks like even today. And you see even Klaus Schwab talking about this kind of stuff today. And people shake their head thinking, oh, this guy's really nuts. No, he's, well, okay, he's, he's nuts in one sense. To you and me, he's nuts. But this guy has a keen sense of history, and he knows where his focus is. His focus is on this resource-based economic system where everything is managed by the science of social engineering. You know, I just have to throw that out there. We're talking about the 19, early 1930s. You know, it was the 1952-1954 review, the United States House Select Committee to Investigate the Tax-Exempt Foundations. And then I think it was Renee Wormser, who was the lawyer for that, wrote the book, Foundations, Their Power and Influence. When I was going through that book, it was all, and then around the 1920s and 1930s, so, uh, the Rockefeller and Carnegie Foundations are infiltrating the university systems, particularly social science departments. That's what they're focusing on. So the time frame is perfectly in line with this tech, this new definition of technocracy, which just sounds to me, is it really new? So I, I throw a question back to you, Patrick. Is it really new or is it just uh, a different euphemism, a different terminology for what then was communism? Well, it, was, it was new in this sense. It, was, it had never really been codified before 1932. Okay. There was lots of discussion. For instance, the whole concept of Taylorism had already been established. Taylor wrote his book, uh, uh, the engineer, engineering society, whatever it was, he wrote that book in I think 2011. So there was a, a committee during the 20s. Pardon? You said 2011. I think it was 1911. Okay, 1911. Yeah, yeah. I, I, whatever. Yeah. Frederick Taylor. Yeah. Um, but absolutely, you know, they, they were talking about it for a long time, but nobody had really written it down. This is where the scientists and engineers at Columbia University took their, that was their resources. That was their mental resources. It's like Richard has a library behind him. That's his resources, right? If he didn't have that library, he wouldn't be talking about what he's talking about today because he never would have read the books. So they had a body of knowledge behind them where they had been discussing things and uh, certainly in the university and certainly outside of it too, there was lots of coffee house discussions and stuff in New York City at that time. So undoubtedly it had been talked about for a long time, but nobody really written it down and advanced it to the point where they actually uh, produced, after they left Columbia University, uh, the Technocracy Inc. movement actually wrote a book called the Technocracy Study Course. 
And that became the Bible for technocracy. So I think it was 200 odd pages, eight and a half by 11, and um, uh, contained lots of information. I think that probably was uh, the summation of everything that they put together at Columbia. Well, you think about this way, 19th century provided the philosophical basis between Hegel and then appropriating Hegel's ideas with Marx and Engel. Think about this sort of dialectical process, material process. But then you have the positivist movement, the analytical tradition of the 20th century brings about this rational, scientific, more methodical way about implementing this sort of like dialectical process and creating this like new, essentially utopia, but through rational scientific means. And it reminds me of Taylorism with John Dewey, um, utilitarianist and pragmatist as well, at least an education side of it. You know, you, you see this sort of functioning of building everything out from this, this, this sort of modeling as, as everything is a closed system and can be perfectly uh, extrapolated. Well, from that's there. The, the idea of ecology. That comes yeah, sure. The Britain right. You see it everywhere. Time. You see it everywhere. Same time. Yeah. So I, there's system. three. There's three points system, there. Um, the 1800s. There's a lot of talk about controlling people for their own good because they kill us with kindness. You know, they're nice people. But it was only in, in the 1900s that they had codified <clears throat> scientific methods to break down human behavior and cybernetics and to develop technology to support the use of collecting information and surveillance and all these things that Brzezinski brought to the fore with his offering. The other idea was um, they're right insofar as you can control people like animals if you take away the elements that make us human. So my offering would be what makes us unique to pigeons or other animals that they kind of train through operant conditioning, Skinnerian training, these sort of things, is that we can think and speak. So our soul and our spirit, if we are not using and engaging those and we forego those and we just act as our animal instincts, we are very controllable at a base mental reptile brain kind of emotional fight or flight level. That's the pandemic mass formation psychosis crowd right there. Yes. Those who know how to think and speak and interact and get more information and answer their questions and get out of fear with experience and skills and knowledge uh, don't have as hard a time. And then my third point was from the brave new world aspect, what's not in his book, parents, grandparents, cousins, all these things. The family is a threat to the authoritarian technocracy that they want to put in there. And now look at how they treat parents of school children at board meetings and all these things as terrorists, right? So if you understand their game plan from the things they've written in the past, and I think this has always been a powerful aspect of your work and probably one of the reasons you do it, Patrick, people can avoid the tyranny in the future if they learn the lessons of the past. So history stops repeating. Well, that's the bottom-up approach he's talking about as well. Go ahead. I'm yeah. sorry. But that's it's just yeah. my, they got to the culture. They got to the kids. Tony's just so yeah. excited. No, it just got me excited. Yeah. Sorry. Go for it. And, and, and they did. And sustainable development, one of the first things they did when they really got cooking is they created organizations that went out to all the communities in the world. They didn't go through the national governments. They went straight to the communities, straight to the cities, straight to the counties. And they, and they introduced this Agenda 21 doctrine. In America, by the way, they introduced it to smart growth. They changed the name. Because the new Americans don't like agendas, so they they scrapped it here. They called it smart growth, but the rest of the world understands sustainable development agenda twenty one. So they went to all the cities in the world directly and and convinced them to do this. And all of a sudden, of course, it was voluntary, but they had ways to explain it if they wanted to do it. They used the Delphi um, technique. Pardon? De they used the Delphi technique. That's to right. Get predetermined outcomes at these meetings. Exactly right. And. The poor bumpkins that lived in these communities had no clue what was happening to them, I'm sure. I've met too many, talked to many of them. They just had, they had no clue. 
when you explain it to them, they go, oh, gasp, <laughs> you know, I can't believe that I you know, fell into that. Um, but they went just like Richard Gardner said, bottom up, and they did it to us. And, and as I'm looking at possible solutions, and you guys I know have hit the nail on the head on this, if there's going to be any solution, it's going to be from the bottom up, not the top down. Never going to happen from top down. It's going to be a bottom up revolution of some sort to reform your own communities and where you live and you know, need to insulate it, need to build a firewall around it to throw these ideologies out, number one, and then put the ideologies and policies in that suit you, whatever that might be. You mean we're not going to do it with the inclusive capitalism crowd that says we have one third of the world's investable wealth in this room and we're going to fight poverty? That was 2014. And those are the same group of people that partnered up with the Pope during the Great Reset. How's yes. it going? Have they solved poverty yet? I see more poverty. I see more businesses out of business than ever in my lifetime. I know. We know that the whole uh, the whole business of the promises of the sustainable development goals that were created, 17 of them with the Janus 20, uh, 2030 agenda, um, the first 10 at least out of that were complete carrot and stick, con job, false promise, here's the candy, you know, here's the benefit, here's what we're going to do this for you. I mean, you couldn't get a better, a better demonstration of fraud if you went to, you know, the worst used car salesman in town. I'm just going to just lie to you the minute you step on the lot. Well, I remember There's when I first read through Agenda 21, one of the things they talked about in here was that they wanted to end polio. So they're going to vaccinate people. This is the year 2000. This is in 1954. Yeah. I was like, wait, the excuse for vaccines is always that they eradicated polio with it. And yet here's Agenda 21 saying kids have polio. We still have to vaccinate. And then you find out you dig into these things. It's like Bill and Melinda Gates are giving kids polio through the vaccines. And I was incredulous. I was like, no, they're not. That can't be true. Oh, they're banned from all these countries because they're doing that. That was before the COVID pandemic. That was their test run to see if they could do these experiments on people in Africa and other far off places and have the media kind of present it in a, a very uh, Mr. Rogers kind of way. That's right. You know, I know you have, I'm sure you have an electronic copy of that book. Uh, I have the book too, because I used to carry it around to, to smack the deniers with, you know, you don't believe Agenda 21 is real. You think it's a conspiracy theory here. It's let a me, big book too. I've, that's right. It's I a big know. book. So, you I know, hey, let me slap yeah. you upside the head with this Door book stuff. and you tell me if it's a conspiracy or not. And then we'll go from there. But I have the electronic copy of that book. And the reason I do is I can search it, right? I yeah. can type in a keyword and search it. If you search for genetic resources, you'll find 60 mentions in, in the book. How many chapters? 40 chapters? I forget how many pages. There are 60 references to genetic resources. And there's a couple of other terms related to genetics where you find 40, 50 mentions throughout the book. This was a major theme, not only in um, the Gen 21 book, but also in the Biodiversity Treaty, uh, which was, oh my gosh, it was like 18, what, 1,500 pages. The book weighed 15 pounds. And it was the it, the parallel conference that happened with Agenda 21. It was more the practical side. Okay, well, what's going to be sustainable? What's not? Well, golf courses are not sustainable, for instance. So, you know, they wrote a thing on that. Man, you got to get rid of red meat because, you know, cows fart too much and whatever. And there's, I mean, 1,200 pages of that. It, it gives you a major migraine to even think about reading it. But um, throughout that whole thing, genetic manipulation was really the definition behind the word biodiversity. You see a very subtle shift. 
what most people think of as biodiversity is not what they how they define it within the Agenda 21 document and the Biodiversity Treaty document. The biodiversity or assessment, rather, the biodiversity assessment document clearly says that genetic resources are the are really the genetic resources that are there to be manipulated for the sake of improving the world. In other words, so they they think biodiversity is well, this is a takeover of all genetic material on Earth, essentially. When messenger RNA started to be injected into people's arms and stuff, I mean, knowing this about how they have been working forward with engineering seeds and animals and insects and fish and pretty much anything that lives, they've tried their hand out, you know, using CRISPR or whatever to genetically modify these things, these living things. When they started putting or announced that they were going to put messenger RNA, synthetic messenger RNA that had been genetically engineered, that, again, sent off a huge, huge alarm in my mind because not only was it experimental, but the way they were going about it was the bum's rush. They were desperate to hook humanity into this gigantic um, biodiversity experiment of changing life on planet Earth. And it's like, whoa, wait just a minute. <laughs> Whatever. If you want to take that and hack your body, that's your business, but you ain't hacking mine. So we see this, we look back in history. I, I love your title here, a forensic historian. I wish I was a historian. I should have should have majored in college. I wasted my time studying economics. It was totally useless. I had to relearn everything. I got out of college. I was so disappointed. It's I got same. my first job and I said, man, everything I learned just crap. <laughs> Nothing worked. So I had to learn everything all over again. Fortunately, I ran into Tony Sutton and he helped me out. But, um, you know, looking back at history and slicing and dicing where this stuff came from, it was in our face in 1992, and we just didn't see it. There were no, critics that right. wrote books after that that said that the main stake of the Biodiversity Convention was to protect the emerging biotech industry. It's like, wow, wow. I mean, who even understood what the biotech industry was back then? I mean, it's like, okay, well, that's something out there. I don't know what that is. And, you know, I don't know who runs companies like that. Never heard of one. Never saw a paper by them. But, you know, you just let it slip and then it kind of falls into the dustbin and, and you don't pay any attention to it. And, and now, now that we're getting, the world is getting these injections, it's like, holy moly, we're, you know, we're, we're living this now. We're living what they started in 1992. And I, I hasten to add too, Richard, I, you didn't ask me to add this, but I'm going to add it anyway. This was a specific doctrine. The whole policy of sustainable development was a specific doctrine put forward by the members of the Trilateral Commission. That's where it came from. And, you know, there, there's no doubt about it. The person that wrote the book, Our Common Future, Gru Harlem Brentland from Norway, she was a member of the Trilateral Commission executing that book, Our Common Future, which she's, she's been hailed even to today as the mother of sustainable development. They, they openly acknowledge that. She was the one where sustainable development came from. They adopted it as Agenda 21. So this whole thing has been part of the Trilateral's new international economic order dating back to 1973. 
That yeah, was going to say there's a connection with the SR. Rich I was just going to say your 1992 timeframe. I think that's when this uh, second, the follow-up, the report by the club of Rome, first globalist revolution, yes. where they said uh, that humanity is the problem that has to be solved. Right. So prior to that, they had like agenda 21 talk in the, in, in the 1980s before it came to the 1992 Rio conference, but also at the same time. And these are the same people that helped to influence the world economic forum. So yes, you're right. Are. So in the seventies, you got a trilateral commission, you got the world economic forum kind of taken off. So trilateral was David Rockefeller and Zbigniew Brzezinski and Richard Gardner. And they picked the president, right? They, they picked yeah. Jimmy Carter. Um, Nelson Rockefeller was vice president during this time. So yeah. he's vice president of the United States. That's pretty powerful. His uh, groomed dude Kissinger's out doing his work. So Brzezinski is David Rockefeller's protege yeah. and Kissinger is Nelson's. And they're like the bookends, bookends on American political statecraft from the pro-communist Kissinger yeah. supporting Mao and Pol Pot <laughs> to Brzezinski fighting the, the Cold War in some ways I might have even agreed with before I knew more about Zbigniew Brzezinski. Yep. And he also wrote famously in Between Two Ages, but also Political Power USA and USSR. The Stasi had the ability to collect all this information, but they didn't have the technology to, to put it to work and that we needed to create technology in the United States that would allow all this surveillance to work cybernetically to control the population. And that coupled with dumbing down the education puts people on that stimulus response kind of animal mentality where they can be easily controlled. Yes, you're exactly right. And the, the science of social engineering has been at work for a very long time. I did another <clears throat> interview this morning. I had, I had almost, four, I think, four and a half plus hours of, of sitting in front of the screen doing doing video with the, the, the grand jury that's taking place right now. With, oh, that's uh, awesome, because I was going to say <laughs> I didn't see you on the grand jury, and you should be on there. And now I'm uh, excited to watch the latest yeah, grand I, jury. I was there today, and I'm going to be there next Sunday, too. And it was like, <laughs> you know, it's listening. I mean, you have to listen intently to these people because they speak other languages, too. Yeah. And that makes it even more difficult for an English speaker. <laughs> Got to listen very carefully to what they're saying. But, um, uh, you know, we we talked about uh, these issues. I almost lost my train of thought here. I got uh, tickled by how tired I got after for all these hours. I know it's nothing for you, but for me, it's a big deal. No, um, I respect, I respect that you could do four hours with the German lawyer crew over there and the, the Q and a, I mean, that's heavy duty. And yeah, thank it, you for it, making time in your day to do this. Cause you didn't yeah, have we to appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it just gets me, it gets me wound up. That's all it does. I mean, I, I get excited listening to these other people because I'm absolutely brilliant people. And, you know, I just so enjoy listening to an, an outside the USA uh, person talk, you know, because yeah. They, yeah. They, they, they're all saying the same thing, but they got a slightly different, you know, cultural background to them. Yeah. And I really appreciate that. It's just, uh, it's good to have confirmation on the things that we know for sure. But then again, they have cultural sensitivities that we don't have. And that's really important, I think, historically, to look at that, too. Now I completely forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> what were we wanna, talking about? just want to bring up real quick. We mentioned the the, the Agenda 21 massive tome. Um, 51 matches for genetics and then, or genetic. And then if you type in genetics, I think there's a couple more. Yeah. So, um, or genetic something. Anyways, one, just real quick, the first one that came up. Develop basic science research in such areas as plant taxonomy, phytogeography, utilizing recent developments such as computer sciences, molecular genetics, and an in vitro cryopreservation. Does that not sound like Brave New World? And that's just mm -hmm. the very first one. Sounds I like Demolition on. Man. 
I buy right. yeah, that's my brain. <laughs> yes, it does. It also sounds uh I was thinking lawnmower man when you were talking 1992. I was like, yeah, that's that's the metaverse right there, lawnmower man. And you can see, you know, they take mentally disabled people and they empower we must be living in that day and age now when we can do that with technology. Oh, that's not what they're gonna do with it. They're not gonna help people communicate better and live better lives. They're like gonna subjugate people and take away. Like I said, if your eyes are the the window to your soul, metaverse is like taking your soul, putting that thing on your face all day, virtual reality. So there's that. Um, speaking Nazi of eugenics funding property, by the way, the um that that's part of what I was thinking about. Yeah. They mentioned this in Agenda 21, and they talk about it, uh, intellectual property and also in the biodiversity assessment as well, um, where the genetic manipulation is considered to be a global common resource, they said. That's never going to be true, but you know they said that. Global. And that was justification. Well, of course, you need to do it and make it global. That, you know, that's okay if it's global. Everybody's got access to it. But that's not the case. That's not as tell that to Monsanto, who who engineered you know all the food stock feeds that we have, patented them after they GMO'd them, stuck yeah. them away where nobody you know they took all the native seed stock out of production, and now they they own the markets across the world. That's the key. You said something really like I just started to cut in real quick, but you said something really profound. They want so uh, about owning the titles to the resources. Yes. They want to own the title to life itself, which yes, is genetics. Do. That's because the they key. want to play God. The they want to play God. They think That's human the... creation is flawed. And this is in the world economic forums. Like I tweeted it earlier yes. today. They have an ad that says we can fix the human problem. Yes. I'm like, Go F yourselves. That's exactly that's exactly right. They, that's exactly how they frame it is that the world is broken. People are broken. Ah, but they, the scientists, they have a solution that will fix it. Of course, that's a technocrat mind anyway. You give them any problem, they got a technological solution for it. I don't care what the problem is. They always, a good technocrat always has the solution. I can make an app for that or whatever, and we'll come to the rescue and we'll solve the problem and we'll be the heroes of the day. And, you know, this is the, this is the con they put on us that there's always some kind of a technological solution that's going to fix us. But well, humanity is Wells doing just fine said it would be. H.G. Wells said New World Order would be a, like a new religion. And I think that religion is scientism. Yes. And you're the historian on the scene with scientism, because I think it's going on today, maybe still the scientism. Because if you're going to base a technology, because it was like a technology based science monetary thing. But if the science is changing all the time, yes. the political science, the social science especially changes, how are they going to keep that on lockdown? So what is the idea of scientism and how is it distinguished from science? Scientism is behind both transhumanism and technocracy. Um, that's why I call them the evil twins. <laughs> they are they are joined at the hip by scientism, and of course, neither one of those crowds will admit that they're into scientism. But it's just you know we don't need them to admit it to understand that they're dealing with scientism here. Scientism goes way back philosophically, as you probably know. About you trace back at least to uh, where it was really catalyzed, I think, with Henri de Saint Simon in France. And uh, he was the first one really said that we need to have a, a, a priesthood of engineers and scientists to administer science to society. And he wanted to create a new religion that was just focused on humanism and what man can do for man, that sort of thing. But, you know, it had altruistic designs. But when he said that scientists are better than all other men, he, he fell out of bed on that one. That's not the case. But they think they are today. They're better than all other men. And uh, that's a bad way to get out of bed in the morning, in my, in my opinion. You look at the mirror and say, oh, Boy, I'm better than everybody else. 
that's just not the way you want to see somebody that's in policy position, you know, to get out of bed and say he's better than everybody else. But this is the concept of scientism. It replaces God with science, where science becomes a God, science becomes um, the omniscient one, especially today with Google and the like. Uh, and this much explains Fauci prayer candles. Yes, mm, that's right. So, <laughs> so um, scientism today is uh, the, the priesthood of scientism is so obvious today. Uh, people like Anthony Fauci in our country, definitely, you know, he, he says, you can attack me, but you're not attacking me. You're attacking the science, you know, like, hey, you know, dude, are you the high priest here or what? You know, you need a robe or something to identify yourself as being the, the, the guru that goes up the mountain and listens to the oracle of science. So we ignorant people down here can get the message. Yeah. At least Klaus has a robe and a special outfit to let us know he's like the alien leader or whatever. Uh, Klaus outfit. is a little bit more bold on that. Yes, he did. <laughs> Got himself a nice brand new outfit. Oh, geez. I always find it interesting that the concept of science was developed by human reason and philosophy first. It always seems to stand subordinate to philosophy, volition, the ability to make judgments and determinations yep. with free will about how it can be or should be implemented or understood. And well, yet they, they reified it to be work. deified to like some sort of standpoint that stands above the human condition, but was understood and developed and deduced from the uh, human mind. That I think seems it's to be a contradiction. There's science and it takes work. And then there's people with power that want to preserve that power. Okay. And it's just easy for them to pick up the science and beat people with whoever they fund, <laughs> which it. is what Gates, that's why he funds the WHO and all these other groups sure. out there. Yes. It's the perfect con game. game. Right. It's it the perfect con game. game. And you, you might remember the story that I think I included the story in Technocracy Rising about um, uh, John D. Rockefeller's father who uh, was a snake oil salesman, literally. He'd travel from town to town selling snake oil. I mean, it was a medicinal cure for anything. And I think it was uh, made out of oil and yes. a laxative or something Petroleum. Like it was actual petroleum that was floating on the river. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. And so he Corbett made up this did concoction. On it. Yeah. And he wrote into town saying, ladies and gentlemen, you know, for a mere dollar, you can fix anything at ails. You got cancer, it'll fix it. You got gout, it'll fix it. And he was selling only one bottle, of course. Then they discover after they took it, they were violently ill, and he he beat a path out of town. But it was a con job for him to go into town and say to people, "This this medicine will cure you." This is no different than what we're looking at today. They're saying the same thing today. What we have will cure you. Whatever ill, whatever ails you, don't worry. Take this; it will cure you. This has been the same con at the Rockefeller. I mean, going back to the eight, I think it was eighteen eighty around that period where he was doing this as a wonder he didn't get hung. I think he died at like 96 or something. He's really an old man. So they didn't get him uh, during his lifetime, but they're pulling the same con today. It's just as thin as, as thin as a sheet of paper, but it's believable apparently because people keep buying this stuff from him. They keep going on with it. But well, scientism is the reason scientism is really dangerous. It excludes all other sources of truth. If it can't be discovered scientifically, they throw it out. They simply will ignore it and throw it. At, they just reject it out of hand if it's not scientifically discovered. That means that all systems of ethics out the door, all systems of morality out the door, um, most religions out the door, Christianity, especially the Bible, they hate with a passion, out the door, myths and totally unscientific, et cetera. So yeah, is they, kindness and love part of science? And if it's not, these are people who are fine with that. Well, you know, I know I I don't 
you know, I, I want to say to these people, if I could talk to any of them today, you know, <clears throat> you can't prove love in an algorithm. Can't prove it. It's immaterial. It's, it's not touchable. It's not feelable. It's not, you know, whatever. You can't prove that love exists in a test, in a any kind of scientific experiment. So I want you to go home and I want you to tell your wife tonight that there's no such thing as love. And I'm sorry, but I don't love you anymore. See where that gets you. You know, it's like, well, you, you, you bloody fool. Do you have any piece of humanity left in your life that you cannot understand that you can love your children and that you can, you know, you do things outside of the scientific realm every day, but they don't acknowledge that. They just ignore it. Well, that's just, uh, that's just anecdotal. That's not proof of anything. Just the way it, you know, kind of the way it is. And I can't explain it. So I'm going to ignore it. Yeah, these are fans of Norbert Wiener's books, you know, human control, <laughs> human use of human, use of beings. human beings. Yeah. Yeah. I did a Seeing everything as uh, clockwork oranges. I think that's also the Achilles heel on their side that they're trying to destroy freedom and love and family and these other things that they don't understand for themselves. So it's very hard for them to destroy it. I mean, they keep whacking away at it, but they're just making people stronger right now. <clears throat> they are. And we, we talked about this, this in this morning's testimony. Uh, I think there was four of us that, that gave testimony this morning and we kind of had this discussion along the way. Um, you know, where we're headed with this right now, there's the, the, the burning match is being passed around right now. It's just we're so close to burning the whole system down. Uh, the financial system is hanging by a thread. The economy is hanging by a thread. I mean, there's just so many uh, triggers right now that could happen that would just blow the whole thing to kingdom come. Let's just say that Klaus Schwab's greatest dream would take place and the whole economic system would burn to the ground, completely burn to the ground, where we're pushed back into a quasi-agrarian society again. That probably won't be quite that bad, but it would be pretty bad. I mean, if, after, even after World War II and the, the bomb cities, the people came out and they kind of put their lives back together. And not all of them died, obviously, wouldn't be here today. But let's say the worst happens and it completely burns down. There's only two possibilities going to happen on the other side of that. One is the Klaus Schwab's of the world are going to be there offering solutions to us, right? They're going to say, hey, you, we're over here. We have universal basic income for you. We have, um, you know, sustained, sustainable food, et cetera, available for you. If you want it, you, here's how you can play. You know, you take our card, you take our our uh, system, you have to believe in it, of course. And you know, take you our take, brain chip. That's, that's right. You do whatever yeah. we tell you to do and we'll let you live basically. Okay. That's one possibility. The other possibility is the people that lived in the, that survived through the burning to the ground are going to look at these people and say, get the hell out of my life. You know, they're just going to say, you get out of here. I'm, you know, I'm, they might even do it before everything burns down. Cause if you, <laughs> if you look at that goal of Klaus Schwab, right. They do. They, it's not just Fauci that said we want a, an excuse to use mRNA gene therapy on people, but we have to use the egg fertilizer vaccines until some crazy thing happens, right? That yes. would give them executive control, yes. emergency powers. Klaus Schwab's like, I'd like to do this thing. And what would you need to do that thing to return us to the Stone Age? Now, H.G. Wells wrote uh, things, uh, The Shape of Things to Come, mm -hmm. and then it was made into the movie in 1938, Things to Come by the MI6 uh, filmmakers. Yes. And the idea is there's a big technological gap. 
that there's society goes back to the stone age, except halfway through the movie, spoiler alert, wings over the world has all the technology and they come over and they're in charge of everything. This is what they're trying to do in my yes. opinion. Yes. And I think it's you not just your opinion, Rich. It's yeah, like they, real quick. Let me just get this on the record, but new 40 pit. This is, so it comes from, let's see here. It's called the advancing digital agency, the power of data intermediaries, February, 2022 and world economic forum. Yeah, and they're not they're looking at how gaming. to get you early treatment. They're looking at cyber polygon ways to take away all your technologies right. and you're back yeah. in the stone age. Yeah, essentially it's exactly to what you and, and Patrick are speaking to. They're right now they're wargaming how to get the digital ID in place, uh, especially through the vaccine, digital ID, vaccine passport. That's the number one goal. And I said that was the number one threat to freedom. Well, there's many threats to freedom, but to me, that's that getting people to sign up for that that illusion of a digital ID and the, the, the security that supposedly comes with it. But I'll just read a quick thing here and go back to the conversation. The 46 page document called advancing digital agency, the power of data intermediaries claims that because a digital ID will be used for authentication in virtually every aspect of your life from financial services to travel and commerce, the technology could quote, enhance privacy protection and reduce rise of identity fraud. Of course, that's how they're framing it, but we know what the real goal is, uh, here is. So it goes into more detail about that, but I just I had to get that on the record with what you guys were talking about because it's just exactly February 2022 report, exactly right. what they're well, and if you right, don't right pay now, to happening right now. That's what they're interested in. We're gaming how to get that digital ID in place. Yeah, yep. and if you don't pay to participate in that society, you're going to need some Bruce Willis type of surrogate <laughs> that you're going to pay for to go into Dubai and do business with that person and you rent a surrogate via, you know, they have a future. They're paying it out for you on all these movies and dystopian uh, features that they've put yep. in front of us. And now they're just having their way with a lot of the world, unless you're one of the truckers, probably. Well, the one thing that they have not <clears throat> that they have not come to grips with is that if they burn the system down, people will be forced to make human connections again. That's and they won't have thing. control with them. They won't have control of them. You remember? <clears throat> well, I don't think you may not remember, but there was a time years ago when the lights went out in New York. And people were saying, oh, my gosh, New York is going to burn to the ground because there's crime and there's stuff on the streets going on all the time. And they said, oh, it's going to be horrible, horrible. It's going to be a disaster for the whole city. It's going to be hundreds of thousands of people are going to get killed and mugged and robbed and everything else. What happened is the people came out in the street because lights were out in their house. It was dark. They, their refrigerators didn't work or nothing. So they said, hey, let's go out in the street. They looked around and said, dang, I've got neighbors. <laughs> And all of a sudden they start hugging each other. They start talking and helping each other and, you know, get helping people get along. And the human connection was made again when people were forced out into the street because they couldn't do anything else. Okay. I, I kind of look at that and, and just, you know, speculate myself. If they burn the system down, it's going to force the remaining people hopefully all of them, but it's going to force the remaining people to make those human connections again. That ultimately, in my mind, is the only hope for this world is for people to get connected to people again. And, and the whole isolation thing with COVID, uh, you know, uh, the whole COVID debacle, I call it the great panic of 2020, is to isolate people, get them isolated, hiding out in their homes so they don't dare come out hiding behind masks so nobody can know them or recognize them. Um, you know, staying six feet apart so they can't easily talk to each other and nudge each other in a line and grocery line or whatever. Um, 
they've been working on this psychological weapon to keep people isolated so their mind goes a little bit squirrely. But if the system burns to the ground and they lose control of it because people now are making those human connections again, they will not be able just to waltz in and say, hey, we're taking over this whole thing. You're, you're going to do what we say. People are just going to say, no, you're not. You're not going to take it over. We don't need you. We don't want you. We don't need you. And we'll take what, we'll take what little we have here and be happy with it than taking all of your abundance and being miserable with it. I and think being that's a, slave. a good equation. Yeah. And historically, indigenous populations that don't want to be occupied yes. usually win. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, and that's and that the story of Vietnam and Afghanistan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it's uh, the analogy I think of is the is to war, of course, but the Christmas truce when they discovered that humanity again between the two trenches. So, no, you're you right. Know, it's, it's, it's 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 a tenuous situation for them to be because they have to keep people isolated while at the same time they have to crash everything, including well, anytime you're trying to put people at odds with each other to kill each other that don't have personal beef with each other. It's a tough thing psychologically for them to get yep. that to happen. They have to have right. ritual and yeah. medals and threats of court martial and all sorts of Prussian education <laughs> type of situations going on with that. But Patrick's right. When I lived in New York, there was two times when everybody was out in the streets. One was a blackout. It was in August, maybe 2003. Like the whole East coast was out and everybody in New York city was like block party everywhere. There was no, it was, wasn't a big deal. Other time was after nine 11. Again, a lot of people helping each other, no one taking advantage and like super criminal type activities. Like what you see during the pandemic in New York. Now it's like the all time crime record. Yeah. They're grooming. Over Not there. just New York, Chicago, LA, Austin, I mean, all the gun free zones. basically. Yeah. <laughs> Patrick, what do you know about these? Uh, so there was like these robber barons who are into eugenics and they may have funded the Nazis. And after World War II, these people got a lot of power and molecular biology and the transhumanism and all these sort of things started percolating. And it's perfectly fine. It's, it's separated from what Hitler did. That was bad eugenics. But what these people do is molecular biology and it's Rockefeller funded. So what could go wrong? But, you're, you're, you know, the idea of that they want to own life itself and, and perfect fact something that's imperfect in their eyes that's like should set up red flags for everybody there's a long history to it though and i i know you know a little bit about it oh boy there's there sure is and there's a book i don't know if you've ever seen this book before it's called nazi oaks no i don't have um, that one it's written by um a gentleman by the name of mark musser and uh he spent a lot of time in europe doing original research on the nazi movement and stuff from the perspective of uh, the green movement. And he found that, uh, that all of Hitler's mechanism was uh, more green even than the ecological crazies are today in the world, Green New Deal people. Wow. And <clears throat> that, you know, everybody kind of focuses on the military and the persecution of the Jews and others as well. And lots of blacks got killed, not gypsies, they were worthless people to them. But uh, nobody paid a lot of attention to the ecological greenness of Nazi, the Nazi movement. Uh, Musser did a great job at it. It's very scholarly. He did a lot of original research and said he went to those places, interviewed people. He looked at original documents and stuff and, and discovered what really went on. It was really amazing. If Hitler had had the tools, the scientific tools that we have today, we would not be having this conversation today, probably. Probably. Because he would have he would have slammed up the whole thing back then if he could have. 
But his idea of genetic manipulation, they didn't have any tools to, to, to do that, mostly was kill everybody you don't like, or at least you don't like the way they look. But there was more to Hitler's program. For instance, he had, um, he had um, a birthing clinic set up where, where certain types of women were invited to give birth to babies who would breed with uh, SS soldiers, you know, mostly officers. And um, they would uh, have their babies and 10 days after they had their babies, they would take the babies from the mother and kick the mother out. And uh, those babies would grow up in an orphanage. It kind of reminds you a little bit of Brave New World, I guess. Yeah, just but, a little bit. Oh, It's how but, they did it before they had the, the robots, you know. What, exactly. The hatchery. <laughs> but Hitler was a... Hitler was a, a, a microcosm of everything we see today. Everything is just, I mean, it's just so, uh, it is so identical in context as well as, you know, and I, I, I'm not saying that Hitler was the one that discovered technocracy. He actually, he had, the, when technocracy was started here as an organization in 1934, immediately in Germany, a German chapter of technocracy popped up. <laughs> And a lot of science and engineers ran to it. They published the American magazine over there in Germany. They translated and published it in Germany. Hitler outlawed the movement because they didn't want any competition. But later they found out that, that technocrats survived into his administration, into the various columns of power that he had that he always liked to keep separate. He didn't want anybody talking to anybody else, you know, in those columns of power. We found out, or scholars found out, that there were technocrats in every one of his columns of power who were quote unquote breaking the rules, wink, wink, and communicating cross column with each other for a common purpose. And it was pretty scary. But those technocrats that were died in the wool technocrats, just like the ones at Columbia University, they survived the war. Most of them did because they never went to battle. They never went out and carried a weapon and they, you know, they didn't get bombed out. The ones that lived survived. Most of them came to the United States under Operation Paperclip mm. at the time. Top secret, nobody knew about it, since been declassified, we know now. But they brought, um, I forget what the number was, 280 or I don't know how many people they brought over, top scientists like Werner von, von Braun, for instance, uh, uh, the, the famous rocket scientist. Uh, well, he, they sanitized their record, they gave them new identities in many cases, and nobody ever knew that they were from Nazi Germany and that they did atrocious things in Nazi Germany. They probably should all, most of them been hung. But they came to America and got a sanitized reputation. They went into universities and went into our national laboratories. They went into our rocket program, into the Air Force, and the top military echelon research and so on. And they gave birth to children who, who I sure survived in the system as well. But technocracy and, and Nazism did not die when Hitler committed suicide. There's no doubt about that in my mind. Yeah, I look 1600 at Germany. German scientists, 1600, just for the scale. At I the mean, very the, least. At the very least. Yeah, and that's the yeah. ones that we know about through the declassification. Yeah. I mean, that's just insane when you think about it. 16, it's just, they just I used thought Germany it was always a couple hundred. As the Wuhan lab of the day. And <laughs> yeah, Hitler wasn't the, Hitler didn't come up with those Good experiments. Enough. He just owned the lab where that stuff was going on for the robber barons who were funding all that stuff. And they probably told him. Cause there's a bunch of Rhodes scholars and Hitler's intelligence units. Cause they had like, uh, there was only a couple years that Germany couldn't have Rhodes scholars after world war one, they like shut it down for a couple years, but he had a bunch of people in his establishment that were for the enemy. And so Hitler was probably told, Hey, we're going to help you do this thing. You're going to take over the world. 
But really, they needed to do that to get Germany out of the picture so the British Empire could take over the world. Like they're doing with Xi Jinping now with the CCP in China, kind of potentially, like or other places. Yeah. Just yeah, They don't need new plays when the old ones keep working. <laughs> That's true. That's right. That's right. You ride the horse until you can't win a race anymore with it. <laughs> then, right. then you throw that horse out and get another one that can. Speaking of the queen, heard she has the COVID. Stay safe. She's got the triple jab. King Charles wants the throne. It just seems weird, right? Because they're going to have a coronation. But then after two years, the queen falls ill. So <sighs> God save the queen. And uh, we, we wish her well. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I have to say, if, if, if Hitler today is looking up from the from the flames of hell, he's probably kicking himself. He wasn't born Chinese. He's saying, stop blaming me for to have control of that virus lab. He right. probably would have really liked that. <laughs> and all the other, the social credit score system, all the other technocratic systems they have in yes. place. Yes. Um, yeah, he would. Yes. He would drooling at the mouth over what they have available to now you know, in regards I, to technology. I don't know how much I, I brought it up in, in my original Technocracy Rising book, but uh, when Brzezinski brought uh, Chairman uh, Deng Xiaoping to United States to normalize relationships, so it was 1978 under Carter. Um, that was a major event, by the way. People it was really a, oh, huge because huge, yeah. China was like North Korea. Yes. It was a swamp. Exactly. It was just, it was a train wreck. They had no economic activity, no system in place. Brzezinski and crowd and the Trilateral Commission crowd did not teach Deng the principles of free market economics. Not a chance. He taught them technocracy, scientific engineering. By 2001, Time Magazine, which is one of the original magazines wrapped into the Trilateral Commission to keep their mouth shut, they wrote an article and said point blank a technocracy that China is now a technocracy because it had been taken over by engineers and scientists and it was being completely engineer society, period. Of and major multinational corporations <clears throat> that all that right. capital is flowing over there and they're building this sort of like top-down society, which is now half owned by the CCP, but it's, that's, it doesn't but really matter. It makes matter. sense. David Rockefeller says, Von Mises for me, technocracy for you. <laughs> and look at what the foreign affairs magazine was saying when COVID started, for example, China, good America, yeah. bad. We oh, had yeah. Dana McCarthy. Remember we the did economist, a the Rothschild owned economist was also saying, look at that. It, it was Chinese article after article. Like, look at what despotism. they can do to control their, po their population, yeah. control the virus, you know, look at their yeah. numbers, America, democracy, you know, individual rights. These things are very messy. We can't control the, you know, the situation as well. Those as are the cracks can. of the whip and you're supposed to obey those. You can see them starting to position offerings. They give you yeah. to go yeah. on. All right. <clears throat> so China is now the model the preferred model by all technocrats around the world, whether it's, um, you know, an Apple or an Amazon and Bezos, or whether it's an Elon Musk, they all love China. And that's to what you pointed out, 1978. I mean, it goes back many I mean, decades. From 1978 forward, we had to outsource all of our manufacturing to China, steel production, lead, smelting, all these things in order to build for the globalists this thing that can be used to crush America to get them to the world government basically it because soviets stopped playing they're like we're over here and putin might be trained by klaus schwab but he doesn't seem to play their game like he might have been there to those meetings but it doesn't seem like they have the same control over him that they might have over a trudeau or a biden or anyone else in their coterie that they have groomed you're right you're right service it's also just for in the current situation it's important to to realize back in the 70s when the 
Trilateral Commission to kind of took over the Carter administration, a lot of people freaked out saying this is neat. This is a political coup. They've taken over the whole state of government and that can't be right. Almost the whole cabinet. You know, <laughs> well, they did yeah. all but one yeah. member of the cabinet was a member of the Trilateral Commission at one point. They had almost 30% of their American members in the administration somewhere, including Carter and Mondale and Brzezinski and then all the cabinet except one. Mondale. And there were others as well that took over. But we talked to members of the Trilateral Commission back then. We had several debates uh, with them directly, kind of face-to-face -face or sometimes over the radio. Yeah. And they said very pointedly, we're, we're not political. And they kept saying this. We're not political. We're economic. We want to create a, a new international economic order. It didn't occur to me until a few years went by on how right they were and how wrong I didn't, I should have believed them from the get-go would have saved me a lot of effort and time going forward. They took over the United States political system, not for the sake of political power. They didn't care a whit about political power, but they took control of the greatest economic engine on the face of the planet. They got access. They created the U.S. trade representative position, for instance. Actually, it was the year before they started with, uh, with um, Nelson Rockefeller and uh, Gerald Ford. The USTR became the one that wrote all the treaties, like NAFTA and CAFTA and SHAFTA. <laughs> no, not SHAFTA. But they wrote the treaties. They're the ones that created the economic treaties. They're the ones that appointed the um, the World Bank presidents, like eight out of 10 or something, for the next uh, 20, 30 years. They're the ones I think they had, they appointed in like nine out of 12 of the US trade representatives, members of the Trilateral Commission. They wanted domination over the world economic system so that they could create a new international economic order. That's what the whole takeover was about. It was not for the sake of political power per se. They wanted control over economic, the economies, and they got it. And they, they used it, they hammered Japan, they hammered Europe, most all of the policies in Europe that we despise today were created by this very same crowd, the European crowd that from the Trilateral Commission that took positions in, uh, in Europe, they did exactly the same thing. They crushed down those, those nation states. They, they changed or reformed the economic system. We end up with the EU today, which looks like very much like a technocratic system. Um, you know, they've done this everywhere they've touched. Uh oh, <laughs> I was looking to see was Crisis of Democracy a trilateral publication? Yes. All right, I didn't find it in here, but that was around the same time too, right? That was 1976-ish, yes. yes. same era that you're you're speaking of. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely. So, do you think um, what's going on today, the World Economic Forum, is no different in as far as their sphere of influence as another working group like trilaterals in the past? Is it just business <laughs> as usual? Yeah, the trilaterals are still around today. That that's that's very clear. They're still there. They haven't gone anywhere. They're just as powerful as they ever were. But back in the 70s and and certainly in the 80s too, they didn't want to come out to play. They wanted to stay secret. They mm -hmm. they didn't like it when somebody called them out publicly or wrote articles about them. That's why we got censored all over the place back then. Um, so they were hiding, like kind of like Trudeau went to hide in his whatever his basement when the truckers came. You know, these guys like to hide out because they were doing an end run after all. They changed their philosophy. They didn't want to be out front swinging away and slugging the stuff and, you know, making these grand plots. They stayed in hiding by and large through the 70s, 80s, maybe the 90s as well. But now the World Economic Forum represented 
and, and you look at the membership makeup, you've got lawyers, you've got CEOs of companies, boards of, uh, you know, board members, uh, you've got politicians. You look at the membership today and it's strikingly the same as the membership mix that you had in the trial out of commission mm. back then. Very similar. And so today the difference is, and, and they're spouting a lot of the same verbiage that we had back then with a little more technology added in, but same thing. Um, they're now, they've changed their position. They're not willing to hide anymore. They're, they're right out in your face, completely in your face now. And they're writing, the, you know, putting out the most outrageous things on their website. That it's just it's hard to believe that they're actually saying these things. And I know most people might look at us. Oh, that's got to be a joke. That's got to, somebody's got to be pulling a joke on that one. They put something like that up there, but no, they're dead serious about what they're talking about resetting the world right now. This was the plan from the get-go, but now they're in, in the wide open view and everybody can see them and analyze them to any extent they want to. It is no conspiracy on our part. It has been a conspiracy on their part. I have a quick yeah. question about- Yeah, they lit the fuse in the 1970s and it plays out to today to the, the great reset. Go ahead, Tony. Um, this is about ideology. Uh, from your research, do you see these people as being ideologically possessed insofar as that they actually believe in it? Or because you, you sort of had this distinction between that's not just about political power. It seems to relate to a, a larger economic ideology. Is it something they really believe in? Because I find that people who are sort of ideologically possessed by different ideas, different systems tend to, it's that, that, that belief, that manifested belief in it that makes it that much more pernicious in their actions because they're willing to do anything at any cost. Whereas someone that just wants, you know, petty forms of power, it's much more conspicuous with those individuals seemingly as to their intentions. We'd uh, even back in the seventies, we did a lot of network analysis with paper, by the way. <laughs> I don't know how he did it. Andrew's <laughs> got the brain on his side now, which is really good. All we had was a, a quadril pad, and yeah. a bunch oh, of pencils. Goodness. We had to write it out that way. But what we found in all of these groups that we analyzed and starting with the trial out of commission, and we, we looked at the Bilderberg group and, and others and uh, we looked at the BIS as well, by the way, which uh, the board members are the, the the heads of the central banks around the world. Or yeah. There's more yeah. central banks today than there was then. But um, we looked at the board of directors. We looked at the the you know the membership of organizations and stuff. Tried to analyze, okay, who's really kind of calling the shots? What we found almost every time was there was an inner core in all of these groups that maybe only represented five percent of the whole membership. Like in the trilateral commission, if you had 300, you say, well, there's probably 15, 20 people in the executive committee that were really in control. We saw the same thing with the bank for international settlements. There was a certain, there was a bank of England. They were always on the, on that seat at the inner core. Oh, there sure. was a U.S. fed. Um, and I can't remember what, maybe Japan was in there, but there, you know, there was like five or six out of them, out of all of them. Was Hitler's banker in there? Pardon? What, Halmar uh, shocked? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it was uh, Helmar Horace Greeley shocked from mm -hmm. Bro from Brooklyn, who was yeah, Hitler's Brooklyn, banker. Know, right. Yeah. And he's working <laughs> yeah. with uh, Montague Norman from the the Bank of England. Oh, there you go. When yeah. when they created the BIS. Yeah. So to answer your kind of to answer your question, when you look at the <clears throat> when you look at the uh, World Economic Forum, they say they have about a thousand corporate members at this point. That that's not the whole world, by the way. There, there's got to be hundreds of thousands of corporations, companies throughout the world. So it's a fairly small group of people who think, well, there's a thousand companies, okay. So in that thousand companies, how, the question would be, how many of them really know what's going on? Right. My guess is probably not very many. 
And if you take a thousand people and take the five percent rule, what are you looking about? Fifty people, maybe. Um, yeah, interlocking boards of directors take care the, of most of it. Yeah, and you might and just then look the rest board are directors and and maybe Klausi himself and right. and you say, well, there there, but there. The point is, there is an inner core. Whether we can identify them or not, there there are those people who are calling the shots, and the rest of them are hangers on. They figure there's a paycheck in it for them. Mm. They're going to get filthy stinking rich. They're going to make a billion dollars. Who who knows what they're thinking. Sure. But they buy into the model because they want to please the hierarchy and they want to be in the gravy train. Just that simple. So they follow along the gravy train to get the little red wagon out and they're, they're tra trailing their wagon on to collect all the money they can. And at and the bottom of the gravy train, there's the guy on the horse trampling the grandma. <laughs> well, that's right. That's the I bottom know. level of gravy train money is doing that. Although <clears throat> Michael right. Malice made a point today. He said, how much money would it take for someone reasonable and rational and ethical and moral values oriented to do that? And the answer is no amount of money. So his point was they would do it for free. It's not because of the money that they're doing it. It's yeah. the position of power that they're offered. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Hmm. It takes, it takes somebody, it, it, it gives a different definition to the word uh, megalomaniac hmm. to think that there could be 50 or 7,500 people at the top of the food chain who truly understand what's going on. Some people look at it and say, well, they're probably just flat out demonic at that point. So evil. Maybe that's true. Apex but, predators. Pardon? Apex predators. Yes. That's Intraspecific right. kleptoparasites <clears throat> from the same species, exactly right. but they, it's, it's like, they plunder our wealth. It's, I know. It's like imagine a imagine hundred uh, Epsteins of different, of different persuasion, not all pedos, but you know, uh, politicians and corporate people, whatever. Just man it. You just imagine a group of piranha uh, humans that, yeah, yeah. that are willing to put anybody out of sacrifice. They don't care. They got no morality, no ethics. They'll do anything to, to you know, push your agenda along. You're dealing with a group of very, very harsh people. Um, it's a small group of people with thousands and thousands of Renfields on the outside servicing yes. their needs. Yes. Yes. And they're controlling the ripples of the waves as they go out. They throw a rock on the pond. It waves, you know, it goes out. Some of it sticks. Sometimes it doesn't, but you know, enough of it gets out where the whole culture changes. Like the whole thousand people, if a proclamation is made from some grandiose study that Klaus Schwab does, or he writes a book or whatever, that eventually is just going to kind of ripple out to the rest of the community and it's going to change their culture to some extent. Some of them probably fall flat and does nothing, but others will. And this is kind of the way it's been over, you know, you look back over the, in my opinion, over the last couple of hundred years, this is usually kind of the way it has been. Um, well, I think of it like this, like this is his wish list, fourth industrial revolution, but this is him saying, here's the play. This is the play we're running right now you know, the COVID-19 great reset spiel. So they had That's like the wish metaphors. list. We'd like to do yeah. this. We want to make the whole world out of internet people. That's what that's, this is what that means. But this is like MRNA can be the ticket to get there. Right. <laughs> Just a little gene therapy for you. That's all. That's what you've been missing. That's all you need. You, re you hack your body. You'll like it. You, <laughs> you'll own nothing and be happy. I hate to think of that in the context of your soul. <laughs> Because when you hack your body, when you hack your brain, you hack your body, you're getting, you know, the, the pretty much, I think there's pretty much universal agreement uh, that 
your mind, will, and emotions are kind of what make up your soul. You know, you have a mind to think, emotions to feel, and so on. <clears throat> These people are trying to hack humanity to the core. And, you know, you think about, are, are they possibly thinking in terms of, of capturing people's souls, you know, by, manip by so manipulating their minds and so manipulating their emotions and their will, most importantly, their will? Because the la that's the last piece of private property we have when you get right that's down to it. part of why they print money in the first place, to get people to do things they would normally not otherwise do unless that's, money was being present. And that's, that's right. I'm sorry. I'm just doing this because it's my job excuse. Whether you're Epstein's guards who lost the videotape and turned it off or whatever, or the guy stomping the, the people at the protest, just doing my job. Or the Nazis. They said the same thing. I know it's cliche to bring up history, but when you see things repeat like that, they're similar. It's okay to mark remark. Well, now it's becoming conspicuous in the metaverse. I mean, we've shown a number of clips. Um, True Stream Media did that production about Saturn, the idea of death and rebirth, all the symbolism associated the with many of the of advertisements. Man. Yeah, right. I mean, it's, yeah. The they trust can't game, that's what I was just watching. The, the trust spirit game. aspect, the thing that animates us, but they can control everything that right. comes afterwards, which is the soul, the individuating aspect of it. That's what they can control. <laughs> It's almost like they have a resentment over the fact they can't be God itself, but they'll control everything other like aspects. Separated from God, Tony. That's a good observation. Yep. Or God, whatever metaverse, force the, the and nature is, you want to call it. Yeah, yeah. Good. I, I think the metaverse is probably one of the greatest risks to humanity that we've ever seen in history. And it may not go anywhere. It may not get anywhere. I mean, I'm I I knew the very first time I ever heard about the metaverse, I said, Man, that's gotta be trouble because there's no legal system in the metaverse. There's nothing to control it. It's just a it, you know, it's just uh, uh, it's silicon. It's just algorithms running in silicon. You don't know what happens on a real-time basis anywhere. And all of a sudden, now that they're experimenting with it and doing some serious testing and stuff, you find out, you know, some some female engineer goes in and gets raped by three people. And, and it's like she comes out screaming and hollering. Oh, it's just like I got raped. You know, I felt all the same emotions and all that kind of stuff. So, guys, you can do anything in the universe, in, in the metaverse. There is no... It, there is no law, there is no morals, there's no ethics, there's no nothing. You will lose your soul. And it's not just that you'll, you know, your, your, your mind can be programmed to believe certain things. The metaverse will change how you think. It will, and they, they, they're pretty open about this. They want you to, they want to redesign the way you come to a critical conclusion on something. And so today you might be presented with some facts and say, you make a conclusion on that and you write it down and say, well, this is, I saw, I see what I see. And I write down this conclusion and you write a paragraph two months from now, after you've been through this rewiring of your brain, if you're presented with the very same evidence uh, at first and say, write what you conclude now, you might write sound something that's completely different than what you wrote today. And that's, that's okay. If it's a result of learning, but if it's a result of indoctrination and repetition and not evidence that exists, then it's a real problem. That's called slavery well, and control. They believe that your mind is just a software algorithm and can be programmed and reprogrammed any way they choose. So if they want to get a certain, uh, a certain thing to come out of it, they can just rewire it a certain way. I remember um, the guy Ferguson's uh, uh, first, um, I think it was Ferguson in London who wrote the algorithm that said yeah. that all these Britons are going to die. And you know. well, he didn't write that. It was based off a fourteen-year-old doing a science project <laughs> at her dad. I, I did a whole deep dive. That's yeah, about right. Yeah, no, <laughs> literally, I did a whole yeah. deep dive on this. That's when, where when social you were distancing gone. came from, too. 
Yeah, what, the whole yeah. thing was a joke. But then he, they took that model. This this organization took the model and extrapolated it into their own. Yes. But, yeah. When when the forensic programmers got a hold of it, finally they they released it to, you know, people to, that really knew what they were doing to analyze it, whatever. It was it was it was a joke of the of the programming world at the time because it was quite a feat. They could run the same program multiple times with the same inputs and get different answers. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's it's actually like what, kind of, what kind of garbage program, you know, you say as an accurate computer model, use the same inputs, the same assumptions, and you run the program today and you get one answer, you run it two hours from now, you get another answer and another answer and another answer. That ain't no program, folks. That's just trash you know take it out to the dump and flush it down the toilet well that's their goal they make programs that say two plus two is whatever yeah o'brien says it is today that's and, right so, uh, i think you know, they use yeah. the same software to prove world trade center seven collapse from fire they use the same that's, software right there that, that's right so you know fauci said you don't need masks no now you do need masks no we need it all the time indoor even indoors by yourself well now no you need two masks well, your children need masks too, but maybe you don't. I mean, it's just it's it confusion and anxiety, that. and that's the result they sought to create with Fauci, their actor on stage. He thinks yeah. he's Al Pacino. He One of the things I kind of want to go back to what you're talking about having this sort of intermediary interface that allows us to sort of uh, subvert or push away our own sort of emo not only emotional but values based nature. Reminds me of Michael Crichton's, you know, Westworld. That's sort of like what he portends or the ominous sort of representation. Or and that obviously floor, was remade in Crichton HBO. Came before it, I think, before 13th yeah. floor, because it was a oh, virtual creation okay. for the purpose of abusing people in it that you couldn't well, do here in reality. Not only abusing it, but finding oneself, like losing oneself or becoming something new, like dying in rebirth. You get this into ones on a psychopathic version of themselves, their demonic version of themselves, which is interesting because that, that uh, obviously is conspicuous on the new HBO representation, at least in the first season. I forget the, the, the main character, but you see, they sort of juxtapose his older self from his younger self. When he first experiences this, he's a good guy. He wants to do the right thing, but then he realizes they're just robots. I can do whatever I want. And once he makes that realization, he starts doing the opposite of anything that he stood for in principle outside of that, that world. And then obviously he invests in it and becomes the main, the main owner of it and then tries to push it farther by creating, interestingly enough, a situation where the, he can upload his consciousness into one of the robots and live forever. Wow. How well, and the, the power that he's doing, because <laughs> there's no causality in that game. That's why no. people kind of do those psychopathic things. It's mm -hmm. the same thing as the power elite. No one's telling Trudeau no. No one's telling the banker class no. These people hear yes all the time. They get whatever they want. That's why they get a little wacky. Oh, That's it's, why it's Bezos bit, is yeah, a little out it, there. These well, it's days. a little bit troubling. And this goes back to what Patrick said earlier. I want to get your take on this, Patrick, because like there's this illusion of science. Like we see what science, I mean, we're talking right now through a, a sort of mediated interface. Yeah, we're not you know, Luddites. Like, yeah. So it's it's in, we we use this technology. It's this sort of illusion of the fact that there has been such incredible advancements in science that then allow us to sort of not realize and give over to deifying or apotheosizing the concept of science itself. And that's sort of the problem because I think we, 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 we subjugate or subordinate our own power um, to this, this higher concept because we see its effects and how much it's bettered our lives in many ways, but we don't realize how it can also then be abused. And we, we it allows for that greater separation between those that are managing that science through legislation or otherwise, or through engineers that are creating it and having a vision, putting, as Peterson noted, they're, they're 
they're programming their ethical values and principles into the machines themselves. And then we interact with how they use the machines and you know how, what type of impact will that have on the, not only my generation, but then the generations now coming up there younger. It's, it's really sort of portentous realization if you, if you look at it that way, but I, I, you know, what's your take on that, Patrick, between like the illusion of the fact that science has been on, at least on a material basis, very effective, but at the same time, do you, do you see a sort of connection that I'm alluding to in regards to yeah. why we're willing to give ourselves over to the concept of science, which is a little bit different from. Right, right. We should know, differentiate at this point very carefully between real science and pseudoscience. Yeah. Okay. Real yeah. science is a wonderful thing. In my opinion, uh, I've always loved science. I, I took scientific classes in, in college and I've studied read books and stuff. I love, I really do love science, pure Me science. Too. Um, but pseudoscience is not real science. Um, you know, many things are called science that are not science at all, not scientific at all, like social sciences. There's no such thing, really. They say it's a science, but it's not a science. You, you know, you cannot, you know, social engineering, for instance, you know, that's not, they call it, well, it's a science. No, it's not. It's a bastardization of control is all it is. But uh, real science has the, the distinction between real science and pseudoscience has been so blurred that most people simply cannot tell the difference today. They, they don't know how to distinguish between the real deal and not the real deal. And that's a real shame because that means real science gets buried in the, in the, you know, the, the backfield and pseudoscience kind of takes the place of real science and people believe it. It's like magic. I remember there's a book written back in the, 60s by Alvin and Heidi Toffler called Future Shock. It was a brilliant book in, in just one sense. They said there will come a time when technology advances beyond the ability of the human brain to, to, to perceive you know, what was going on so rapidly, and that it would ultimately appear to them as magic. Hmm. We're kind of to that place right now where a lot of people, that, you know, they look at this stuff and it was magic. Yeah. <laughs> Of course, maybe they mean it, maybe they don't. But I mean, this is kind of the way they treat it in reality. It's like magic. And so it's kind of true. Like were, everything we're doing is invisible waves, you know? Yeah. Like That's right. I know there's been some, some interesting movie clips made on this particular topic, this, this idea of magic. But our leaders, um, those technocrats who have gotten into policy positions around the world, um, they're passing down pseudoscience mm -hmm. and expecting the people who hear them to treat it like magic. The, the, you can't question it. it. The science is settled. It's, you know, it, this is the way it is. You must accept it the way it's like it is. Like tribal taboos. Yeah. It is. The trick and, is know, the trick. Don't ask any questions about you know, how it, the rabbit got in the hat. Interesting too. You know, I, I know, Richard, I know that... <laughs> I know that uh, you and I have one thing in common. I, I think we both probably have studied magicians enough in the past to know that you have the sleight of hand that's going on with the left hand, but the real action is taking place on the right hand. Right? That's just a truism in research. Misdirections. Ah. So whenever something's going on in society, my first knee-jerk reaction is to say, Let me, I need to separate the, the sleight of hand with what's really going on, because usually it's just radically different. That, you know, you, you have to look very deep to find out what really, what the real agenda is. But over here, they're saying this, no, 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 the, the actions over here, look over here. 
And we've seen this time and time again over, I have over the last 45 years, and it's nothing has changed in that regard. It's still a con game. It's a shell game. It's a magic trick. You know, if you knew how the trick was played, you'd never unsee it. You'd never fall for it again. If you could see it once, you'd never fall for it again. What well, has actually has relationship back to the idea to cast a spell, to write down, have a specific word. We believe in that word that represents a concept. And then we're giving into whatever the higher elites dictate or define as what that word means. But I think they euphemize it though. They don't call it pseudoscience. They call it soft science, right? Psychology, social sciences. I think Sigmund Freud, Carl Jung at one point wrote back to Sigmund Freud as a famous letter saying, we should really treat ourselves more as a religion rather than a science because there's no hard and fast way we can measure the effects of psychological disposition of human beings. Freud was not happy with that. He's like, no, no, no. We need to be taken seriously. If we're going to be taken seriously, we've got to be considered a science. The only problem is we have to remove the soul portion of the human. I said, Freud said that in between lines of Coke. (laughs) She's like, no, we can't be science. <laughs> we got to be science. Yeah, we got you know? to be science. Can't be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the stage it. for behaviorism, though. Right? I'm not a professional that's... comedian. That's why I blew that line. <laughs> it's still <laughs> funny. I blew that line. Law. Good, yeah. job. Good job. But the point is, though, they have to. It's interestingly enough, though, that to, to make it a hard science, you have to remove the component, the volitional component, the essence of what makes us human, our, our ability of free will, choice, reason, you know, with the, the light of the yep. soul itself in order to have these behavioral effects take place. And so the science of behaviorism is really the science of removing the human components, what Rich and, and yourself alluded to earlier. Yeah. So I just thought that was interesting. But they euphemize it by calling it a soft science, which I always get a kick out of. Soft yeah. science versus hard science. Yeah, that's good. It's where soft drinks came from. It used to be an ingredient in there too. They used some soft science instead of inside that old Coca-Cola. That's where it <laughs> comes from, the soft drink. Yeah. All right, Patrick, you've done almost five hours of radio, TV (laughs) kind of video interviews today. I think we've covered the waterfront on what's going on recently. We've let the audience know that you've got some books out there that they probably should be more familiar with because what you've been talking about for the past 45 years is uh, it's coming to a head these days. It's like a volcano that we've been talking about. Is it going to blow? Now it's blowing and people want to know who what, where, when, why, and how did this all come together? And I think you've uh, offered a substantial amount of treasure to the trove of information that's out there. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing your Nuremberg 2.0 uh, interview from this morning, your testimony. You'll see one from next week too. I'm, I'm going to be sitting at the table again uh, on both Friday and Saturday, both next Friday and Saturday. So there's going to be more information coming out. Uh, we'll be talking next, I think, about transhumanism, which is an important part of it. By the way, I'm, I'm working on a new book right now um, called uh, The Evil Twins of Technocracy and Transhumanism. And um, it's, it's going to be the third book. I'm going to make it a trilogy at this point, I think, and say I'm done. <laughs> but this is a book that needs to be written. I'm, I'm doing it in serial form. It's on Substack. And if you just go to Substack and search for Patrick Wood or Technocracy, you'll find me up at the top of the list. And um, so, you know, I'm going to take, uh, take a swing at kind of putting all the stuff we're talking about now. Transhumanism is now obviously a new addition to the technocracy meme. They're very important put together. Um, my, my ultimate conclusion on this, it'll make perfect sense about what we talked about so far is, that technocracy is to the structure of society as transhumanism is to the structure of people who will live there. 
So I think you know, it's cybernetics. scientism, the middle middle term. That's in this right. Case. Scientism, scientism, yeah, scientism, the middle term. The middle. It's a connecting the glue. glue. That binds. The yes, glue that binds is scientism. You got it. But from Klaus yeah. Schwab's point of view, and I I take this just from what he said. You know, he's creating the fourth industrial revolution, but that's not enough for him. They have to have. There has to be a special type of person who can inhabit the fourth industrial revolution, and that's where transhumanism comes in. That's where the two movements have merged. And at this point, I have to say, it's transhumanism that's leading the charge. Not necessarily technocracy, although it's still going on everywhere. But transhumanism is really what's in our face right now. That's what people are upset about, these mandatory vaccines that, you know, a lot of people just don't want to take them, but they're, you know, they're being forced. That's where the friction is taking place right now. But um, transhumanism needs to be explored and, and exported. I don't know where it's going. I did an interview <clears throat> with Steve Bannon on the war room one day. He was doing specials on Saturday on transhumanism, which I commended him for. Nobody else is talking about it anywhere, but he is. And a lot of people listen to him. And I said, Steve, that's really commendable. He, he said back, he said, <clears throat> I think by 2024 that transhumanism is going to be the major policy discussion that will be taking place in America. Uh, I thought, wow, and I still haven't processed that. I don't know what to think about it, but you know, here's a policy wonk who's kind of been on the inside of Washington, you know, they rub shoulders with all these geniuses and stuff. And, and um, he's a, he's a forward thinker. There's no doubt about it, but he believes that right now. He says this, he said, transhumanism is the most existential threat to humanity that we've ever faced. Well, that's pretty radical too. I thought, well, I agree with you there. I, it is dead serious. And they're all trying to get the shot into our arm and there's never going to be an end to it. They're going to, they're going to stick us full of needles yeah. Uh, I guess until they ran out of needles. I don't think that's well, and like Monsanto, if you've got their product in your body, do you become their intellectual property? Well, that's the issue. They have right. the precedent set, at least in agriculture. Will they, yes. will they, you know, extrapolate that to, yeah, the human <clears> come take your domain. farm because you got the seed growing in your, you know, your soil. I know. And this, yeah, there's lots of legal implications coming down. They've already set all the, 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 the doctrine in stone about intellectual property, but I'll tell you what, 10 years down the road, if they do a DNA analysis on somebody that's been taking these shots, there could well be a legal battle over that person. Yes. Because they'll be able to, you know, break down the genome and say, oh, you got this one, this one, this one, whatever. And, you know, you got two thirds of the, two thirds of the property is owned by uh, Moderna and, you know, a third of the royalty goes over here. I can see that being turned into a derivative contract on wall street yeah. <laughs> and traded you know here you want you want the moderna oh, yeah. crowd here's you know buy this package or whatever um, now in relation to technocracy and transhumanism how does cybernetics fit fit in it just like this <laughs> it, you know like like i said <clears throat> you can build a superstructure society with principles of technocracy scientific engineering mm -hmm. of whatever society, but the people who live in it have to be so embedded in it that they become part of the network. That's Klaus Schwab's internet of things, fourth well, industrial revolution. It's, it's worse yeah. than that. It's the internet yeah. of bodies now. Yeah. The internet of human beings is what I meant to say. Yeah. Was, yeah. The internet of bodies where your body will be able to communicate with other bodies in close proximity and sensors, et cetera, and your smartphone or whatever to transmit an unending stream of data up to the cloud. Yeah. Yeah. Woo. So, you know, this, I these people it's a major are major issue of identity. Yeah. They're unplugged. so unplugged. It's just, it's inconceivable how far removed from reality they are. 
But good old Elon Musk, maybe I'll close with this. Musk is a technocrat extraordinaire. His grandfather, you know, was in charge of technocracy in, in Canada for the 30s and 40s. He grew up in a technocrat home. And <clears throat> good old Musk says he doesn't believe in global warming. But we can get, we, you know, then people will say, oh, thank goodness he doesn't believe in global warming. He must be one of mine or ours. And then he says, no, but, but humanity is doomed. It really is doomed. Well, why, Elon? He says, because the sun is expanding and we're all going to burn. <laughs> oh, really? So this is new. So he says, the only, what's the solution now? He says, the only solution is that man needs to, to fly to the stars and get to, get to outer space as quick as he can. And like he wants to get to Mars? Off the planet? But he's scared of AI, which is rightfully yeah. so. Um, but you ain't getting to Mars without AI. I'm so sorry. none of this makes any a, sense. Maybe they know. It's like, okay, so is making a serious case for one thing, says our only solution is to go to Mars. False technology. I'm sorry. That is not the solution that humans need to hear about right now. We live here. We're stuck here. And there's nothing wrong with our planet. Absolutely nothing wrong with it in, at its core. The only thing that's wrong with it is a bunch of nutcakes that say there's something wrong with it and they can fix it. And they've got the answer. It reminds me of snake oil again. We, you, whatever ails you, we got the answer. We can fix you up. Just sign here. Uh, it's not going, going, going good. We need to get these people out of policy positions in society throughout the world, not just here. They need to be driven out, not just on a national level. Every community has people like, you know, baby Fauci's, mini-me's. Oh, yeah. These people need to be run out of city hall. They need to be run out of county, you know, the county supervisors, et cetera, and get this crazy, crazy ideology out of our society. Just drive it out. Drive these people out. Drop you can't hurt China. them. You, you know, it's not hurting them physically to say, you don't have a seat at the table anymore. I know Noam Chomsky's like, let them starve and Australia's build, building camps. I think what you're proposing is very Christian and polite. Just well, we need a better thing. way. I, look, I don't want to be out shooting people. That's not my thing. Me neither. Yeah, I don't I think most people want to do that. No, most people. But I hope so. I hope that's the case. These people don't have a right to sit at the table of public policy. They're, they're stark raving mad. Were you ever an Alfred Hitchcock fan by any chance? That I have, I'm yes, because I have Hitchcock Truffaut here on my table. <laughs> okay, and it's, it's awesome. There was yeah. an episode on yeah. the Alfred Hitchcock Hour once where there was an asylum, old-fashioned asylum, white cockade, you know, two-story, whatever, and people would bring their relatives in that were going Lulu Bells, and they'd check them into the asylum, and they would put them in a padded cell and take care of them, shoot them full of drugs and shock therapy, whatever the case was. The inmates got together and hatched a plot <clears throat> to take over the asylum. And they did it one day. They hatched their plot. And only Alfred Hitchcock could figure this one out. They, they kidnapped all of the staff and changed clothes with them. So all of a sudden, the inmates are wearing the nice starched white coat with the pocket protector and the stethoscope and everything else. And the inmates are wearing the straight jackets and the baggy pants and all that kind of, and they threw them in the padded cell and they're all screaming, let me out, let me out. It's unfair. I'm not crazy. You know, this is exactly what the crazy people were saying a week before <laughs> you know, they weren't supposed to be in there. So 
the real staff is, is locked away in the cells and, and the, the, the crazy people have taken over the asylum and all this, this, the hall positions and the nurses and everything else. And they're doing this crazy stuff to these patients, killing them along the way. And so then along comes a new patient, <laughs> you know, Susie, you know, Mrs. Smith or whatever brings in Uncle Mo and Uncle Mo has just completely lost his marbles. And he's like, you know, flipping out. He's schizophrenic or whatever. And oh, doctor, doctor, Uncle Mo needs help. Can you help him? Oh, yes, ma'am. We can really help him. You know, and he's winking to the other nutcakes behind him. So Uncle Mo comes into the hospital and uh, they sign all the paperwork. Oh, see you later, Uncle Mo. We're so glad you're in good hands. And they grab him, put his put their arm around his shoulder and say, come back here, Mo. We got to tell you something. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they gave him, him a charge. white coat and a yeah. pocket protector and a stethoscope. And they assigned him to another place in the hospital. <laughs> it's like, it's like in our case right now, that's kind of funny, I guess, but in our case right now, the inmates have taken over the asylum. That's my bottom line assessment. The, oh, look over the whole thing. The inmates have taken over the asylum and they don't. So belong. we shouldn't be following these people unquestioningly. We should be a little incredulous and ask some questions. Oh, it's like a variation right. of the Milgram's experiment. Yeah. Yes. It's like Stanford yeah. prison experiment uh, or Stanford prison. Sure. Yeah. 204 countries doing it at once. Plain <laughs> lockstep. Wink, wink. In lockstep. Yes. Yes. Right. Yes, on. All right, Patrick, thank you so much for sitting in with us tonight. Yeah, thank you very much. It's, it's always a pleasure. Like to talk to you. You're always very well informed. And uh, I do want to read your new book because I haven't, I haven't read you. I have to admit, I send, send, me, your, send me your address. I'll send you a book. Oh, right on. Thank you so awesome. much. It's very yeah. kind of you. Be glad to. All right. And um, links for I your Nuremberg too from today. A lot of do you have the link about this? So good. Did, did you have the links from what you talked about today with uh, the oh. German lawyers? Yeah. I want to feature that next week on the show <clears> as well. Get that on the show. It's, it's yeah. grand jury with a hyphen dot net. Excellent. Grand-jury.net. It's got all the videos listed there, the schedule, and you can listen to the oh, old perfect. ones. So Here we go. And where's the best place for people to get your books? Do you want them going uh, to Amazon well, or your you site? Know, technocracy.news is fine. I, I sell books and I like to sign them when I, you know, when I send them out, but you can go to any electronic place or even a real bookstore and, and order them. You'll get them. Um, and I, I hate to use the the A word, but you know you can get it there too. We say um, yeah, we say A word and Bezos because we make fun of them a lot on here. Right, but I know. I, I technocracy don't like it, but dot news, technocracy dot news, exactly. Right. That's where you'll sign books instead of getting yep. them through one of those other vendors who extortion their their sales yep. and charge. <clears> and my new book on Substack, by the way. All right, great. Yeah, and we're going to link your profile, yeah. your Substack in the Sub, uh, show notes. Patrickwood.substack. Patrick oh, you make it easy. Just my name. Uh, yeah, Patrickwood.substack. All right, I got fantastic. Get yourself some rest. I know you got a big week ahead of you. Thank you so you know much. What? Tomorrow's a holiday. I'm going to take one too. Oh, there you go. Fantastic. Do it. Thanks. Uh, super Have a great night, This is Patrick. amazing. Thank Enjoyed you very it. much. Yeah, right on. Peace. All right. Well, that was a uh, rip roar and we almost went two hours. We did almost two it's hours. About on two that. hours. Yeah. It's hard not to talk to Patrick for at least two hours. Well, we could have kept if, going. Yeah. I mean, I didn't even he, get to bring out. I, he I has a ton of knowledge. over Washington. Yeah. I was going, you know, I guess we'll have to have him back and ask more questions. That's there what that's go. all about.
Well, he's he he's a wealth of knowledge while at the same time he's very conversational and approachable and he can just have like it's it's he sort of bridges both gaps. Sometimes you get individuals that have studied so much that they can be a little bit laborious in the way they present the information, a little bit sort of cut and dry. But he's not like that. I feel like he tells he's yeah, like we hardly like, scratch the surface. That wasn't right, oh, like yeah. the we can get into thing. the details because it's like the, yeah. <clears throat> he showed up early because he's a professional. So then I felt the need to like not waste his time. So we went to him. But I, I probably should have told you guys working and playing and listening or watching this. That he started in the 1970s with uh, Anthony Sutton writing the trilaterals over Washington. And it's all about the trilateral commission. And the cool thing about that was um, they went and started doing radio interviews and calling these guys out and getting them on the radio and debating them like in the early 1980s. So there was no internet. There was no exchange of information. Like if, if these guys hadn't hunted those guys out and put them on the record, you would still hear about trilateral today. Like it's a ghost story. Correct. Like so for, so for so many years, Bilderberg was like, that doesn't exist. It's not real. And the quotes fake. And no, these people have had legit secret meetings for almost 50 years, 60 years now for you know, that group, Bilderberg and world economic forums, 50 years and trilaterals, 50 years. Okay. What they're doing today is not new. It's not like they didn't just make it up last, you know, cause uh, Trump, you know, was going to win or something. They, they had to come up with, no, no, they, they planned to do this the whole time. Fauci said up front before Trump came in, he will face a pandemic of unprecedented yada, yada, yada. Right. So Patrick's right. They had a plan. And the people who had the plan are in, in control of the res, like the the response to the, well, the pharmaceutical plan. I think he aptly noted probably ninety two was when they we sort of deified the pharmaceutical country co- companies. But in the seventies and eighties, they had an economic plan more generally. They didn't maybe know exactly how it manifest fifty years later, but they certainly had a vision for what they wanted. And they well, would use they whatever strategies. All our- manufacturing right. to china because made us dependent you know, harvard mba you know people <laughs> are going in there consulting and say well, i'll move it all to china because they got slave labor over there yeah. and it, you know so and we're gonna start printing money like crazy if you want to go pay slave Red labor yeah. you're going to get loss of your business at some point because this you know at some point you everything goes over there and you yeah. can't compete with it and now americans don't have manufacturing and jobs and you know it's like ready player one here's the metaverse we're going to put right. you in your matrix pod. You're going to be in this gelatinous fluid. You're going to be hooked up to your metaverse. All your needs will be met and you'll be a battery for Klaus's spaceship. Sorry. Spaceship earth is spaceship. Metaverse. In the matrix. What were the batteries powering? <laughs> I think it was Klaus's spaceship. That's where no, he wears no. the outfit when he's on, de- on the bridge. <laughs> oh, he's been dreaming of captain Kirk, something fierce. Yeah, that's a whole different rendition or idea around Captain Kirk. My goodness. Spaceship yeah. metaverse. So yeah, much for the well. enterprise. Wow. Yeah. All right. So we have all these clips we have to get to tonight, but it was nice. Oh, what do you got, Joshua? We got the uh, art gallery promo. You're on it. All right. Uh, the dates, it's coming up in July. So you guys have several months notice. So this is both for people who want to attend the event in Pueblo, Colorado in July. But moreover, it's for the artists who might want to have some sort of uh, installation of their truth art at this truth art event at the Blowback Gallery, hosted by Jeff Medine, who I've known for uh, uh, probably 10 years. He's been a Tragedy and Hope subscriber, uh, so, uh associate producer for the ultimate history lesson and uh, a fantastic artist in his own right. He's putting together 
um, an art show that focuses on freedom as opposed to slavery, because the art show that's showing everywhere else is on slavery. So he figured he'd do something on freedom. I do plan on having an installation there at the Truth Art Show, but we do have a three-minute clip that we kind of, oh, we kind of twisted Jeff's arm to give us the description. Um, And uh, let's see, let's see how that plays. Jeff Medine, Truth Blowback Gallery. Hello, I want to invite you to a Truth art show in my gallery in Pueblo, Colorado. The name of the gallery is Blowback. There's no W in blow. Blowback is a term originating from the American intelligence community, denoting the unintended consequences, unwanted side effects, or suffered repercussions of a covert operation that fall back on those responsible for the aforementioned operations. I say blowback doesn't have to come from covert occulted operations. It also comes from public education system that does not teach critical thinking. Poverty, homelessness, industrial food, drug addiction, overregulation without enforcement, wars and political corruption. This show is gonna open on July 1st and will run through the 29th. I woke up one morning in early October of 21 with the word truth etched on the back of my eyelids. Now, shortly after waking up, truth wouldn't leave me alone. I actually started to you know, examine the word truth and thought that it would make for a really great art show. I mean, imagine the possibilities. Truth is a, is a really deep mind of unlimited possibilities. How many times each day do we use the word truth in a sentence? Uh, I imagine a show with artwork made from every type of traditional media, including performance art, comedy, video, animation, spoken word, installation art, both interior and exterior. Blowback is over 5,000 square feet and includes a stage, lights, projector, 32-track mixed board. We have a fenced-in private lot across the street. We can have really large installations. No one would mess with them at night. We have smooth white walls, high-quality lighting. Uh, I see the show serving as an indelible timestamp, capturing what the hell we've been going through the last couple of years. And even before that, if you care, I you know, whatever. Uh, if you want to participate, send an email to blowbackgallery at gmail.com. That's blow. There's no W in blow. And I'll send you the prospectus. Also, if you want to check out the gallery, go to our website, blowbackgallery.com, and you can tour the gallery through our Matterport 360-degree drive-through view. You can see it in top view. You can zoom down into each one of the galleries. You can see the, probably the last four shows there that we've had. I'm hoping that you provide art that is for sale. It's a 60-40 split with 60% going to the artists. If you're unsure and you want to talk to me in person, I'm good for that. Uh, Blowback mission statement's been on the wall since the gallery opened in 2017, reads, to provide an uncensored platform that may challenge what we believe to be true. There's also a saying I want to read from Al Wei. He's a dissident Chinese artist who really sums it up well. The purpose of art is the fight for freedom. I hope you find the subject compelling enough to participate, and I welcome the time to meet you and see your art in person. Peace. uncensored platform so if you're in the audience and you got some sort of artistry about you that reflects truth you're welcome to uh submit to jeff and if you're one of my colleagues that happens to tune into grand theft world maybe you got something up your sleeve that could be put in at that installation and uh if you're looking to be in the audience it's always classy to go to an art gallery find some friends 
book some time in your schedule, go do a fun thing. And, um, without freedom, we don't have, we don't have a whole lot of things in life worth pursuing or savoring. And you can't have that freedom without truth. And art is a lie that is used to show you that which exists, right? It's never the thing it's portraying. It's saying, go find that thing in reality. Uh, so Jeff Medine, Blowback Gallery. Again, there's no W in Blowback. That W, when it comes to Blow, that's owned by Hunter Biden. He's got exclusive uses over B-L-O-W. So uh, check it out. <laughs> All right. So now I got this far in the episode, Tony. I realized, like, I don't know, before we had Patrick on that I didn't even bring my tablet down. So I don't have the Notion show card in front of me. So yeah, what are our well, options? Yeah. we got to cover me, the Bay Rigs. Yeah, yeah, we're going to definitely, I think that should be where we focus the majority of our time in this section, but I know we also, fantastic, by the way, I just want to point out, Patrick Wood, you showed me him 10 years ago, obviously, you also made me aware of Anthony Sutton's work. Um, I watched an interview he did, like, with you 10 years ago, and he just blew me away with his knowledge. I just, I love him to death and can't thank him enough for coming on, but for people that are really interested in some, let me put myself back on camera, people interested in the minutiae, some of the more, the, the details that you can extricate from his work. Check out the interview that you you did with him. I mean, you, you did back in like what 2014, 2015. Yeah, sure. it, it, yeah, exactly. I mean, you edited that whole thing with, in the classic form of adding all the footnotes. It's on YouTube. It's all well sourced. Under Technocracy Rising, it says Technocracy Rising, Patrick yep. Wood. So you want to get more details, and it's you know incredibly it's a rich tapestry and landscape that you can spend enormous amount of time, uh, sort of understanding the culmination of what's taking place today. With that, um, just because we had such a long interview, just to take a little breather for us, <laughs> I suggest the Jeffrey Jackson report to get us kicked off. Then we move into the, because that'll Trump give us the landscape of all of the stuff that dealing with the vaccine lockdown mandate section. Then we'll get into the, the trucker scape. Yes. And then we'll go, we'll do deep dives into that, so to speak. Um, cool. That'll give us some time to take a little breather. Yeah, let's do, uh, this is from this week's The High Wire with Dell Bigtree. This is the Jackson report with Jeffrey Jackson. As soon as LD finds it, because we didn't tell him we were going to play that clip. Now he's like, it's, he has it. He has it there. He's got it. Yeah, yeah. he's got it. He has to probably get the timestamp, but he's got it there. I got it for you. Got to remember to unmute. Here we go. Thank you, Superman. Truth. If you don't know who I'm talking about by now, then you'll just have to wait. But first, it's time for the Jackson Report. Jeffrey Jackson, man, I'm telling you, the you know the investigations you've been doing, the things that you're working on, um, it just we're just getting deeper and deeper. And just when I think it's all sort of maybe going to go away and we can act like this was a dream, <laughs> it just feels like it, it gets stranger and stranger by the day. Oh, I have some interesting stuff for you today, Dell. Thanks for having me on. Um, well, there's a growing trend in media, and uh, really throughout North America, we're seeing it, and quite honestly, it's refreshing. A lot of the stories are centered around something that's very near and dear to our hearts here at the high wire. And they look like this. Take a look. Okay. Just days after getting their second COVID-19 vaccine, two teenage boys died in their sleep. 
the study confirms that Pfizer's vaccines led to the deaths of the teenagers. Whiteman was diagnosed with Guillain-Barre syndrome, a rare neurological disorder. It's been linked to the AstraZeneca vaccine. The CDC announced last year the vaccine may result in a rare side effect that causes heart inflammation. The federal government says they're safe, but gives them warning labels of what could lead to death. Health Canada says there have been relatively higher rates of Guillain-Barre syndrome since the vaccine program started. The CDC says young men ages 16 to 39 are considered the highest risk group for pericarditis and myocarditis, which causes heart inflammation. Just days after receiving the AstraZeneca vaccine, he started having excruciating back pain and then came the tingles on his face. It's been a roller coaster for me, so it hit me hard right away, so I had the paralysis from the waist down and um, the full facial paralysis. She got the second dose of the Pfizer vaccine back in May. She says not even 24 hours later. I was having shortness of breath, heart palpitations, like my heart was beating out of my chest. It just really felt like I was gonna die. Cammie was told she had pericarditis, a known side effect of the COVID-19 vaccine. It seems a little more common than people are realizing because everyone I talked to knows someone that had some type of reaction. Wow, that is a shift for sure. We were just reporting another story last week. They are starting to report vaccine injury, and you know how reticent they are to do that, so it really makes you wonder what kind of flood is hitting these news agencies that they just can't stay away from it any longer. Yeah, and you know, all of those stories for people I just started watching the high wire for the for for, you know, the foreseeable past, these were anti-vax misinformation stories. So these would not even have gotten on right. air. And uh, these were left to citizen journalists or parents who have witnessed the injuries in their children to really try to report this and, you know, against some strong headwinds. So this is huge. And, and you know, even it appears that the days of fawning over Dr. Fauci are over as well. So we have Jesse Waters at Fox, uh, uh, host there, very popular show. He is freely taking a crack at Fauci, not holding back whatsoever. Take a listen to this. We were lied to. He said it was 15 days and it ended up being like 15 months because remember, a lot of the Democrat governors stayed locked down and then all the scaredy cats continued to stay locked down. Here's was Fauci's plan. Shut down the entire U.S. economy. It's never been done before and told everybody to quarantine, including healthy people. And then he didn't do anything for early treatment at all. And then he says, stay inside with a mask on. And if you catch covid, wait until you can't breathe very well. Then get yourself to a hospital and strap yourself to a ventilator. Yeah, that was. Oh, and then wait a couple of years for a vaccine, which I get a cut from. That is insane. America has the most deaths of any country as a percentage and as a total. And he could have come out early and said, take zinc, take vitamin D, get outside, eat healthy, exercise, do all of those things that are helping with early treatment. He didn't do any of that. Even today, doctors are still prescribing hydroxychloroquine ivermectin still doing it he didn't get on the phone he didn't create a hotline to these doctors they were on the front lines during the pandemic hey what's working what's not working he didn't do that he just said wait for my vaccine and stay six feet apart what he did to the entire world was even worse this plunged like 300 million people into poverty starvation malnourishment what he did to our kids what he did to the supply chain alcoholism drug addiction child abuse and think about all the small businesses he shut down. And 
It's like the biggest transfer of wealth in world history. He takes $4 trillion away from workers, and then about $4 trillion goes to billionaires. The billionaires and all these big tech, big media giants, they got super rich, and they got more powerful, and then we just divided against each other. Remember, he screwed up the election. You know, we all don't trust the science now because the science was all wrong. I mean, this guy really screwed up. Man, I think what you just did was uncover the biggest fan of the high wire we've ever seen. <laughs> Amazing, though. I mean, he laid it all out. I, I can probably take out my microphone and go home now. But that is it's incredible, really, to see that, right, on, on, a, on a television set here in the United States of America. Uh, the truth seems to be cracking through. And what we're really talking about here is a sweeping change in the media landscape. So at the yeah. beginning here, we saw local news. Now we see Fox News. And perhaps the person that took the ball and ran with it the furthest over these last couple of weeks is Bill Maher. He's the HBO host of uh, Real Time with Bill Maher. And he just he just went for it. Listen to this. OK. Justin Trudeau. What? You laugh it, but Justin Trudeau, I mean, I thought he was kind of a cool guy. Then I started to read what he, he said. This is a couple of weeks ago. He was, or maybe this is September, but he was talking about people who are not vaccinated. He said they don't believe in science. They're often misogynistic, often racist. No, they're mm, not. That was not that, smart of him at all. Right. He said, but they take up space. Mm. And oh. with that, we have to make a choice in terms of a leader as a country. Do we tolerate these people? It's like, tolerate them? Now you do that's, sound like no, Hitler. That's, mm -hmm. that, that was... uh, and recently he talked about them holding holding unacceptable views well wow. yeah. i'm surprised to hear that trudeau said those things you didn't see the blackface i mean he, <laughs> he's, he's, uh, no i'm kidding about it. I'm, not, I'm not i mean i was not a good look for him but i i, I mean uh, come on i mean that's i think what gets under people's skin I mean, from Jesse Waters at Fox over to probably the world's most famous liberal making a Nazi comparison of all things. Absolutely incredible. I mean, it, I don't think, you know, I, I feel like, you know, where we were once lonely, Jeffrey, uh, it's getting kind of warm and crowded in here. <laughs> yeah, and you can see uh, the guest, that was Marianne, Marianne Williamson there. Yeah. She didn't really talk too much. I mean, these are some big words coming out of the, these hosts' mouth, and yeah. um, they're really they're really pushing the issue. But let's jump over to Canada. This okay. is, you know, third week ongoing. We have this truckers rally. Things are happening as, you know, by the moment. So uh, at the beginning of this week, Prime Minister Trudeau, he invoked the Emergency Powers Act. This is a very rare situation in Canada. It has not been done recently. Uh, here's the headline. Canada's Trudeau invokes emergency powers to quell trucker COVID protests. This is These are broad federal powers, um, really, to restore order. And immediately, uh, there was already pushback. So we have the Civil Liberties Association in Canada. They are, their headline here warns normalizing emergency legislation threatens democracy. They took to their Twitter account and said this, quote, the federal government has not met the threshold necessary to invoke the Emergencies Act. This law creates a high and clear standard for good reason. The act allows government to bypass ordinary democratic processes. This standard has not been met. And they went on basically to say that governments regularly deal with difficult situations. Wow. And by by using these powers so freely, uh, it's going to really, it's really going to have an issue with uh, on civil li liberties for people. And uh, just recently, the uh, Canada's association, the um, uh, civil liberties association, announced that they're going to have a press conference at 4 p.m. Eastern today to announce wow. uh, planned litigation 
of what they call significant public interest. So it looks like they may be planning some legal action here against the Trudeau's government. So Trudeau literally right now, all he has to do is just say, I'm not going to mandate the vaccine for truckers that sit all alone in their trucks, driving across the country in the cold, a vaccine that does not stop Omicron. He himself just got sick you know, in the middle of this and had to quarantine himself. So there's absolutely no purpose to this vaccine. But instead of just letting go of this failed vaccine, he is going to bring in martial law, override democracy, act like there is a war at hand and take away people's civil liberties and rights in order to get his way. I mean, absolutely um, atrocious. It's, it's, it's horrifying. Right. And throughout the entire process, we've watched him divide the country with with really divisive rhetoric. I mean, we we're not going to go into it here, but it's been it's been pretty interesting to watch. And it's turned a lot of people against him and, and really awoken the rest of the world. Now, even Biden administration, it, they appear to have goaded him into this uh, into this movement to, for these Emergency Powers Act. And this is the headline right before Trudeau announced his Emergency Powers Act. Biden urges Trudeau to use federal powers to end bridge blockade. Remember, Trudeau essentially did nothing. Thing for, for, for weeks right. until this Emergency Powers Act was enabled. So even Biden getting in there, but it seems so our like... our own, the beacon of light and hope for freedom and liberty, just said to Canada, go ahead and take away the people's rights. Just bring in federal power. That's the best way to handle this. What's the Constitution? Right. What are civil liberties? Forget it. Throw that out, Trudeau. It, yeah. just, just, just do what we would do. I, I mean, is that, is that what we're to understand? This is what the United States of America would do? I mean, that that was a, that was a suggestion given from the Biden administration is yeah. to use these federal powers. And that was the one they chose. That's what Trudeau chose. So, you know, it, it appears that that was what was being pushed behind closed doors. And a lot of uh, premiers, a lot of territories in Canada also immediately reacted to this. So here's the headline on that one. Uh, Caution must be taken against overreach. Premiers react to Trudeau's call for emergencies uh, act. And it says federal uh, opposition parties say uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's decision to invoke the Emergencies Act is a proof of failure in dealing with convoy blockades across the country. Trudeau's proposal was also quickly dismissed by the premiers of Quebec, Saskatchewan, Alberta, Manitoba and uh, understand that as these, uh, these uh, emergency powers were coming in and they were to stop the blockades at the border crossings to America at Coates and, and the Ambassador Bridge, those both of those uh, protests had been broken up by the police. The police did their job, which they were tasked to do. And the, the protests were peacefully, they were peaceful to begin with, but they were peacefully broken up. Some There were some arrests, but you see here this video, this is Rebel News Canada. They've been using great reporting. Um, they brought in uh, heavily armored uh, police, but they did break up these protests. So there really wasn't a clear and present danger at this point uh, besides peaceful protests in Ottawa right. and some other cities. The, the border crossings were, were open at that point. So there, there's a big question of why this was implemented and still is being it, it taken to another step. And I want to bring that up here. Now we have Christina Freeland. She is the uh, the deputy prime minister in Canada. She's the, also the minister of finance. She came out and upped the ante after Trudeau came out with his Emergencies Act. And this is what it sounded like in her press conference. As of today, all crowdfunding platforms and the payment service providers they use must register with FinTrack and they must report large and suspicious transactions to FinTrack. This will help mitigate the risk that these platforms receive illicit funds, increase the quality and quantity of intelligence received by FinTrack, and make more information available 
to support investigations by law enforcement into these illegal blockades. So they basically want to have the name and number and address of every single person that donates to anything so that they can investigate and, and track you. I mean, these are this is what we've been warning about, folks. This is, you know, the, the destruction of your freedom, your destruction of freedom of speech, uh, the, the right to assemble, all of these things. And now they are tearing apart. Uh, technologies that allow us to, well, what are we doing here, right? I mean, for those that donated, donating to those truckers that don't have a job because they are being forced to take uh, a product that causes myocarditis, can risk their lives, uh, and yet uh, and has no ability to stop the virus at, at the current moment. Because of that, uh, we, you know, people have been donating and giving to these truckers to keep them fed and keep them warm. Uh, and now they basically want to go after and investigate anyone that helped them out. I mean, it's really, really scary times. And, and for those people out there that, you know, have got Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies, you have to really ask yourself, is the writing on the wall? Are they going to start trying to track every single transaction that they don't currently have control over right now? Um, this is where we all really need to start stepping up to the table and having these conversations. Very, very important conversations. Yeah, and this this marks a high watermark for a financially authoritarian directive by government during this COVID crisis. We've seen heavy-handed physical movements by Australia yeah. and China, you know, literally beating their people, beating their citizens for protesting. But this is a financial movement that has a lot of people's heads, you know, scratching their heads. And it's important to note here, Freeland is a uh, board of trustee member for the World Economic Forum, and we covered that no many times. No way. On the show. Uh, so that is a, that is a data point worth mentioning because a lot of their um, endpoints for the Great Reset involve, you know, complete control of financial transactions and digital currencies. Now, there's a lot to her press conference, but she 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 announced that she was expanding what was called the Proceeds of Crime, Money Laundering and Terrorist Financing Act to include cryptocurrency, to include oh. crowdfunding. So I looked into this and it only has this act only has two objectives. The first objective is to implement specific measures to detect and deter money laundering and financing of terrorist activities. And the second is to respond to the threat posed by organized crime. And it goes on more there. So basically terrorist activities and organized crime are now, that umbrella has expanded to involve truckers and people protesting for public health measures. Again, this, this is absolutely unprecedented what is happening right now. Yeah. And we've, we have more here. This is, uh, I believe, Bloomberg talking about this Trudeau's anti-protest law. And it says sweeps across Canada's finance sector. So now this is the most recent headlines. It says here the new rules make demands of a broad list of entities, including banks, investment firms, credit unions, loan companies, securities dealers, fundraising platforms, insurance companies, and fraternal benefit societies. They must determine whether they're in, quote, possession or control of property of a person who's attending an illegal protest or providing supplies to demonstrators. And if you read this article further, it goes in and these banks are saying we've, we've received no instructions from the government. We don't know what to do. If we suspend these accounts, if we seize these assets, you know, th there's legal considerations we have to worry about now. So the, the banks are kind of left swirling in the wind at this point. It, it seems like a really big deal that's happening there right now that this wow. is still going. Absolutely. Really scary stuff.
And, and Freeland also mentioned just recently in a press conference, this was today, we don't have the clip of it, but she said that accounts have been frozen, crypto wallets have been turned over to the financial, the fintech financial regulators by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, that's their federal police force. So these accounts of, she said, individuals and entities, so I'm guessing businesses as well, mm-hmm. are, are, are have been frozen. And then this brings us to another uh, fundraising platform we, we've uh, talked about, Give, Send, Go. Yeah. They, ha- they, they recently had a hack. So they were hacked by you know unknown hackers. Give, Send, Go, back online after hack, doxing of Freedom Convoy donors. So a spreadsheet essentially was released with the donors' names, their addresses, wow. um, and, and how much they... they um, they donated. And what was happening at that point was allegedly the Washington Post was now starting to contact these these uh, uh, people that were donating. This was a Twitter post uh, allegedly having a letter here. It says uh, Washington Post is contacting people, asking them what motivated them to donate to the truckers. This one here was for a $40 contribution. Allegedly, they were trying to trying to get in these people's business. Um, and even even Minnesota Rep. Ilian Omar scolds journalists for promoting harassment of Canadian uh, Freedom Convoy donors, calling it unconscionable. So th- it, this thing is racing out of control really Amazing. quick. And, and well, there, I mean, just because, I mean, the, talk about a witch hunt or, you know, inciting, uh, you know, fear and loathing into people. I mean, this is what you're afraid of, right? This, this is a private company. Instead of the Washington Post saying, this is an illegal destruction of a private company that allows people to donate money to people they care about. Uh, instead, they are going to investigate and, I guess, out people that were a part of this. I mean, take this illegal information from a basically a theft of a company and then put it out. I mean, what kind of world are we living in? I mean, it really is uh, dystopian at the very least. Right, right. And understand, too, the media picture that's been painted, as well as what has come out of Trudeau's mouth, is all of the, the truckers are violent extremists, right wing, you know, use whatever word, buzzword you want. Yeah. So when you start doxing these people's addresses and then the media is adding fuel to that fire, that that is is a bad situation about to happen. So it's, it's being good. That's called out by a lot of people. Yeah. Wow. Really shocking. And shame on you, Washington Post and all of those that would sort of reveal the private information of human beings. I understand that Washington Post, I think, put out articles putting people's names. Those people are coming under attack. That means we now have a uh, media uh, arm uh, here in the United States of America that is promoting violence, is promoting acts of violence against individuals in America and Canada. Uh, Really shocking, really, really shocking stuff right now. And I hope they're held accountable. All right. Yeah. And Del, I want to switch gears here in a big way. Okay. Um, there's some headlines that are coming out that has have us all falling off our chairs. We, we really don't know what to make of them. I did some digging into it. And so these are the headlines that are coming out just this week. Discovery of HIV variant shows virus can evolve to be more severe and contagious. So there was a recent cluster of about 17 samples, according to this article, that showed a lot of unusual mutations. 15 of those samples came from the Netherlands. And uh, there was a study that was done. So this study co-author, it says in this article here, his name is Chris Wyman. He's from the University of Oxford. He and his co-authors wanted to know more. So they dived into another Dutch study with more data. They discovered a total of 109 people who had this particular variant and never knew it, dating all the way back to 1992. The variant probably emerged in the late 80s. Wyman says picking up steam around 2000 and then eventually slowing down around 2010. 
goes on to say, people with this variant have a viral load that is three to four times higher than usual for those with HIV. This characteristic means the virus progresses into serious illness twice as fast and also makes it more contagious. So stopping right there, yeah. when we're reading this, you start scratching your head because you go, wait a minute, these people have been carrying this 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 highly contagious variant that, that goes into serious disease very quickly for 30 years and <laughs> they didn't know it? Right. Well, it didn't seem that serious. I mean, it's, it's really. And I've been hearing people talk about this. Like, did you hear about the the virulent a, you know, HIV that's sweeping the country right now? And so, you know, I'm glad you're looking into it. Right. When you see stuff like that, now we got to look into it because right. that doesn't make any sense. And so there's another headline right here. This is uh, for heterosexual people. HIV now infects more heterosexual people than gay or bisexual men. We need a new strategy. Well, that's interesting. Why is it doing that? And then we have uh, Prince Harry comes out just recently, and he says this on an interview. Take a look. Every single one of us has a duty, or at least an opportunity, to, to get tested ourselves, to make it easier for everybody else to get tested. And then it just becomes a regular thing like anything else. But if we're not getting tested and we're like, oh, you know, HIV, that's not, that, how could that possibly affect me? That's affecting, you know, people over there. And it's like, no, it could affect you. I mean, what happened to, you know, sort of safe sex campaigns and things like that? Now we're going to go into testing. We just got out of what COVID testing and now let's get into HIV testing and maybe we can create a pandemic around this. Right. And, you know, they're talking about getting those oh, HIV wow. tests as commonly as COVID tests. So, again, you start looking at this and we got to wonder. So it brought us it brought me back. It started thinking we covered this before when it came to COVID. Where have where else have we heard about HIV during this COVID outbreak for the last two years? We dug into the archives. Take a look. The New York Post. Uh, Mind-blowing headlines. Some COVID-19 vaccines could increase risk of HIV, researchers warn. Now, what they're talking about in this article, it centers around what's called the adenovirus. Um, and it's a common, uh, it's a group of viruses that cause anything from flu-like symptoms, pink eye, uh, common cold, bronchitis, pneumonias, things like that. Stuff we're exposed to quite a bit, so, uh, things people typically have symptoms for. And when they make these vaccines, they use a genetically modified version of this. It's called um, adenovirus type 585. And what and this, this is, what this is this specifically the viral vector vaccines we're talking about, like AstraZeneca's, where they're using it sort of like a capsule to, you know, deliver a gene and a message to the, the, the cells? Yeah, absolutely. They've tried this before over a decade ago in international studies for HIV acquisition. So they were they had vaccines to, to prevent against HIV. And what they were finding was that men who were being vaccinated actually had a higher prevalence of HIV. And again, they were trying to stop HIV acquisition. Right. So they're, they're finding that this vaccine um, it makes men more susceptible, according to the data, for HIV. And let's look at The Lancet. So the, the Lancet came out with a correspondence. It was really a warning. And it said, use of adenovirus type 5 vector vaccines, a cautionary tale. These are four veteran researchers. And they, they concluded, or I should say warned, on the basis of these findings, we are concerned that use of an 85 vector for immunization against severe acute respiratory syndrome uh, coronavirus 2 could similarly increase the risk of HIV-1 acquisition among men who receive the vaccine. Wow. I mean, I remember we covered it. I didn't remember exactly, you know, sort of how we looked at it. But, um, 
you know, that's right. I mean, there were warnings from top scientists using this technology could lead to an increased risk of HIV, which it's amazing putting that together right now when we look at the climate of how uh, these headlines are coming out as we speak. Right. And and just to be clear, we're, we're kind of just going into an open investigation here, throwing yeah. out all the cards on the table saying, this is what we found. Let's talk about it. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's hard to believe that was two, almost two years ago. But let's talk over the last two years, how many times HIV has come up in association with COVID-19 and this virus. So it really started in uh, January 2020. It didn't even have the name COVID-19 yet. It was still just this virus we found. It's starting to spread. It's in China. Some Indian researchers came out and published a paper. They looked at the genome of the, the virus that was circulating, and they called this paper Uncanny Similarity of Unique Inserts in a 2019 NCOV-V spike protein to HIV-1, GP120, and GAG. And they say, importantly, amino acid residues in all the four inserts have identity or similarity to those in the HIV-1 GP120 or HIV-1 GAG. And so that paper... I mean, that was really that. the first sort of statement that suggested this may have been lab created. I mean, it came out super early. I remember talking about that. Maybe this came from a lab because it had this HIV sort of inserted uh, protein in there. Right. And it's important to note that paper was retracted. We really never heard from those authors again on this topic. Right. They just disappeared. At the uh, same time, we, by the way, everybody that spoke of a lab origin was attacked. People, scientists were losing their license. We lost our YouTube channel. We lost our Facebook channel for discussing it. And now it's the number one reigning theory in the world by almost all of science. Right. Exactly. Okay. Great. That's a great point. Yeah. And so onto Australia. Australia tried to make an in-house kind of vaccine just uh, in their own continent. And they had to suspend that. And this was the headline here. This is still 2020 we're talking here. Australia halts local COVID-19 vaccine development due to false HIV positives. So what they were doing is they were stabilizing the spike protein of the coronavirus with a, a small protein from HIV. It was acting like a clamp to stabilize and hold it together. And what that was doing was it was it was uh, when these people got tested, the PCR test, they were showing these positives and we were being told they're false positives for HIV because right. they were picking up that residue and that immune response from from those from those points. But now let's let's go from a little deeper from headline dot connecting into some actual some deeper science, I should say. Okay. So this is Forbes and this is kind of bringing it back, picking back up where we left off in 2020. This is Forbes mainstream headline. Researchers warned some COVID-19 vaccines could increase risk of HIV infection. And of course, they're talking about uh, Merck's HIV step trial and Fambili study. These are the two studies that were in the Lancet that we talked about. Okay. And th those are those are the authors uh, that that set out this warning in the the Lancet, and they said basically the use of these adenovirus five vectored vaccines um, may cause HIV acquisition, and that's what they found. So in like 2007, they were doing these studies uh, in Africa and other parts of the world, and they found that you know just like I was speaking about in 2020. Back yeah. to the future here, where they, that that was increasing the HIV acquisition among the people that were getting these vaccines. So these researchers came out in 2020 as as the COVID vaccines were being produced, and they noticed that these adenovirus vectors were being used to produce COVID vaccines. And they're saying you, you don't want to do this. This is a caution because if you start using this in places like Africa or even the United States for that matter that have high endemic uh, HIV populations, it's going to exacerbate this this issue, these infections. Wow. And so. 
what we did here is we consulted our international scientific team and we started looking at studies here. And again, open investigation, but let's look at some of the studies that we found that are kind of corroborating this information. So one of the first studies here, this was from 2012, and this is looking at, it's the title is Human Adenovirus-Specific T-Cells Modulate HIV-Specific T-Cell Responses to the AD5-Vectored HIV-1 Vaccine. Um, now we have a study from 2008, activation of dendritic cell T-cell axis by 85 immunocomplex creates an, a, an improved environment for replication of HIV in T-cells. Um, a, a study from 2018, distinct susceptibility of HIV vaccine vectored induced CD4 T-cells to HIV infection. So what, it, what this is, is uh, like we've talked about, that AD5 vector is being used in this vaccine development and it, it, if someone has already been um, exposed to this common cold, basically a common coronavirus. The, the adenovirus is a common cold. They're using this vaccine. If you've already had that common cold, then you get this problem. What is that problem exactly? What is the mechanism they're worried about happening? Yeah, and that, yes, and that, that is uh, really talked about in this next study here. We'll, do, we'll okay. dive into this study. This will really explain that. So the, the title of this study here is Adenovirus Vector-Specific T-Cells Demonstrate a Unique Memory Phenotype with High Proliferation Potential and Co-Expression of, these are the two things you need to remember, CCR5 and Integrin Alpha 4 Beta 7. Uh, CCR5 and Alpha 4 Beta 7 are receptors on these T cells, they act like docking stations. Um, okay. Uh, the, these T cells, uh, the, the displaying high levels of these docking stations on their surfaces, uh, that people that have those are more likely to become infected with HIV. So, so basically, what the, it's building more docking stations for HIV to attach to. The, you know, and, and and to be clear, the studies weren't looking at because these were HIV vaccines that might have had HIV in the vaccine. They just separated out and did studies of just the adenovirus to see was that doing it without HIV. And this is what they're finding: there's increasing the amount of docking stations you have, or basically putting up antennas inside of your body saying, come on over here. If you're HIV, we've got a, a place for you to stay. Right, right. And these authors, let's read their conclusion. This is what they concluded. So this was, you know, again, this is all done in blood work in a Petri dish, but they, yeah. they concluded AD5 specific T cells demonstrate a phenotype and proliferation potential that would support HIV infection. These results are pertinent to the findings of the STEP study, that's the Merck study from 2007, and future use of AD5 as a, a vaccine vector. They also say the T cells expand rapidly following antigen stimulation, resulting in a mean 320-fold expansion in these receptors over seven days. Whoa. I have a, I pulled a, a, a graph study a graph picture of this just to show kind of a visual representation. This is from their study. Um, the the first column there, first column aligns with the CCR5 receptor, and then the uh, second column is the alpha-4 beta-7. And at the bottom, it says day zero and day seven. So you notice at day zero, when they when they stimulate this uh, stimulate this antigen with the adenovirus five, you see it all, every one of them moves up. Every one of them expresses a higher percentage of these receptors on their surface, except one of them, which goes down, but the majority of them go up. And again, it's a 320 fold expansion over seven days. That's what they found. And these are the target cells for HIV infection. So let's bring this home, because I know a lot of viewers are saying, well, yeah. What vaccines have this AD5 in there? I want to know right now. So right, right now, 
uh, we only have China's CanSino Biologics that they use the AD5 vector. Okay. Russia's Sputnik uh, uses the AD26 for the first dose and AD5 for the second dose. Okay. Um, as, uh, Johnson and Johnson uses uh, the adenovirus 26, and AstraZeneca uses a, 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 a chimpanzee cold viral vector. But here's where this starts to tie together. There's not a lot of research on cross-reactivity. So we found this study here, which may provide some link. Um, it doesn't have to do specifically with HIV, but it does show that uh, adenoviruses cross, are, are cross-reactive with each other. So mm. extensive cross-reactivity of CD4 plus adenovirus-specific T-cells, implications for immunotherapy and gene therapy. Remember, a lot of people are saying that vaccines are gene therapy. Yeah. But they, they're, they're basically saying that if you use an adenovirus 5, that can cross-react with an adenovirus. You know, there's, there's over well, I mean, 50. The truth is, is the studies were all done. We're looking at older studies, looking at the, uh, the adenovirus 5 being used. We don't know of 26, but there's no studies there. And what they're saying, there could be a cross-reactivity. You could have that problem. Then brings in Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca being used uh, all around the world. It's, you know, really um, amazing research, uh, Jeffrey, on this. And, and I want to point out, too, to everyone in our audience, there's a couple of things right now. If you're brand new to the show, you're thinking, man, that's like a lot of science. I feel like I'm in biology class again. Uh, and I'll tell you, uh, you know, I'm a CBS producer. That's where I started my executive producer. We both won Emmy Awards for the work that we've done in science, in medicine. And everyone told us you can never do a show that gets that deep in the weeds. Well, that's what we're doing. We're being accused of spreading misinformation, but ask yourself, when was the last time you actually saw a study, a headline, and got in the details with graphs on CNN or MSNBC? This is how we do it here, and hang in there. We'll make other things entertaining, but for all of you that really want to know the truth, this is an investigation that needs to happen. Do you see what we're talking about here? There were warnings that these vaccines could increase the risk of HIV, and now we're seeing headlines all over the country look out, all over the world look out. We may be having a rise in HIV. You may want to get out and get tested. Do you see the writing on the wall? I mean, do these connect? We don't know. I mean, this is what I want to say, but we are beginning the investigation. In fact, we began this investigation, you know, nearly two years ago. I just want to make that point clear one more time uh, because we know we're going to get attacked by the fact checkers uh, that just have this religious belief that all vaccines, even when they're not tested, are perfectly safe. Right. And, and, you know, we're also just connecting dots as well. And a lot of people can ask the same questions. This is the final dot to connect uh, the Moderna has come out and they, they have vaccinated their first patients in a clinical trial. So they, the first patients vaccinated in clinical trial, the HIV experimental vaccine that uses Moderna's mRNA technology. So remember, Moderna was a kind of a nothing burger company. It was yeah. floundering. It was infused with a lot of government money, comes out with a vaccine. Their higher ups, their CEO, their CFO, their scientific officer, almost all of them, you know, multimillionaires, billionaires, some of them left the company. And now they're going from COVID vaccines into uh, HIV experimental vaccines, one of the hardest vaccines to really to pull off. It seems it seems interesting that this would be happening right now. And, you know, un unfortunately, our good friend who we were just talking about having on, uh, Luke Montagnier. Yeah, uh, we were was, just talking to him about coming on. Great uh, yeah. Nobel Prize winning discoverer of HIV. We were in conversations to have him come forward. He had real concerns about this vaccine. Uh, just passed away uh, last week. Really, really tragic. Yeah, yeah, and he, and and of course he led the team in 1983, who first identified HIV, Nobel Prize winner, 
and uh, our thoughts and prayers go out to his family. But uh, this is a this is a lot of information. This is an ongoing investigation. We'll bring you the truth as we find it um, every week. Sure, it would have been a lot easier to do this investigation if Luke Montagna was still around. So we're sorry to have lost him at this uh, critical juncture, but we'll find other scientists and doctors to help us with that research. Jeffrey Jackson, wow, an incredible report today. Thank you for um, sort of that deep dive. Really appreciate it. We'll see you next right. week. Thank you so much, Del. We're about to go deeper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, here we go. <clears throat> This is the withdrawn paper they were talking about. Yeah. You might have seen it here many, many times on this show for the past year and a half. There's something to it. Yep. Something to that. But BP120. <clears throat> I got something else I'm teeing up here. LD, can you go to the uh, YouTube playlist for production and find the John Coleman clip and just play to the end of the Bill Gates part? He's Billy Bob, Billy Bob Gates. He said, uh, sadly, the Omicron is like a vaccination. Oh, I have that in the show card, actually. <clears throat> we got to play that because yeah, that goes that. back to these DARPA documents we covered at the end of last episode. It's under COVID-19 LD. It's because um, that's the, what their project The new was. Bill Gates. Sadly, the virus itself, particularly the variant called Omicron, is a type of vaccine creates both B cell and T cell immunity. That's I just Twitter seen the one. text. I tweeted on it earlier this week. But then I saw the video earlier today from mm-hmm. John Coleman. I think that's his name, right? Dr. John Coleman? Either one. Is that the is same it, guy that Campbell? wrote the book on Tavistock? John Campbell? Yes, please, thank you for oh, having Campbell. a different last oh, name. Because I was thinking that's the guy the who wrote guy the, on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. The, the Council doctor. of 200 or whatever. <laughs> you know, the Blue Book and the Tavistock book, Dr. John Coleman. All right, so we want Dr. John Campbell, please. Thank you for the correction. Yes, sir. So from the beginning... <clears throat> Uh, yeah, because he plays the Gates clip first, I think. Okay, here we go. Well, a warm welcome to today's talk. It's Sunday, the 20th of February. Now, I'm going to play a clip from uh, Mr. Bill Gates uh, in a second, and I'm a bit confused by what he's saying, so uh, watch it and see if you can help me uh, help me understand it. I think it's good news, but I'm, I'm not quite sure. So o- over to uh, over to Mr. Gates now at the, the uh, at, uh, Munich. Mr. Gates, because this is, I know, a topic that you've spoken on again and again. You were ahead of the curve prior to the beginning of this pandemic. Where would you assess where we are today in beating COVID-19? Well, the, uh, you know, sadly, the virus itself, particularly the, the variant called Omicron, uh, is a type of vaccine, that is it creates both B cell and T cell immunity. And it's done a better job of getting out to the world population uh, than we have with vaccines. If you do uh, sero surveys in African countries, you get well over 80% of people uh, have been exposed either to the vaccine or uh, to various variants. And so, you know, what that does is it means the chance of severe disease, which is mainly associated with being elderly and uh, having obesity or diabetes, those risks are now dramatically reduced because of that uh, infection exposure. And 
you know, it's sad. We didn't do a great job on therapeutics. You know, only here, two years in, do we have a, a good therapeutic. Uh, vaccines, it took us two years to be in oversupply. Today, there are more vaccines than there is demand for vaccines. Uh, and, you know, that wasn't true. And next time we should try and make it, instead of two years, we should make it more like six months, uh, which certainly, uh, you know, some of the standardized platform approaches, including mRNA, would allow us to do that. So, you know, it, it took us a lot longer this time than, than it should have. Sadly, he said sadly twice. Mm. So Bill Gates is sad. So we should take a look at this. What we're going to take a look at might make Bill mad. <laughs> what we're going to First, we're going to go to the Project Veritas dump. This isn't the drastic document. This is the Major Murphy USMC fellow at DARPA email from Project Veritas, projectveritas.org, I believe. Uh, and it's on page two that my, my spidey sense got tingly. Because right here, a live attenuated SARS-CoV bat vaccine. <clears throat> Not a bad virus. They wanted to vaccinate bats in this DARPA, DAZAC, diffuse, drastic document dump. It should be mentioned real quick, Richard. Why vaccinate a bat for a virus that doesn't probably cause any sort of disease in the bats itself? It gets worse, Tony, because uh, when you read into these documents... Viruses don't mean that you're going to get sick. Like, they're, they're just biological... Pro they, they cause biological processes in the host organism that are, well, can be good, bad, or indifferent. For that matter the part is none of this stuff would have attached to human ace2 receptors without them batifying mice and micefying yeah. human like humanizing mice and batifying yeah. mice we'll get get to it because they were no, messing right, with man. vampire bats in this dog I'm, I'm just pointing out that it's just interesting they want to create a bat vaccine for a virus that doesn't even affect bat populations to begin with or for a host of viruses that are, do nothing more than innocuous well, biologic processes for the bats themselves i mean how how intensely Strange they care about that. bats, Tony. First, but, off. The, but the viruses they aren't even bats. bad for bats because it it's goes with the vampires, the vampires and bats. And there's vampire bats in this document. But seriously, when Gates says, "Sadly, Omicron acted as a vaccine that he Losing didn't money. sell you," that yeah, he didn't, right. that's what he's upset about. Yeah, exactly. Nature solved the problem before Bill Gates could cash in for real, for reals on it, right? But the thing that's out there, the Omicron. The, the SARS-CoV-19 thing itself could have not been a virus. It could have been the vaccine that they were planning to aerosolize and spread on these bats. That's what the DARPA document said. And mm -hmm. I was incredulous when I just read like this part that's like the Project Veritas dump. Like I went through it and I read it. And we had read through it in September of 21 when the drastic documents came out. And I'm pretty sure that this guy probably works with drastic just going out on the limb there. He didn't do the dump, but he might've provided research into what drastic released. That's going to be the second document I show you. Well, so this, here, yeah. so here's the title of the document. They're talking about the bat vaccine right here. Okay. On page one, on page two, they're talking about bat vaccine right here in this paragraph, prevent a deadly SARS code from emerging uh, the specific language is to inoculate bats with novel chimeric polyvalent spike proteins to enhance 
their adaptive immune memory against specific high-risk viruses. Being defense-related, it makes sense that EcoHealth submitted the proposal first to the Department of Defense before it settled with NIH and AID. I tweeted this past week the contracts that go from 2014 to 2019 and 2019 to 2025 where they're still doing it, Peter Daszak. Oh, yeah. Like, this is still going on. And now it's not called gain of function. It's called the PC3E whatever framework that they developed in 2017. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot more to these claims by the major than I first thought. So when I read into the second document, which is from Drastic, this is the the proposal volume one. For the vaccines, real quick before you get into that, did they mention anywhere in that document that the vaccines are trying to create or mRNA style platforms, or did they? The only reason I bring that up That's is a good because question. viruses and, and are just yes. pieces of DNA and RNA that have an envelope, have like a membrane, so they're like right. sort of quasi pseudo living no, organisms. That. That and it's the reason why I bring it because like the virus, the vaccine itself, to your point, could be they're taking the virus and, and fucking with it, and then creating a vaccine. Like the vaccine they created, in other words, could have been the thing they released, which is like a modified version of a virus, which is nothing more than a piece of RNA or DNA to begin with. The COVID but itself. It's way too broad. It the looks like of the is virus, the thing so. that they were going to put on the bats using aerosols and nanoparticles. And the, the uh, glycerin. Right. So that when they green, Automated they... application methods, Tony, yeah. to get these spike, spike proteins to all the bats. Don't go through this document and replace the word bat with human beings because <clears throat> it just turns into a big COVID news story. But um the, the idea oh, USA that what Gates ID was saying predict projects, six Asian country. Hold on. What is the, you know, all this stuff, like, look at the stuff you have highlighted here. I know because I mean, it's, it's t- uh. <laughs> work for USAID, which is CIA MI6. And that's why they've been untouchable. And that's why I'm, I'm uh, that's why they're story. still untouchable. That's why they're still untouchable. <clears throat> they're but go I, I ahead we with covered the next it at the last. Well, I know we covered it at the end of the last episode about the, the vampire bat experiments and the things mm-hmm. they're doing in this document. But I just think that people <clears throat> should take a look at it and review it. And um, the fact that Gates said it was a vaccine, right? The, the virus Omicron, acts as a vaccine. Yeah. There's this conflation. Cause that's the what they were trying to do. They had, they created a virus that acted as a vaccine for bats to yeah. prevent soldiers from getting sick. That's what the whole project's about. But it's interesting that, you know, the vaccine didn't fund it, but Fauci's NIAID did. It it implies that the vaccine that they're then working on must be some some sort of mRNA platform. They Um, call it gene therapy. They call it it, um, because like the virus itself is nothing more than a piece of RNA or DNA. In the DARPA, they, they, because I write gene therapy question mark. kind of one of the same thing. Yeah. Right. So the gene therapy is like, so there's this sort of false equivalency going on now, which well, is insane. I'm not genes, surprising. <laughs> Same um, old Calvin Klein. Well, change your, changes your identity. What did Klaus say? I can't do that. <laughs> um, it changes yeah, you. I could, find, I could find one of the references where they're talking about the gene language. Because basically, go that, that's interesting. They went through they're... these tests and they're like, "Look, um, we want to make something that is uh, that won't that vaccines won't work on it, and that it, monoclonal antibodies wouldn't work on it, right? They, that's <laughs> the weaponizing of it. That's the gain of function, uh, right here. 
Not even monoclonal antibodies. Look, this that. isn't even, this is page six of 76. Okay. <clears throat> so I'm just saying that you're just getting into it right here. Uh, chimeras with the SARS-CoV genes inserted into a SARS-CoV backbone and synthetically reconstructed full-length SHC uh, 014 in Wuhan Institute of Virology 1 cause SARS-like illness in humanized mice, mice expressing the human ACE2 with clinical signs that they are, they are not reduced by SARS-CoV monoclonal antibody therapy or vaccination. In other words, it mutated so much that other therapeutic uh, remedies did not work. And then right, so they the were specifically, because if you read through, they were specifically looking for things that couldn't be easily treated. And they mm-hmm. thought they had something with that. This, I right? remember most from the document. Look. Yeah, they were looking for, th- I do remember reading through at least the beginning of it. And they do talk about quite specifically, they're worried about the viruses of high risk that they, def- one of the definitions, one of the properties of the definition is the fact that it will escape any sort of remedy or therapeutic we could throw at it. Dude, they're looking at transdermally applied nanoparticles, aerosolization, prototype sprayers from uh, Xerox Park and automated sprays triggered by timers, right? We have an extensive preliminary data set on these techniques for wildlife, including vaccinating bats against uh, ribosin in the lab, successful delivery, consumption and spread in wild vampire bats. I'm just saying, I could read you the references for luciferase, yeah, yeah and that's right the here. thing that uh, Mc, uh, uh, Malone talks it's, about all well, the time. It's in, it's in your vaccines, right? Yeah. That's, so <clears throat> I don't know if this it was to, in it was in the trials for the mice, so they could see where look, the nanolipid particle was going. Targeted immune boosting. We will apply polyvalent chimeric recombinant SARS spike proteins in the presence of broad scale immune boosting treatments to boost immune memory. And so that's that's the mRNA. That's what, that's what I was looking for. So that's for. what they yeah. use, Tony. Targeted yeah. immune boosting is the code words in here. Polyvalent chimeric recombinant SARS. Yeah. So they're using spike, where they're basically using gene therapies. That's exactly. And notice here, like they're here's using Ralph chim- Barrick, right? Go up again. Gain of function in nanoparticles yeah. and pox virus from raccoons, yeah, raccoons exposed to delivery to bats. These people are fucking with nature. Yeah. And they're blaming it on us. Well, see, right now they're using this polyvalent chimeric recombinant process. Recombination is essentially introducing these sort of various viruses into these host in these host animals with specific uh, cell lines for them to go through the standard process of mutation. And then so that these different viruses combine with one another that make it more infectious. And my fear is that in the future, they're going to use CRISPR technologies that becomes more sophisticated. Recombination is a different now They talk about that in here, man. Right. They're already so, using that too. And they're already funded. Jesus so, fuck man. Cause recombination is different so from CRISPR. These are the people, it's a different type of technology. These are the people that proposed to do this thing at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And I don't know how many coincidences people want, but if you just read through the DARPA document and this is just their, their plan. Like I said, I found um, the, the funding sources where you can see that the grants are satiated. They, yeah. they got paid. Yeah. They got paid. And the only concern, the only concern they had was that they felt it was too uh, extensive. That was or- DARPA's. That was DARPA's excuse, but the grants that published by the intercept that I've, I tweeted them out a couple times in the past week, Mm -hmm. um, the 2014 to 2019 and 2019, 2025. That's what, uh, what's his name? We had him on, uh, truth and media, um, 
Benny oh, okay. Swan. Yeah, Ben Swan. That's what yeah. he alluded to like a year ago now. Yeah. When we had because he's like, well, 3.5 million to eco health through NIAID grant funding. Yeah, there was money, like 40, but there was 40 plus money. million yeah. of DARPA money. It's like, we don't know where the fuck that went. Yeah. Now we're starting to get an idea. Yeah. What we know is there's a lot of fingerprints and footprints on this crime but scene. But that's how DARPA tried to wash their hands clean of it. Look, it's eco health. It's not us. Nothing to see here. And no don't one's really it. investigating it. No, right? So that's see? why I thought the Nuremberg 2.0 kind of grand jury, uh, you know, it shines some light and introduces people to the ominous continuity of the history that drove up to the COVID pandemic and the great reset itself. Correct. Absolutely correct. LD, do we have a clip uh, from the, the Tuesday in the show card? I have it on the intermission. Yeah. yeah okay. So we'll get to that at intermission. What were some of the other things that I had noted? I guess I could have gone upstairs. And oh, you didn't tablet. get your tab? Oh, well, no, I okay. didn't even think of it because everything was going so smooth. <laughs> so it's one. So right now, um, Jeffrey covered sort of the gamut. We talked about HIV. Obviously, I was going to bring up, but he did at the end. Um, yeah, we covered actually, that let last me, week, let, too. We did. And I'll just quickly run through a timeline. mRNA vaccines offer hope for HIV. This is... The fuck is the date? Um, well... I'll find yeah, and for those of second. you playing at home, mRNA technology has been a hope from the DARPA crew and advanced technology groups that they could have a universal vaccine for everything because they're all, you know, they're going to own oh. all life. Why not own all remedies for anything that happens to life? <laughs> How convenient. Uh, experimental mRNA HIV vaccine safe. Just promised in animals is December 9th. December 11th, experimental mRNA. This is now 2022, or excuse me, not December, January 11th, 2022. So December 9th to January 11th. So about a month. Experimental mRNA HIV shows promise in animals. So first we went for if the vaccine is safe and shows promise in animals. Now it's uh, vaccine shows promise, same thing, just a month later. There was this a is story the international this past AIDS week. vaccine in a, in a sort of initiative, and Moderna launched trial of HIV vaccine antigens delivered through mRNA technology. This is now January 27th. 2022 in phase one trial aims to build response. So I guess this again, talking about. Right. Uh, so there's two yeah, angles. Animal on this. You're going to see HIV everywhere in the media for two main product lines. They have the MRNA HIV technology that they're working on right now and shows a lot of promise. So one from a story that came out early this week yeah. is a woman who she's the first woman cured from an AIDS mm. vaccine, but they use mm. gene therapy. They use gotcha. uh, the different uh, stem stem cells. I think fetus stem cells, they did something stem like cell, that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So either way they're closing in on, they now have a pervaded solution, a cure, an antidote yeah. for maybe the thing they created a long time ago. And they're, you know, they're just profiting from both ends. And the if there really is any acceleration within the, I mean, mutation. think of all the money that was made on AZT. They had this cancer drug from the sixties that they knew killed people, but Fauci could, Oh, he prescribed it off label and made a ton of money killing people in the eighties for the pharma crowd who couldn't move that inventory to save their lives. Correct. That's, that's true. absolutely correct. Dallas yeah. buyers club. Well, that's not even really disputed I know. at this point. I know. Yeah. I'm just saying like, start there. The fact that people be don't be interested in the facts, maybe. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know how long the animals trials went on for, but was this back January 11th, we're getting national institutes of health saying experimental MRNA vaccines just promise in animals. And then now we're February 8th and try, uh, phase one trials have started for, human volunteers in the U S so the vaccine, this would be Moderna looks like is the main, they're using Moderna's MRNA platform. The vaccine has been developed in partnership with the 
IAVI, which is International AIDS Vaccine Initiative, while huge amounts of development are still required, the spread speed of and flexibility of mRNA may accelerate that process, which alludes to exactly what Bill Gates said. So two years, we can get six months. Then six months will be three months, and three months will be a month, and then you know, with each and every booster. And then on top of that, let's just make this hypothetical assumption that there really has been, they say it goes back to 92, that people have had this mutation, but then we have the issue of the glycoprotein 120 or the HIV gag being part of the the spike protein. Uh, That's in sort of the four amino acids that those researchers alluded to. You have four unique inserts in 2019 COVID, all of which identity similarity to amino acid strategies and key structural proteins of HIV-1. Well, that could also drive mutation in some capacity because HIV, I've heard it argued by many different people all throughout the spectrum. Like we all have sort of the, these, these inside of us and under certain conditions, they proliferate such as being the amyl nitrates. Well, they were and- just saying the places where these spike proteins are, are the critical targets for vaccine development, almost as if some people trying mm-hmm, to make mm-hmm. a vaccine for bats had created this coronavirus. Go. There you go. You got it. Yeah. So it's, and what's very ominous about this scenario is they can extend this to any virus that's viruses that are innocuous. Viruses are sort of just, I mean, they're just like almost chemical messengers in this case, sort of like what RNA and DNA does to build proteins and proteins can act as hormones and act as chemical signalers of all types, uh, building blocks of various other cellular structures, so forth and so on they can control the processes of life itself on such a basal level uh, that it's, it's un- unconscionably evil and disturbing as to how far they can really push this technology. Well, we already heard the guy last week say that they use HIV to splice stuff together mm, to make for, the vaccines, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in this paper, BBC. Says, none of these four inserts are present in any other coronavirus Correct. on the planet. Correct. So does that mean that nature, the wet market did it? Or does that mean... Dazak and his lab did it. How do it's they get in there? It's not present in nature. Isn't that what labs are for? And the fact that they're also using HIV-1, or at least the, the <clears throat> GP-120 and HIV gag in the process of the... Uh... Oh, no, that's what that is alluding to, HIV-1. So they're also using a portion of HIV within the vaccine itself. Do you see that, again, this false equivalence that's happening between vaccine, virus, virus, vaccine? They're both the same thing, in other words, with this new emerging platform. It's not emerging, it's here in the form of mRNA technology because they're both just forms of RNA or DNA. One's just being synthetically produced. The other one's just exists in nature as it does. Well, and to Kaufman's point, at this point, it's computer generated. They're not sharing samples for labs around the world. I mean, if you see, they started working on the vax, the vaccine that they called it in like January of 2020, they had barely sequenced it, right? They, you know, there's no time for FedEx to be delivering uh, cold samples. So they are using computer models. And if they can input, can they output from that? Can they, can they make something on a computer and put it straight into cell culture these days? I'm pretty sure they can. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty sure that's what Ralph Barrick and these people are doing. You know, he's not just playing with pipe bets and other things from your science kit from high school. They got big computers and they got models and then they have printers that print biological life in a computerized form. 
Yeah, he's partially correct in transhumanism as far as doing the silico in silico, which is basically in silicon. But the idea is like they were able to run the model so quickly because it was comparable to other viruses. There's like a de novo or another way in which you build it up from the ground up, which they've also done later. But it takes too long. That's why they were able to find it has such similarities, 98 point some percentage to like rat TG13 or whatever it was called, rat G13, however you want to pronounce it. Um, you know, so they're able to just very quick now with these isolate because they can compare it to other structures because they the phylogenetic tree that basically have sequenced the entire world at this all the biological life. Omicron's at this not point. related to that phylogenetic tree. Of it was mutations. twenty mutations. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it it's doesn't, like it, that it, vaccine came out of the lab too, but they just you know it's aerosolized. See, this is what they did. You think it can't be a vaccine? There's no needle involved. These people at the DARPA documents, people, they talk about they aerosolized it because bats weren't hip to the, the needle either. That's how they got it to spread. So if the thing that they were vaccinating bats with is the thing that got cross-pollinated with human ACE2 receptors and became the pandemic, then you might have what we have here. There's a failure to communicate between uh, the people that control the law and the people who uh, you know are violating it on behalf of uh, the globalists and, and Schwab and his crew. I mean, Schwab's a, a front man for the elites. He's like one Problem of their I favorite have. front yeah. men. He's like the Joe Rogan of the elites. Like everybody goes to the World Economic Forum and sits on his stage, and gets their message to the world. Yeah, the only, the only, right. I'd pay for a cage match between Klaus Schwab and Joe Rogan right now. Hmm. Big ticket, billions of dollars on the line. Klaus might do it. <laughs> I will say real quick to the in silico, it doesn't mean there isn't there. It doesn't mean there isn't sort of any ontology to that issue as well. Like they've been able to develop such a quick um, model because there's other models they can base it off of. Oh, sure. have sure, been sure. built up from the ground up. So it's not just he sure. kind of, he, he takes it a little reductio ad absurdum. You don't have to go that far. Um, it's still based on something they were able to build up. They only the had to map the novelty part, the Delta. Exactly. The, the That's why it's so quick. Unknown. They could do it yeah, so right. instantaneously. So he takes right. it a little too far, but he still has a point that, that because, but one of the things he's pointing out is because we do have these models because we just like essentially sequence the earth, all biological life that is on earth, we can quickly relate it in computer models very quickly before having to build up this, the entire sequence from the ground up as we have for so many other things. Plus without computers, they couldn't play with DNA and genes and right. all these other things. So yeah, there sequencing is a, can't uh, take place. Going back to computers. Patrick Wood, technocracy, cybernetics, Correct. transhumanism, eugenics, it's all in the stew. These people are cooking up and they're all interdependent. Exactly. Exactly. Well, we have this advanced technology. I mean, we have, microscopes, we have telescopes, we have computer models, we have mathematics to extend our sense perception because we can't see electrons flowing down copper wire. You know, for example, we can't see viruses unless we use the electron microscopy and various techniques of it, such as negative staining. And there's other techniques that are available too. It, without that extension of our sense perceptions, we wouldn't know about any of the existence of these things. But the problem is it takes a highly specialized class that has the ability to use that. And that's where it can become abused. And that's what Carl Sagan portended in his warning like 20 years ago or back in the eighties or, or the nineties when he gave a, I think it was an interview. He was saying like, the problem is there's these scientists that there's only few in the world that know how these technologies actually work. And he's afraid of the abuse that'll take place because most people won't understand it. So they'll either trust 
in an advericundium sense to the authorities or mistrust them without having any reverence for the power of the science itself, which is some of the problems I see in alternative communities as well. So we have yeah, to be just careful. Just because we can do it doesn't mean we should do it with sure. the technology. Right. And doesn't mean it also doesn't exist because of the fact we can't see or sense perceive it. Um, you know, those are highly specialized fields has created such a disconnect and the knowledge gap and the power, the knowledge gap is a power gap. And that's created a very ominous situation. So, and a big wealth gap because they're all the yeah, same huge thing. Wealth gap, the same gap thing. is the gap. You got, you got it. It consists of many things that separate us from the elites who handle this planet like it's their little toy. So, as far as the next little toy, as far as so, I, we kind of have to get into the trucker protests. And from there, I think we can pretty much just move to the intermission um, because we, we have to get truck well, Trudeau. Yeah. Truck Trudeau. But I think you mentioned this. Do you want to do the knighted video? Get that started off with uh, Trudeau uh, getting knighted. I mean, yeah, let's see. What's his pedigree? Where does he come from? So Who's he have oaths to? Like, you know, he's he's portending. Yeah, portending, I guess. To represent the people of Canada. <laughs> but it seems like he's got a girlfriend across the ocean that he's loyal to. What's an see. old girlfriend, man? He likes him. He's like Macron. Hmm. Like some little bit more aged. Oh, riper. <laughs> Not fermented at this point. Let's let's play the guy <laughs> saying the stuff. Mr. Justin J.P. Trudeau. I, Justin P.J. Trudeau, do swear that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, Queen of Canada, her heirs and successors, so help me God. I, Justin P.J. Trudeau, do solemnly and sincerely swear that I shall be a true and faithful servant to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II as a member of Her Majesty's Privy Council for Canada. I will in all Privy things Council. to be treated, debated, and resolved in Privy Council faithfully, honestly, and truly declare my mind and my opinion. I shall keep secret all matters committed and revealed to me in this capacity or that shall be secretly treated of in council. Generally, in all things, I shall do as a faithful and true servant ought to do for Her Majesty, so help me God. I, Justin P.J. Trudeau, do solemnly and sincerely promise and swear that I will truly and faithfully and to the best of my skill and knowledge, execute the powers and trusts reposed in me as Prime Minister. So help me God. Now, do words have meaning or not? Oh, it's just part of tradition. He has to do that. Mm, yeah, it's just ritual, right? Notice the perfect concept that mission. Real I mean, quick, Privy what did we just see there? How Privy many Council. people around the world take oaths of fealty to the Privy Council, the Queen Elizabeth, and all the Commonwealth territories that all have votes in the United Nations? Well, how's that all work? Yeah. We got answers. It's rhetorical. <laughs> we got we got clips for this. What are you gonna say, Tony? No, nah, just for people unaware of the Privy Council. I'm sure most are, but Privy Council, the United Kingdom, right next officially. to the groomers of the stool. 
officially Her Majesty's Most Honorable Privy Council, or known simply as the Privy Council, is a formal formal body of advisors to the Sovereign of the United Kingdom. Its membership mainly comprises senior politicians who are current or former members of either the House of Commons or the House of Lords. So a Privy Council formally advises a sovereign on the exercise of the royal prerogative and as a body corporate as queen and council, it issues executive, that's interesting, body corporate, it issues executive instruments known as orders in council, which among other powers and act enact acts of parliament and so forth. And so it goes on with the structure of how- I didn't hear too much about freedom in there. Is there mm-hmm. any freedom in there? It sounds like some sort of Byzantine mechanical, <laughs> monarchical- situation from it's the middle ages right of kings you're talking about right canada kings. right canada's run by these types of things yeah yeah trudeau is not the highest you know no, no you don't think so no. not even the with hierarchy. having a dad who was a former prime minister who used emergency rights powers in the 70s yeah. no not yeah. even yeah. all right so i would like to cut to short clip let's take a sampling from Aaron and Melissa Dykes's uh, recent oh, yeah. offering, which it's in, the, uh, it's in the intermissions, the third one. Let me, yeah, let's take that because it ties in with Trudeau right there. I want to go to like 12 minutes in there when they start to talk about King Charles. He's a I, ha- I have it actually timestamped. So if you just click on it, King good. during their civil war when he printed too much money. I think there's a whole interesting history that's going to be unfolded kind of through the rest of the episode through various clips that have all taken place in the past week for the most part. So it's really interesting and synchronistic to see how this is all coming together. And uh, LD, if you have that clip, that offering, let's play like uh, 10 minutes. And then what I'm going to do for you guys at home, I have a book. I'll hold on on that clip. Kimasabi. All right. I have a book in the other room. It's in plastic. It's, I think, like, it's very rare. It's a Mark Twain book where he makes fun of British royalty from the time of, like, Queen Elizabeth I. Mm. And he wrote this while he was at uh, West Point as a cadet before he got thrown out, I think. So I'm going to get that artifact. Let's check out Aaron Melissa Dykes's uh, what's this one called? It's the trust game. It's called right? the trust game episode. And what's the first Crowns, episode? So the subtitle is called Crowns, Crowns and, Sovereigns. and Sovereigns. Yeah, that's it. The trust game. Fantastic offering. Uh, it's on YouTube. You can check it out. We're going to play a little clip and entice you to go check out the whole thing. And they're going to be releasing it uh, as the series evolves uh, into public. And you're going to be able to comment on it week by week. Hopefully I- I'd love it. I'm looking forward to seeing more. Making it like an Adam Curtis release. Yeah. episode by episode about only it has long. a sense of humor where curtis has the humor no, and is adam really curtis have. related to lionel curtis talk amongst yourself <laughs> during this clip he also gets on the i mean it's bbc productions so, you, know, you know good work but just have to put it in perspective and context anyways go ahead ld vignettes designed to help you get in touch with your own feelings and beliefs and how society fosters these beliefs the film will be stopped after each vignette so that the issues presented and your reactions to them can be discussed. So hit up for like 13 minutes or 12 minutes. I'm here to yeah, deliver I thought a warning. It was time to say it wasn't. The film Sorry. you're about to watch is both extreme. Go back a little. Go back no like collateral. Oh, I- Imagine go that. Like- yeah, go back. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 
Right after, yeah, right as soon as this. They had really good B-roll. The yeah, they do. The yeah. Part one. Here we go. After a prolonged Shakespearean nightmare of centuries, whereupon abuses were suffered under cover of divine right of kings who acted more like tyrants, England's civil war and the subsequent beheading of King Charles I in 1649 was not only a pivotal challenge to absolute monarchical power, it became a literal divesting in that regal authority. That authority would soon be placed elsewhere. Oh yes, yes it would. Official modern bank history begins with Stockholm's Banco, founded by Johan Palmstruck in 1657. Palmstruck finally got the bank approved by a king of Sweden, Charles X Gustav, on the third try, after promising that the crown would receive half the bank's profits. Because, of course, Stockholm's Banco was the first European bank to print banknotes in 1661. In 1668, Stockholm's Banco began issuing too many loans and printing too many banknotes without collateral. Imagine that! Leading to the bank's takeover by the Swedish parliament, along with Palmstruck's privilege to operate a bank. Due to his bad bookkeeping, Palmstruck was the West's first central banker sentenced to death for printing too much money, and the Swedish government established the world's oldest central bank. In recent years, it became the first to issue negative interest rates. During King William's war against France in 1690, the Massachusetts Bay Colony issued an emergency stopgap in the form of a government-backed IOU. After promised loot that would have come from the taking of Quebec City failed, and the defeated army faced a crisis in paying its soldiers. This is considered the first paper currency issued in the modern Western Hemisphere. England's enchantment with absolute monarchy officially ended with the Glorious Revolution in 1688, ushering in limited monarchy and England's Bill of Rights in 1689. The vacuum of power created would ultimately lead to the installation of the Bank of England in 1694. Let's start our tour with the hub of the city. At the center, geographically, and from the point of view of importance, stands the Bank of England. It issues the money we use. It is the government's bank which saw the nation's energy redistributed through banking rather than kings and queens. Critically, one cannot cut the head off of a bank. To pay for recent expensive wars against France, the privately owned Bank of England bankrolled the buildup of the British Navy that would, quote, dominate the next 200 years globally, through the War of Spanish Succession and beyond. Most of the world's modern central banks would be based on the Bank of England's model. Fun fact, in 1954, archaeologists found that the original home of the bank on Walbrook had been built on top of the remains of a Roman temple to Mithras, a god associated with contracts whose say, name is literally right. Akkadian for contract. London, the capital of Britain, is also the financial capital of the world. It was the Romans nearly 2,000 years ago who built London Wall. The government of the city is to this day steeped in the traditions built up in its long history. Findings at the site included a statue to Bacchus and a cache of discarded chicken bones believed to have been used in initiation ceremonies and sacrifices. Shortly after the bank was established, England authorized a re-coinage in 1696, eliminating small denomination notes below 50 pounds. With average people earning something like 20 pounds annually, the majority of England never held these banknotes. In 1697, Parliament barred the creation of new joint stock companies. It was an intentionally anti-competitive move that favored monopoly by requiring a royal charter. In 1708, the Bank of England was granted a monopoly to issue banknotes tied to gold deposits. 
which were known as virtual money. In 1717, Sir Isaac Newton, in his capacity as comptroller of the Royal Mint, effectively put England on the gold standard at the expense of valuations in silver. The notorious South Sea Bubble hit in 1720. It was the modern world's first global financial bubble, and it burst in London. An economic rival to both the Bank of England and the East India Company, the South Sea Company was founded in 1711 as a public-private partnership that would consolidate national debt and facilitate trade with Spanish America, which required a permit from Spain. Supposedly, the Asiento slave trade permit was the only one Spain could allow Britain at the time, who took it over from France circa 1713. Thus, London's major financial investors began speculating on the British monopoly over the South Sea slave trade. But when everything in this amoral scheme got stretched out like a slinky from wild speculation and bounced back and then crawled down one stair after another with everyone's money, despite this rampant speculation being profitable for a few, most investors, including many aristocrats' fortunes, were completely wiped out. The king was shielded from financial loss by an act of parliament. Because of course. Exemplifying these losses was Isaac Newton, England's most prominent scientist and one of its most prominent moneymen, who despite having formulated the third law of motion and establishing that he understood equal and opposite forces, lost the equivalent of tens of millions of today's dollars in the South Sea bubble crash, something between 10 and 20,000 pounds or more. Interestingly, the South Sea bubble of 1720 was immediately followed by a similar crash on the Paris stock market known as the Mississippi bubble. John Law, sometimes described as a Scottish economist and other times described as a convicted murderer and millionaire gambler, presided over an early paper money scheme involving land speculation and real estate in connection with the French exploitation of Louisiana, transferred about a century later to the U.S. in the Louisiana Purchase. After it became apparent that economic expectations for the undeveloped territory were heavily exaggerated, investors began demanding their paper notes be converted to gold and silver en masse prompting the bubble to burst in 1720, a year for obvious bubble bursting. Between 1723 and 1729, paper currency became a hotly debated issue in the colonies as a financial solution to their many problems was wanting. But the badly arranged schemes deployed in colonies such as New England and South Carolina were apparently the equivalent of a child's badly drawn crayon doodles that no one wants to hang up on the fridge, as it doesn't take much to conjure up scribbles on paper, cry mommy mommy, and expect a line of credit in return. In 1723 and 1726, Pennsylvania passed paper currency legislation. And despite fears of a similar fate to other failed colonial paper money schemes, its relatively responsible management ended up making Pennsylvania the shining example of how not to overissue and cause runaway inflation. The key difference appears to be that the currency was pegged to land value rather than gold, and it maintained stability. Demand for currency itself, a workable currency system that would meet the dire needs of colonial conditions, drove debates during the time period in the hope that solutions would emerge. Benjamin Franklin himself wrote on the topic in 1729, advocating the issuance of additional paper bills to meet shortages in the credit loan note system then in place in Pennsylvania. In 1751, 1764, and 1773, the British Parliament passed currency acts creating strict regulations on colonial paper money, which pressed upon various important pressure points in colonial life, though you, dear listener, would find it too dry to dole out in detail. Suffice to say, there were restrictions in the issuance of paper money and banking activities in New England, i.e. policies to not make it rain, 
And the use of these paper notes was only authorized for payment of public debts and taxes, but banned for use in paying private debts, sending all the cream to the government and not to small business. By 1540, a silver glut caused a collapse in prices across Europe. The American mines would, at this point, simply have stopped functioning and the entire project of American colonization foundered had it not been for the demand from China. But how exactly did the new global economy cause the collapse of living standards in Europe? One thing we do know, it clearly was not by making large amounts of precious metal available for everyday transactions. If anything, the effect was the opposite. While Europeans were stamping out enormous numbers of rials, thalers, ducats, and doubloons, which became the new medium of trade from Nicaragua to Bengal, almost none found their way into the pockets of ordinary Europeans. Instead, we hear constant complaints about the shortage of currency. This was the case in most of Europe. Despite the massive influx of metal from the Americas, most families were so low on cash that they were regularly reduced to melting down the family silver to pay their taxes. This was because taxes had to be paid in metal. Everyday businesses, in contrast, continued to be transacted much as it had in the Middle Ages by means of various forms of virtual credit money, tallies, promissory notes, or, within smaller communities, simply by keeping track of who owed what to whom. What really caused the inflation is that those who ended up in control of the bullion, governments, bankers, large-scale merchants, were able to use that control to begin changing the rules, first by insisting that gold and silver were money, and second, by introducing new forms of credit money for their own use, while slowly undermining and destroying the local systems of trust that had allowed small-scale communities across Europe to operate largely without the use of metal currency. This was a political battle, even if it was also a conceptual argument about the nature of money. The new regime of bullion money could only be imposed through almost unparalleled violence, not only overseas, but at home as well. In much of Europe, the first reaction to the price revolution and accompanying enclosures of common lands was not very different from what had so recently happened in China. Thousands of one-time peasants fleeing or being forced out of their villages to become vagabonds or masterless men, a process that culminated in popular insurrections. The reaction of European governments, however, was entirely different. The rebellions were crushed, and this time, no subsequent concessions were forthcoming. Vagabonds were rounded up, exported to the colonies as indentured laborers, and drafted into colonial armies and navies or, eventually, set to work in factories at home. Almost all of this was carried out through the manipulation of debt. These monetary pressures were compounded by the Seven Years' War, aka the French and Indian War, of 1756 to 1763. 
which in many respects amounted to a contest for dominance in North America between Britain, France, and Spain, and which also involved much of Europe, Russia, and parts of South America. On the front end of the pivotal Seven Years' Conflict, Britain disincentivized white indentured servants, the primary labor force in the colonies up until this point, so that they would join the military and serve in the Seven Years' War instead, rather than the Seven Years' and indentured labor to landlords, whereafter they typically won their individual and economic independence. Instead, whites were recruited into armies en masse, and Britain began incentivizing primarily African slaves for labor, greatly expanding the commonality of slavery in the colonies, which its banks and stock companies profited from considerably. This shift in policy not only marked the difference in colonial life economically and with respect to labor, but in the base conditions of people who once came in droves to suffer the hardships of quasi-voluntary labor force that they eventually earned their way out of and exchanging that system for a labor economy based around outright perpetual bondage slavery, where physical hardships were compounded with psychological abuse and distorted legal concepts that define some people as property and as something less than human. This moral handicap and still lingering curse on America, derived from specific policies and investments that imposed the slave trade economy on the colonies even against objections, was complained about in the long train of abuses of the Declaration of Independence though most people seem to have forgotten that point today. By about 1759, gold shortages during the Seven Years' War led to the Bank of England issuing 10-pound notes, making smaller denominations available as people struggled with finances. By 1793, with the French Revolution, 5-pound notes were introduced. The more wars you have, the smaller amounts of money you get to have. Thus, the end of the Seven Years' War in 1763 marked the beginning of the causes of the American War of Independence. The aftermath left Britain dominant in the New World, but it came with a heavy price tag. Aggressive tax measures set by British Parliament in attempting to tax their American colonists to recoup the price of the Seven Years' War set off the Stamp Act revolt, which was, let's face it, angry, furious riots that made British lawmakers glad as f at the distance between them and the subsequent protests, most notably the Tea Party Rebellion which fueled the rise of revolution and independence on the back of heavy taxes and tight money policies. And thus, Mother England took on the role of Prince John in the Robin Hood-esque tale of double-squeezing an already contracting economy living by the slow-trickling veins of scarce coin and often inflationary paper currencies in the colonies. Banks were largely a confidence game, and they needed public trust to keep So it's a fantastic episode. I saw it twice this past week. The Trust Game, Crowns and Sovereigns is episode one. You can learn a lot about the Bay of Rigs and all that stuff is going on in Canada because there's a continuity of the history of the bankers. If people are out there trying to fight misinformation and institutionalized racism, you need go no further than the history of the central banks and the slavery that they've created around the world now for hundreds of years. Uh, Melissa had started at Queen Elizabeth around the time of 1601, yeah, uh, that era. <clears throat> so here's another angle on it. Cause they played an angle, um, that guy's sample of the first 5,000 years, but there's another angle that goes something like this around the time of Queen Elizabeth, the first King the, Henry VIII's daughter. Right? Yeah. Uh, I, I forget there was the. Yeah, like Elizabeth was the daughter of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. Which yeah, there the you go. Wife. Yeah. Yeah, just watch the Tudors, season three. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So um, they discovered the Orient and the fine silks and tea 
and uh, China, the porcelain, the things that they created. Um, and the Chinese wouldn't trade for European goods because they were subpar. So they would only take silver and gold. And by all this trade, a lot of silver and gold ends up over there. And if you follow through today's intermission, you'll understand how the silver and gold made its way back to Europe. Because that's the history of the East India Company. It might even be the purpose of the British Empire subjugation of the Chinese uh, to 100 years of being subjected to opium addiction and two opium wars. And while we were dumping tea, they were dumping chests of opium over there, very much like a protest at the Bay of Riggs that yeah. we've seen for the past week. This is kind of like they haven't ever fought off the queen or the, the monarchy for independence. And now people are standing up and they're starting to realize Trudeau's not representing them. Yeah. He's the proxy from the queen in their country to rule over them. Like we're watching some frontier series on uh, Netflix with right. Jason Momoa. <laughs> Cause that how the East India company, that's the Hudson Bay, Hudson, Hudson Bay company Hudson in that Bay, series. Yeah. They're very similar operations. You can uh, see the same sort of, they yeah. clearly care about the people. <laughs> oh yeah, sure. Uh, I just want to get this on the record. God and the goldsmith formally titled monarchy or money power. Um, so they're talking about how they were able to manipulate. I, I bought this book back. Oh my God. 2011. Is that the James goldsmith or is that just the goldsmith <clears throat> in general? Uh, this is a goal. It talks about how gold was manipulated through pa uh, the issuance of paper currencies or different legal tender by various kingships throughout uh, the monarchies that existed in Europe. And I found that interesting because it was at a time where, you know, I'm big into the free market ideas, but you know, a lot of the libertarians, free market people tout gold. In case silver, I lost anyone with my pun. And it's a Sir critique James. against gold and silver, which Melissa just alluded to. Like yeah. that was just as much manipulated because whoever controlled the gold and silver then controlled, controlled the um, basis of exchange through what they, the, the issuance of money related to that or credit related to. The so amount of gold that they're mining, all that stuff, they probably correct. Yeah, there. so that's what, the, that's what James the Fugger is coming because Fugger controlled those mines before the rise of all these banking families. Mm -hmm. Jakob Fugger, this is not them. the goldsmith Tony was just referring to. No, no, I just wanted to make it clear. Yeah. And then I also said before that last clip, I will do. Oh, I got to put the book. Oh, my camera, <clears throat> my camera quit. Look at that. I'm going to reboot the camera. Let's do it like this. Do 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 do. And if we get that to work, we can see this artifact. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I got this artifact. Yeah. Let's see if it... Uh, no, uh, let me just refire this camera. Yep. This is how Good it works, time. everybody. Let's see you go deactivate, can, uh, activate. Stall for a little bit here. Let's there we go. I got you. All right, yeah. so this is the artifact. This is how artifact looks coming off the shelf. It's in a plastic bag. It's protected by cardboard. I'm gently take it out. Title of this book is 1601, and it's an unpublished book by Mark Twain that was published in a private printing, and we'll see, in the 1920s. So we're going to see if I can get it unstuck from the tape there. I know. Look at that. Let's zoom in. Sixteen oh one, or conversation at the social fireside, as it was in the time of the Tudors, <laughs> by Mark Twain, privately printed in New York City, nineteen twenty-seven. 
Look at that. I can read Roman numerals. Fast, this edition of 1601 or conversation at the social fireside, as it was in the time of the tutors, consists of 125 numbered copies. This copy being number, I'm guessing this is the owner's copy because it wasn't part of the 100. And it came onto the market when they died. Someone got rid of their library. You get stuff like this. There you go. <laughs> 1601 is a clever sketch of a great humorist, a great satirist, and great humanitarian. It ought to be preserved in libraries for the benefit of those interested to be set afloat to live whenever, wherever it is willed to live. And... Okay, so here's the thing with old books. The page is not yeah. cut, right? I have uh, Colonel House's books from 1920s. So a lot of these books, when they are printed, the pages aren't cut. And in an artifact like this, because this is a genuine artifact, it's got, like all the pages are different sizes and stuff. Um, yeah, I'm not going to go through and, and cut them open. So uh, I think I do have a, a PDF copy of, of this someplace. But probably there you have it. Yeah. Uh, we might find it to pull some quotes out of it because I don't have I'll highlightings in this book, as opposed to most of my other books that are artifacts. I will highlight them, but this one's a little more rare. Here's one I already found. Yeah, there you go. See, that's why you don't mark up. Assuming it's correct, I mean, it's you know, I'll just put it on the record. He so makes fun. He takes the piss out of Queen Elizabeth. Let me just say that. So, Project Gutenberg, sixteen oh one by Mark Twain. The C book is for the use of anyone at anywhere at no cost. So it's basically how the town people fight. would talk about the royals back in sixteen oh one, and he, he writes Queen this and he, and he floats it around. I, I'm thinking at West Point, like he floated it around, like we would share memes, and he's like, you know, making a statement about the present day, but he's using the past to do it, kind of thing. Hey, look at so, this here. The title of the piece is 1601. The piece is a supposititious conversation which takes place in Queen Elizabeth's closet in that year between the Queen, Ben Johnson, Beaumont, Sir Walter Raleigh, the Duchess of Bilgerwater, and one or two others. So it's like a conversation. Like basically. Council. It's like a privy council. <laughs> Very much uh, like that. That is hilarious. Yeah, I'm sure this is pretty. She's in the privy and she's getting counsel. What kind of closet? Was it a water closet? Where, where was it at? It's bathroom talk. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. Closed doors, beyond closed doors. So following is supposed to be an extract from the diary of the Pepys of that day, the same being Queen Elizabeth's cupbearer. He is supposed to be of ancient and noble lineage that he despises his literary canal and that his soul consumes with wrath. Canelli? Whatever. That his soul consumes the draft to see the queen stooping. He was to a cupbearer. At least he wasn't the groom of the stool. I think that's what uh, Princess Diana's dad was. That's why I know the phrase. You check that. <laughs> you can see that goes back and forth between all the different plays or all the different actors within this sort of like play of this conversation that's taking place. Yeah. Very interesting. Uh, but this is pretty funny, actually. Yeah. But that's not what this episode's about. Yeah. Well, this we'll episode's about more now. serious things than Mark Twain satirizing the british royal family. good for context though to see how long we've all been ruled by kings and we like nation states actually well i think that's the, key, that's the way they did that's get. what the illuminati and the no that's what people i think that's what like the woke crowd doesn't get it's that up until the colonists fought back against the british empire 
there had never been really a semblance of freedom on the planet because it was always being subjugated by these other people who were either Genghis Khan or some monarchy with an army of people that needed to, you know, be subjugated. Otherwise, they'd be killed. Speaking right? of woke, they mentioned whites were utilized as indentured servants, and then they were the ones who conscripted into the army to fight the the what the Seven Years' War, the various other wars that took place. I think that's hilarious because Thomas Sowell mentioned the same data that he was able to uncover that wait the slave trade with whites is actually yeah, just they as didn't much stop with more. non-white people there right. were various levels of slavery all over the place unless right. you were the king or the royal court inside those walls you everyone were subjects everyone yeah. was subject and there weren't enough you know they were pretty uh the populations were smaller back then it was a little easier to to get around and subjugate oh, the everybody. french now they have Indian to have more technology Yes, French, French and Indian, Indian War. War. That's, that's what, what it was. Here. That's what that's what caused the whites to go from being indentured servants, euphemism for slaves, the to being conscripted into the army for their supposed freedom. Now the French, they the when war. they were congregating here in America, they were you know intertwined with the native peoples, intermarried, yes. trading. They weren't you know. Uh, <laughs> reason why they, they called Creole. Well, King of France didn't come Louisiana. over and said, well, I guess he did, but he didn't take all their stuff. I don't know. I guess they were just more upset when the British did it because of how they did it. Probably They're like, Our more king has a piece of paper maybe. and we got muskets. So fuck off. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So that's the, that whole clip is going to tie into our intermission tonight um, because the history of the Anglo-American establishment and central banking and institutionalized racism and censorship, all these things they're not so far apart. It's a finite planet. It's like when, when COVID kicked off, Patrick Woods, like it's a finite planet. There's only so many people out there with budgets and agendas doing these advanced things. Let's take a look at the Rolodex and oh, these same people are tuning up, turning up over here from the climate change pressure, right? Global warming, uh, the green agenda, the source order thing. All of a sudden they're Johnny on the spot with, with project lockdown, right? To be able to get uh, all these countries to close down in lockstep, to close professional sports leagues and casinos and places where usually they would tell government to F off, we're not following your rules. Everybody that was in the syndicate walked down. Then everyone else was subject to that because these are really, really big organizations that did that. And the same with the mandates. All Trudeau had to say was not for truckers, except for the truckers. Well, the truckers. So they're trying to bring this on. Like he's. Yeah. Speaking about people in a derogatory way that alienate, they're trying to create civil war, not just here in America, but all over the world right now. Yeah. 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 It's part of the destabilization at this point. It's part of how they make a global union. Yeah. Can't have world government without crack, cracking a few eggs. It's part of the idea of reset that Patrick would alluded to That's earlier. What as a reset well. would be cracking them yeah. eggs with so. mRNA. <laughs> All right. So um, what else we have to hit before we get to intermission? Let's look at that YouTube production playlist. Yeah, I'll put it on the screen. So you yeah, can put it on screen. It. Let's let's uh, use it like a menu. Um. So here, let me just scroll up. Oh, this is a subsection called trucker protest. So you have mandates, lockdowns, vaccine, vaccine. Injury. I think for the most part, unless we would do if we want to cover more, what I could do is go over a timeline of just reading the articles that emerged because you start to see a timeline throughout the week of what happened. So let me see if I can find that um, video. Canadian media is still pushing crackpot theory. that truckers are Russian agents. <laughs> Next one is freedom. Whatever that means. CNN demonizes truckers for standing up against vaccine mandates. Martial hey, law. You know what? Tr- That's interesting that they say it's Russian agents in Canada, right? Because the whole notion of Russian agents in America 
came from MI6 in the Christopher Steele dossier. Yeah, the Steele dossier. Right? Correct. So when you yeah. track back these false Russia memes, mm-hmm. it ain't Russia doing it. It's MI6 running ops in this country. Yeah, cyber ops, yeah. And they're proud of it. They're they've been doing, doing this a good job. They've been doing this oh. for so long. It's like that. It's not even differences in technique. It's the exact we, same. We speak the same language. That's the easy part for them. Yeah, you know, it's not like the MI6 trying to mess with Chinese intelligence. It's like yeah. our intelligence speaks English and was created by their intelligence agencies. <laughs> it's on board. Our intelligence is on board with their goals and missions for the most part. From the get go, dude, they didn't From even the have to infiltrate and take over. They no. created it here. <laughs> right. They, that's exactly right. Uh, martial law, Trudeau government invokes terrorism laws to seize bank accounts and crypto freedom convoys supporters. Jeffrey Jackson. Does that apply to that. HSBC? Because I'm pretty sure they operate in Canada and they are the world's largest money laundering bank all the way to East India Company and Canton and Hong Kong in the first Hong place. Hong Kong, yeah, Shanghai. Uh, Trudeau's state media labels a freedom a far-right concept. So freedom apparently is not a far-right concept. Ottawa police chief resigns due to mishandling of trucker convoy. That's slowly. That's the one that Greg Reese talked about. He's the one that resigned. The new chief of police is much more uh, pragmatic in his approach. Mm. Put it that way. Freedom convoy spokesman warns of possible false flags involving stolen firearms. Purpose of emergency powers is so Canadians learn. Oh, it Trudeau admits real purpose of Canadian powers is so Canadians learn consequences of breaking the law. Freedom Convoy donor threatened forced to close store after private info leaked and gives gives and go hack. I don't know if people saw the sort of deranged, apparently CIA connected operative, the guy who did the hacks this week, apparently has some sort of supposed CIA uh, contractual obligation or something of that nature. It sounds like Trudeau was educated by Caesar, the dog whisperer, you know, like, did you see Darren Darren McGreen's five minute video about mission going over Trudeau and Castro, dude, it's, just like I would like pictures, to see that because someone someone wrote absurd. last week they're disappointed that we would give any you know voice to that. But um, I mean, I kind of agree. Like, like normally Castro, I'm not, his normally mom seemed I'm to more, have gotten around a lot. They yeah. show Margaret Trudeau partying all over the place, and when you hold fuzzy. a man's arm like that in the picture, that traditionally is a meaningful thing. And there's other things, and besides yeah. the fact he he looks nothing like his dad, Pierre. Yeah, I know. And the fact that these ruling elites, they breed people like some people breed animals and dogs and horses and stuff. That's correct. So it's not beyond them for their handlers to be like, we want aristocracies interbreed. Aristocracies interbreed going back to ancient times. What do you think that's about? Selective breeding? Yeah. Come on now. So So I'm saying 51% chance it could be real. It's more than half. There's at least, there's a preponderance of evidence or circumstantial evidence to at least reasonably hypothesize that that could be a potential possibility. Maybe with a genetic analysis, we could actually determine that, but that's reasonable hypothesis. Let me put it that point. From normally, birthday, normally I'm very uh, estimated skept- data conception and then prove that Castro couldn't have been with Margaret Trudeau, that we could disprove it, right? Genetic evidence has been used in court of law for a long time because it was, sorry, I'm getting specific. I get yours. Yeah, I don't know. Point is like, Normally, I would agree with like what Peterson stated last week with the Patrick Bet Davis, but like this one is, it's just curious, you know. It's it's kind of fun. It's only five minutes. Some of the, the the videos and the pictures that he juxtaposes to Trudeau to the Pat. I mean, it's fascinating. It's short. So before we get to that, though, let me just finish. Give Sengo hack. Ottawa police hand out notices to truckers 
get out now or be arrested. Update CBC News, Washington Post for asking donors or give send go. Remember, this, Jeffrey Jackson really covered all this. Illegally hacked Freedom Convoy database. Governors, premiers, one trucker vaccine mandate drop. That's an interesting one. Alberta, premier Trudeau, Freedom Convoy. A couple of governors and premiers, various provinces, I guess, want the mandates to be dropped. It's having a major effect. Remember, this happened in Ottawa, specifically, about the... I saw rubber bullets possibly being used. I mean, the violence is happening on the side of rubber the bullets and uh, or smoke, smoke grenade or tear yeah, gas, smoke, probably tear gas. Yeah. Uh, there was also um, in Australia and New Zealand, either Australia, or New Zealand, they use directed energy weapons. I have that in this yes. report as well. Do we, um, have, uh, do we have any graphics of that? Because I was unaware of that. We showed that clip last week. Lewandowski had cut in. We had the drone shot, and I was surprised to see it was Australia. And I was like, good for you guys. Yay, freedom. Yes. But apparently they had some military toys they might have been using on people and, you know, crowd deterrence type of systems. And uh, yeah, yes. there was some photos. Let's see what we got. Well, we'll go. Let me, I'm at the very end here. Okay, go ahead, go ahead. Finish reading. This headlines is the uh, thread that I saw this uh, girl allegedly two days after the, the march in Canberra. Her face is all swollen. Uh a video allegedly measuring EMF levels at the event. Some images of these devices, LRAD devices. Mm. Um, yeah. But LRADs are acoustic, right? So they're acoustic, yeah. There's another device they use. It's like a microwave weapon. I forget. Yeah, what that extremely is low frequency devices. I mean, it's like a microwave generator of a sort. And then like seeing how Dan Dix's face was all red. That's from windburn because it's winter. So it's summer in Australia. Could her, her face have been sunburned or something like that? I was asking, but that looks a little different. It looks well, like she's usually got sunburned one of those peelable like, masks on. Yeah, but it's only from the top up, which is very strange. So unless that's just some yeah. sort of uh, weird makeup job, that's very strange. Yeah, so to have inflammation in the way she's having inflammation is not akin to what happens with sunburn or other types of skin conditions such as psoriasis or eczema or things yeah. of that nature. I, I know that because I suffer from eczema on my hands. But if hands. we were to look so up why the, that I, I wear gloves sometimes because I have like really bad device, hands during the winter. I'll I get bet to that. you would see symptoms like that. Yeah, yeah. Like I'd be curious. Sort of we should follow up with that. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. Some sort of a swelling going on. Yeah, some weird inflammation, which only portends to what they can do with extremely low frequencies. It goes back to a DOD document in the 60s. It talked about being able to weaponize that as far back as what's the 60s, like what, 80 years ago or something like that? No, 60 years ago. Yeah, they discovered microwaves by accident because a guy had a chocolate bar in his shirt and they're working on radar. And then they're like, oh, we could cook food with it. And it wasn't too long. It. Yeah. it wasn't too long before the guy in the meeting said, I bet we can cook people. And then they started <laughs> getting budget from Rand corporation and DARPA and yes. You know. Yes. Yeah. I should go back. We'll have to, I'll have to do a deep dive into that. And I, I forget the dog. I have it saved on one of my hard drives, but it's fascinating. I saw that years ago. Like uh, that we get a military contract with this. <laughs> it's making that money, bro. Getting that uh, government issued. Currency. Be, they the call guy the table, like, who, who exactly? Aiming at? Why? What did they do? That needs this. Well, now we're so scared we're, of them because of what? What's going now, on? You can't sit at the table and talk well, to them. Well, with five G, now you're embedded in the field, and they can use your cell phone to specifically attenuate to a certain frequency, certain frequency of that that band of frequencies, like extremely low frequency um, mm -hmm. microwave radiation, and they can like do things. Your body's made of what? Seventy percent water. And it can align with water at those frequencies. So I'm just saying, like you start hearing weird popping noises and start feeling disoriented. Get away from the towers. Nah, get a, well, tower. Get away from your phone first and foremost, because you need yeah. something to direct it more so than just 
the the towers itself. Um, no, it's on the Kingsman, dude. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Kingsman. Yeah, it's a great. Yeah, right. That's right. Okay, so real quick, uh, Freedom Convoy protesters are about governors. Okay, Freedom Convoy protesters are about to get arrested in mass. Watch lawmakers burst out laughing at Justin Trudeau saying responsible leadership. Canada's justice minister says Trump supporters should worry about having their bank accounts frozen. Uh, so predictable latest propaganda claims, Liberty activists are Russian pawns, blah, blah, blah. And then Ottawa police, here's the last one. will steal pets of arrested trucker protesters, seize their bank accounts, take their vehicles and duck their children. This got me to Friday. Then Saturday they moved in Friday, Saturday, you know, Sunday as well. I guess they moved in from my understanding. Let's go to that short clip by uh, Pierre in the uh, parliament. Is that is his name? Pierre. Yeah, Pierre. Yeah, Pierre oh, yeah, yeah, that one's at the very top. So that's one's the second one down from the top of the trucker protests. LD reject the emergency act, and then we'll go to the Darren McBreen, and I'll cover the we'll cover the New Zealand tracted energies thing as well. Then we can jump to intermission and do whatever. Madam Speaker, there is indeed an emergency <laughs> in this country. Indeed, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. This there is are a series of emergencies. There's the emergency of the family whose 14-year-old daughter has attempted suicide after two years of isolation from sports, social interaction, and other healthy activities that sustain a, a happy and heartful mind. There is the emergency of the federal public servant who for unrecognized medical reasons can't get vaccinated and is now deprived of an income and a job. There's the emergency of the trucker who was hailed as a hero while driving our goods and services across international borders unvaccinated over two years, who suddenly was declared a public health threat and deprived of his job as well. There is the emergency of the 32-year-old still living in his mom's basement because under the pretext of COVID, government printed so much money that it now costs $836,000 for the average house. There is the emergency of the single mother trembling as she walks down the grocery aisle because she can't afford a basket of affordable goods because the government has inflated her cost of living. There is the emergency of created by the regulatory gatekeepers who keep people in poverty by blocking, by blockading First Nations people from the ability to develop their own resources and blockade immigrants from the ability to work in the very professions for which they are trained and qualified. These are the emergencies we should be addressing. But instead, the Prime Minister has created a new emergency. What is his motivation? Of course, it is to divide and conquer. How did this all start? Well, let's remember, the Prime Minister suddenly imposed a brand new vaccine mandate on the very truckers who had been free to travel across borders without a vaccine. And he did it at a time when provinces and countries around the world were removing vaccine mandates. He did it to a group of people who are by far the least likely to transmit a virus because they work and sleep all by themselves 20, 
two hours a day. Media asked his health minister and his chief medical officer for evidence supporting the decision. Neither had any, and in fact, the medical officer said it was time to return to normalcy. So yet, the Prime Minister, in spite of all of these facts, brought in this new mandate to deprive people of their living. Why? Because he knew that it would spark in them a sense of desperation. If he could deprive them of their incomes, they would be so desperate that they would have to, to rise up and protest. And then he could further demonize them and call them names and attack their motives and belittle them and dehumanize them in order to galvanize the majority against the minority. This must be the political opportunity that his deputy Prime Minister spoke about when she described what COVID represented to this government. They have attempted to amplify and take advantage of every pain, every fear, every tra tragedy that has struck throughout this pandemic in order to divide one person against another and replace the people's freedom with the government's power. Now, at the beginning of the pandemic, it started immediately. The government attempted to ram through a law giving it the power to raise any tax to any level for any reason without a vote in Parliament. They tried to pass Bill C-10 to strip away free speech online. Thankfully, Conservatives blocked them for doing so. His authorities have said they want to track Canadian cell phones for the next five years. And now this, the Emergency Act, the latest and greatest example of attacks on our freedom. Ostensibly, meant to stop blockades, blockades that had already ended before he even brought forward this legislation in Alberta, Manitoba, and at the Ambassador Bridge. Peacefully, those blockades were ended in some cases with protesters hugging the police officers and bringing the matters to a successful close so that goods and services could resume. And instead, in that, in that context, the Prime Minister brought in a law that not even Jean Chrétien brought in after 9-11 killed dozens of Canadians in a terrorist attack. Not even Prime Minister Harper brought in when a terrorist murdered a Canadian soldier at the War Monument and came running into the centre block spraying bullets in all directions. And not even this Prime Minister brought in when blockaders were standing in the way of First Nations who were attempting to build the coastal gasoline pipeline. Yet for the first time in this bill's three-decade history, this law's three-decade history, the Prime Minister brings it in to address what he says was a protest in front of Parliament Hill. Ironically, this power goes beyond any of the protests and, block, and or blockades the Prime Minister claims to want to address. For example, it will allow governments and banks to seize people's bank accounts and money for donating to the wrong political cause. One journalist asked the Justice Minister if small sums donated, for example, to support an end to vaccine mandates, could get someone's bank account frozen. He didn't deny it. Instead, he said such people who make donations of that kind should be, quote, very worried. To freeze someone's bank account is not just an attack on their finances, but on their personal security. If your bank account is frozen, you can't buy food, you can't buy fuel, you can't pay your children's daycare fees, and you can, under this law, face that personal attack without being charged with a single solitary 
crime. The Prime Minister says that this is time-limited, yet his own finance minister said she wants some of the tools to be permanent. He said it will be ge geographically targeted, yet his own parliamentary secretary for justice said, quote, that the act technically applies to all of Canada. So the rules apply everywhere and indefinitely. Finally, there's nothing in the act that limits the number of financial, the kinds of financial actions that could lead someone to have their account frozen. And if they are frozen unjustifiably, the act specifically bans people from suing either the bank or the government for that unjustifiable treatment, opening the door for people who have nothing to do, nothing whatsoever to do with either the blockades or protests, having their bank accounts frozen uh, without cause. Now, the Prime Minister says that he wants to do this to remove the blockades, blockades that have already been removed. He has, says he needs these unprecedented powers in order to restore, uh, to, to bring our country's order back to the pre-protest period, although across this country that has already occurred. So, ma Madam Chair, I say to this House that I oppose this unjustifiable power grab, and as Prime Minister of Canada, I will ensure that no such abuse of power ever happens again. Well, you know, from the, I was just going to say, from the Cuban Missile Crisis to the Canadian Semi-Crisis, you have it all right there with Trudeau. <laughs> we were right. I mean, you were right, and I was right. We were both right. And this we were talking about earlier. Let's, uh, shit. Yeah, she's both. She's both. She's both. She's the finance minister and she's the deputy prime minister. Yeah, this all. comes from Christia Freeland's side gig with the WEF. Melody, should we go to that clip about asking now, about the WEF her and Canada? Her grandfather used to be at the paper saying all Jews must turn in their, their silverware before sure. they get on the trains. And here's right. the official you know, from the Fuhrer, here's the letter making it all official and her family never lost power, right? They got moved to Canada, maybe operation paperclip second generation. I don't know. She's groomed by world economic forum. She's on the executive council. She's not a nobody. And yeah, that, that seems like the one wearing the pants over there. Besides the Putin, Minister's which mansion. is his own problem. All of them have acted in exact ideological lockstep. All of them, New Zealand, Australia, uh, some, it's like it's a school and it trained all the leaders Canada, to react exactly the same to the stimulus. France. Right, right. That's exactly right. So we play that small clip about the WEF, the, someone asking in Parliament about the WEF. Yeah. Yes, please. Yeah, let's play okay. that. It's yeah. a perfect segue after that one. Let's yeah. see. And also, yeah. just real quick, we can look at a resume mm -hmm. from the World Economic Forum site. I mean, she's a Rhodes Scholar at Harvard. Oh, geez. Rhodes Scholar oh, at goodness. Oxford. Dude, then uh, launched her career Interestingly, as a Ukraine-based freelance correspondent oh, for the Financial no, Times, the Washington Post, and the Economist, uh, Economist, and then uh, Financial wait, Times. Wait, 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 wait! Ukraine-based freelance person, Financial Times, the Washington Post, and the Economist. Okay, the Economist. Holy shit! Rothschild. I mean, that's that, that's a perfect sort of uh, throwback. Resume. Sort of a, and, uh, a fractal element of what we talked about earlier with, pa with Patrick Wood. I mean, this Thompson is just Reuters, when she's later on. Thomas can't get away from the truth. Well, the idea that uh, that individual just said Parliament and in Parliament they want per some of the actions. So the, she said the deputy finance or the finance minister and deputy prime minister says they want some of these actions to be permanent, even though Trudeau is saying they're only going to be temporary. She's pushing for the permanent 
the seizure of bank accounts, these actions to be in place for financial control. And I played Larry Fink on the show. Just what you'd expect if the inmate, if the bank robbers were running the bank, instead of inmates running the asylum, you have the bank robbers running the bank. Correct. Yeah. Good fellas. There you go. There you go. All right. Run up the tab, burn it down, collect the insurance. And collect the insurance. Oh, I mean like what happened during 9-11? 9-11. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. What do you got, LD? Let's play it. Here you go. Parliament Funkadelic. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. And I listened to my colleague's speech. I had a constituent that wanted me to ask a question about outside interference to our democracy. Klaus Schwab is the head of the World Economic Forum, and he bragged how his subversive WWF World Economic Forum has, quoted, infiltrated governments around the world. He said that his organization had penetrated more than half of Canada's cabinet. And I was wondering, in the interest of transparency, could the member please name which cabinet ministers are on board with the WEF's agenda? My concern is the deputy. Uh, order, order, order. I, I know he was. I know the, uh, the member was in a, a really good, good question there, but the, the the audio is really, really bad, and the video is really, really bad as well. Um, and I and I and I apologize. I don't know if if the member. Okay, uh, let's let's, uh, uh, let's try again. The honorable. Moving on. Uh, uh, let, 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 hey, this let, is like let. when John Bolton says Taiwan doesn't exist. Remember when he isn't that? Is that my thinking of the right guy? They keep asking, and like he just avoids. The, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear your question, but he moves on to the next question. I thought that was John Bolton. So I don't. Let the, me look. I thought it was something. Mustache. I also like how that guy was like um, asking for a friend. I heard that yeah, <laughs> Kyle right. Schwab took over this place. <laughs> Do you have any comment? But asking for a friend, I guess constituent. Like you know, it's not me, not me. It's someone else asking that question. It's pretty brave. Getting that on the record. Yeah. Yeah. He's in the um, as not me. It's a constituent, just random abstraction. And then person. there was another woman in, a, in parliament, Candace Bergen, had some choice words to say to Trudeau. Although I, I was completely confused because when I clicked Candace Bergen, I expected to get like a Murphy Brown episode. But apparently there's another woman named Candace Bergen and she's in parliament and said, <laughs> How convenient. Some very choice words to Trudeau. I think we might have played that clip last That's week. That's funny. I yeah. forgot the Murphy Brown reference. Murphy so. Brown mall. Calling it back. <laughs> All right. You could pull that. <laughs> Let's see here real quick. Yay for the, the three Zealand. people who have seen that show and uh, are old enough to know. All right. What do we else uh, do we have from the YouTube playlist that would fit in before the intermissions content? Because we're we're making a mosaic of information. You had a bunch of uh, Jimmy Dore this week, but I had I hadn't I don't like nothing. Everything else is quite specific and kind of regurgitates what we already know. Like if I go through, for example, vaccines, you know, myocarditis went over that last week. We've been going over that for the past year plus. It's um, still going. Frequent on. boosters threaten the immune system. That's from the European Medical Agency, which is basically their version of the F, or of our FDA. CDC changes vaccine definition, calls it normal. Kim Iverson, JAMA mRNA vaccines elevate. Okay, Chris Martinson, younger men and calls CDC to rethink dose. Younger myocarditis, younger men call CDC to rethink dose. It's Kim Iverson, Pfizer. I also Yanks saw child Pfizer. Vaccine. Yes. Yeah. Pfizer, Yanks, child vaccine. Let's go to that clip because I think it's telling. Like 
Oh, FDA was about to rubber stamp it, except Project Veritas came out this past week with an FDA executive saying, here's the real agenda. And then all of a sudden, Pfizer pulls it off the market. They're like, oh, the cat got out of the bag on that. It was Mm -hmm. almost out there. They almost had your kids with that. And Pfizer doesn't even think it's safe enough because they pulled it from the market. Because I think Project Veritas... Yeah, that's, I was at my dad's. We have that clip setting up. The, yeah, because he yeah. denies it, and my, then James calls him. Yes, before the guy even realizes what's we going on. Should play both of those. We yeah, should let's get play them. Time capsule because yes. I was at my dad's house setting up equipment for the new house and all this. And so he much had on Fox News in the background, week. and I heard Hannity. It was on Hannity of all things to have. I'm like James O'Keefe. What the hell is going on? And then they show the phone conversation. I'm like, what? And the FDA the denies are like, he doesn't really work for us, <laughs> but we forgot to tell him our story. So he just told O'Keefe a story that contradicts our story. <laughs> yeah. I've got the, yeah, the PR from the, oh, the HR managing the human resources and forgot yeah. to send over that memo. This is what you were supposed to say. You weren't, you know, it's supposed to be too honest there. So anyways, um, yeah. You Do got we it, have right? that clip? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He's got it. Then we'll go to project. We're going to do the Pfizer Yanks child vaccine first and project Veritas. Yeah. And then yeah, project yeah. Veritas. Yeah. Although, although wait, project Veritas probably happened before. So let's pray project Veritas yeah, so that's first right and then that. you'll see more why they might've, uh, cause he guy says he's uh, six months to five-year-olds they're targeting with this. Now who knows if it's safe. Right? So there's, two, they're just going to rubber stamp it. There's two dumps here. Let me put it back on screen. So FDA executive officer on hidden camera. So there's one on hidden camera reveals future of COVID policy where he talks about yeah, how they're already working with the Biden administration to mandate. Right. A, and that's a, the raw Project Veritas footage. And then they show I part of it during the Hannity. One. Well, there's a second right? one. Yeah, they show Well, the second one, there's part two. Let me see. Let me that's see which where he one. calls them. I think. So the first one, should we play both? Well, yeah, play them both. Yeah, play both. So play the first one with that one's February fifteenth. Play the so, first one, the second one, the part where he calls them and busts yeah. them. They're in, they're in, they're in correct order. So I'll highlight these. They're just a little bit down. You got them all these. So the first one's just right above, but you can load up these back to back. So the first one, yeah, this is guy. And FDA you know, I empathize. Like cannon. here's this guy. He's just trying to go on a date. He thinks if he says the right thing at the table, like you know, he might find the love of his life, or however it's going to work out for him in his picture. But they're going to have to start like shipping in people to these executives because they're not going to be allowed to use online dating because they all keep getting caught by Project Veritas. And, you know, these companies are going to be like, all right, stop with the Tinder. But here's one who probably got caught from the Tinder. <laughs> the hookup back. Biden wants to inoculate as many people as possible. So you have to get an annual shot. I mean, it hasn't been formally announced yet. They don't want to like uh, rile everyone up. The drug companies, the food companies, the vaccine companies, they pay us hundreds of millions of dollars a year to hire and keep the reviewers to approve their products. If they can get every person required at an annual vaccine, that is a recurring return of um, uh, money going into their, their company. I mean, just from everything I've heard, they're not going to not approve this. Meet Christopher Cole, an executive officer at the FDA with over 20 years experience who claims to be directly involved in the approval process of the various COVID vaccines. What you're about to witness raises some alarming concerns from the government's desire to mandate an annual vaccine for everyone, including young children, to the billions of dollars that exchange hands between our government and Big Pharma to railroad the approval process. 
I'm a manager for the uh, Food and Drug Administration. My uh, my agency oversees vaccines, oh. vaccine approvals, and and uh, devices for vaccines. And my office clears all the uh, emergency approvals. Since COVID is under an emergency uh, order, we expedite the approval of any emergency. I've been there for like 22 years. Biden wants to inoculate as many people as possible. So you can have to get an annual shot. I mean, it hasn't been formally announced yet because they don't want to like uh, rile everyone up. Is so, it going to be formally announced? Yeah, yeah, at some point. I mean, it's going to be, uh, uh, and some of it's been talked about publicly, but it has been talked about on like CNN or Fox or MSNBC or anything. Um, but yeah, it'll, 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 you'll have to get uh, an annual. I think um, what's going to happen is um, it's going to be a gradual thing. School's going to mandate it. Why do they need the third one? Well, the same reason um, that you or I would need the third one, to, because the, the vaccine, um, it wanes. Mm -hmm. um, your ability to fight it, it wanes. So the three will bolster your, your system. And then there will be an annual, um, eventually an annual, just like the flu shot. For the toddlers? Well, for everyone. Okay, so the toddlers too then. We'll have to get it. Probably. Okay. I mean, yeah. that's in the future. We're not sure. Mm -hmm. That might involve more, uh, more studies. The FDA was scheduled to meet this week to discuss approval of the Pfizer vaccine for children as young as six months old. They were hoping to have the new vaccine available by the end of the month, but the meeting was unexpectedly canceled, citing the need for more testing. You guys have been in the news a lot the last couple of days. Yeah, we're looking at um, trying to prove. Um, I don't completely agree with their the process. They're looking at trying to inoculate um, um, kids under five years old, mm -hmm. between six months and five years old. What do you mean you don't agree with the process? Well, I mean they um, they don't have all the all the tests aren't there. So I agree with the thing that it is important to inoculate them. Um, but you can't provide the, um, the parent as much um, assurity as you normally want to. Despite Cole's concerns regarding the possible dangers of vaccinating young children, it seems the FDA is still willing to go through with this approval. It's an EUA for all, all, um, all age groups, all designations, and then you have to get approved by specific age groups based on the study. Do you think it's really an emergency? For the toddlers? Well, they're all uh, improved under an emergency just because it, um, it's not as as impactful as some of the other approvals, emergency approvals, but they're all being approved under that uh, standard. The efficacy data doesn't have to be as high. The standard is on emergency use authorizations is that it does more benefit than harm. So how do you know it's already getting approved? Well, they're not going to, um, I mean, just from everything I've heard, they're not going to not approve it. I thought their cases weren't that high for six what, months to four-year-olds. They're not, but it, because it's um, related to COVID, it's under that approval process. So how many babies did they have to jab, basically, for the trial? I don't know. I haven't looked at the trial, um, how many people they did. You never, there's always a chance of long, long-term effects, especially with someone younger. Cole seems certain the federal government will require annual COVID vaccines, including young children, even though the efficacy, adverse reactions, and long-term effects are still unknown. It's hard to find, like, pregnant women 
um, for these studies and, um, and a significant number in order to be uh, statistically uh, accurate. I haven't tested enough on pregnancy, on you know vaccines and everything, and, and women because they have different you know systems than men. And they haven't they, tested enough. Well, they they have, but they, they haven't done enough. Prior. Now they also been, also been very good at promoting that, but that was an issue for uh, a period of time. Well, I feel like that's still an issue. It is still an issue. It's still, it's still, we have, still haven't gotten there. I, I read like a couple articles about it, and everything I saw was that the first two shots weren't effective. There, there has been um, yes, it is has not been as effective as they're expecting. I agree. And if all that doesn't raise some eyebrows, just wait until you see what he says in part two about the billions of dollars exchanging hands between our government and Big Pharma and what really goes on behind the scenes during the approval process. There's almost a billion dollars a year going into FDA's budget from the people we um, regulate. If they can get every person required an annual vaccine, that is a recurring return of um, uh, money going into their, their company. So they're giving more money. Yes, that's great. And increase the chance of uh, an approval. Well, the dirty stuff is never really publicized. I mean, yeah, obviously there's, it's, there's, on, more it's there's more pressure. There's more pressure to prove something. They tone down the impact of the user fees on their operations. They know they're dependent on the drug companies and the vaccine companies and these other companies for their agency to operate. It'll be a recurring um, fountain of revenue. If they can get every person required at an annual vaccine, that is a recurring return of uh, uh, money. Oh, the drug companies, the food companies, the vaccine companies, so they pay us hundreds of millions of dollars a year to hire and keep the reviewers to approve their products. Well, there's a money center for uh, Pfizer and the drug companies to um, promote um, additional vaccinations. Like how much um, money do they get? Well, I mean, um, it's well. It'll be it'll be a recurring um, fountain of revenue. It might not be that much initially, but it'll be recurring. If they can if they can get every person required at an annual vaccine, that is a recurring return of um, uh, money going into their their company. Okay, so like if they mandate it for these toddlers, right. then right. it's the guaranteed income. It. Right at some level. So, do you think that's part of the reason why? Well, that's, I don't think that's the reason, but th that's obviously um, one of, that's one of the benefits. Right. They clearly want it um, also for that reason. A long time ago, uh, Congress approved uh, user fees for FDA. Basically, we charge the industry uh, millions of dollars in order to hire more drug reviewers and vaccine reviewers. Uh, which will speed up the approval process so they make more money. My car budget's like, it's like five, five and a half billion. Wait, five and a half billion for what? FDA's budget. There's almost a billion dollars a year going into FDA's budget from the people we um, 
regulate. What do you mean the people? Right. Well, the drug companies, the food companies, the vaccine companies. So they pay us hundreds of millions of dollars a year to hire and keep the reviewers to approve their products. And there's not a direct correlation. I think sometimes the agency um, whitewashes the impact of the user fees. They tone down the impact of the user fees on their operations because they know they're dependent on the drug companies and the vaccine companies and these other companies for their agency to operate. On the overall impact on approvals, I don't think it has an impact on um, FDA operations. Okay. On, you know, on general, I mean, obviously there are some people in the agency which might think more favorably on some drug, the drug companies mm -hmm. that are in the approval process. Well, the dirty stuff is never really publicized. I mean, yeah, obviously but there's, it's, come there's, on, more it's there's more pressure. There's more pressure to approve something just because it's uh, most of the most of them. Well, almost all of them are based on the actual data. So they're giving more money. Yes, that's great, and it increases the chance of uh, an approval. But if the data is not there. It comes and bites the reviewer in the, in the ass, where they all approve it, and then like there's adverse reactions, which we have to pull off the market. Does that happen? This happens. It happens a lot. And all these like uh, organizations within FDA, they like started to see all this cash in their eyes. It's like, oh, I, I need to grab some of that. And I think we've gone too far on that. They're getting a little overzealous in charging the uh, the user charging the user fees to other non-payroll expenses why would they do that well why not um, the money gets banked it's not spent it's a multi-year and the money gets banked there and uh, you want to be able to spend it spend it on on whatever you can whether it's right or wrong so then congress approved it uh, at a smaller level they approved it mainly for payroll but then also now it's supporting infrastructure and everything, it's just like this animal out there. I, I think it's probably um, excessive. Um, but industry doesn't want to complain about it too much. But I think um, FDA is probably, I think they're using it to cover other expenses that don't necessarily tie in with the need of the user fees. I don't think there's enough people saying there, like, look, that's fine, but that's not right. So we're not going to charge that. You don't want to be that person. You're not going to have a long uh, shelf life in the agency if you're always that person. Always that person that's kind of over. It's like criticizing or suggesting that maybe we shouldn't be doing this. So if you speak out about it, if you see them, you're you're, um, you're marked. What do you mean you're marked? You, um, you're not going to get to certain levels in government. There's not an incentive to uh, speak out in, in government, surprisingly. You would think there would be, but there's not. It's better just to just um, not say anything and just ignore it. The whistleblower, um, while it's high profile, the whistleblower statutes and everything, that's kind of ridiculous. Uh, there's no protection for someone who speaks up. Isn't there supposed to be? There is supposed to be, but like, there's easy ways to get around that. Um, How do you get around it? Well, you um, 
you you'd be marked from getting other jobs because another office is not going to want, going to, want to hire you if you spoke it out about something right or wrong. They don't look at what you've spoken out about. They're just not willing to. Um, government's about rocking the boat. And they don't want to, which is the problem I have with one of the problems I have with government is like they don't like people rocking the boat for right or wrong at all costs. They want to hire a safe person that can do the job, but doesn't necessarily is a great hire. So, the type of person that will turn turn a blind eye if they see that's who they would that's who they would hire. Uh, from what I've heard, and they, um, no one's going to hire that person. You're like you're stunned. It's better just to stay stay quiet and accept it. Right now, do we have where he called that guy in the office? So FDA made a statement, and they didn't tell that guy. You know, Keith called them and said, "We're about to go to press in a half hour." They didn't put that on there. I just I saw it on. It's Hannity in the Hannity like clip. It, yeah, so we can. That's just the only on reason YouTube. the Hannity clips there is he had that clip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, let me pull it up real quick. Keith, that's where I saw it because I was at my dad's and I was taking place at my parents' house. I should say. Here it is, LD. Um, I'll put it like right underneath what you displayed. Sorry about that. And right here. And for the record, what that guy said about whistleblowers okay, is right true. There. That's true. Absolutely. And that's why people like him turn their head and cough and turn a blind eye to it and take the money because they know even if you do the opposite, if you try to do the right thing, they'll just crush your career. And I know that from personal experience, but it's good that people like him know it too, I guess, because that uh, got him the Project Veritas fame. See, he could have been a whistleblower and told all that stuff and said, here's what's going on. But oh, instead, wait, that's wrong. I'm sorry. I'm he went on a date that's, uh, with wrong a woman who asked very insightful questions and had multiple camera angles and crystal clear audio. I'm a fan of her production value. Where the fuck did the video go? It was up here. Uh, let's check Odyssey, I guess. Or was Rob, it in the, the YouTube playlist? Yeah, it's in the YouTube playlist. Yeah, check the YouTube uh, playlist. Yeah, I should have checked that. Go to my Fox original News. list. Fox News. It's missing now. It was there earlier. Um, dun, dun, dun. Uh, this one. Get shaggy FDA. Crew. James go. O'Keefe sh- joins Hannity tapes. to discuss new exposed FDA bombshell report. And there it is. Yeah, let's check All that right. out. All right, I'm Tucker, and thank you. And welcome to Hannity. And tonight's scary news from the Biden administration, yearly COVID-19 vaccine mandates. Let me repeat, yearly mandates with new shots, uh, what, in perpetuity? At least that's what one FDA executive said in a new bombshell undercover video from Project Veritas. Take a look. So you can have to get an annual shot. So just fast yeah, forward to the formally towards, uh, like two thirds of the like, way uh, through the interview. Going up. Is it going to be formally? There it is. Yeah. It's a person. It's not represent the views of the FDA, but the FDA did not respond on the record right to the specific like right there, claim. Yeah. 
Wow. Now, the FDA gave us a statement. They said, quote, the person purportedly in the video, are they doubting it's that person, uh, does not work on vaccine matters and does not represent the views of the FDA, but the FDA did not respond on the record to the specific claims made in the video. They didn't respond directly to these explosive revelations. We also reached out to Pfizer for comment. They didn't call us back. But Project Veritas founder James O'Keefe, he spoke with Cole just before he released his first tape late, late last night about his involvement in emergency use authorization for vaccines. That would seem to contradict what the FDA is saying. Here's what he had to say in this conversation. Hey, um, we're doing a story on the FDA tonight, including some comments you made about the approval process. Reaching out to you for comment. Um, reached out to the FDA and they claim you have nothing to do with the department that approves vaccines, even though you said to my colleague that you did. So my question is, which is it? We're releasing this story in 30 minutes. Well, our office doesn't, is not involved in the approval of vaccines. Yes. And we did get a, a response from the FDA, and the statement read that, quote, the person in the video, that's you, does, does not work on vaccine matters and does not represent the views of the FDA. So you're saying that you do, in fact, work on COVID vaccine emergency approvals, correct? I'm a manager in the office that, over, that helps uh, oversee the approval of the COVID vaccine for emergency approval. Is this the first time you're hearing about the video? Is from from me? Uh, yes. Has the FDA talked to you directly? They have not. Wow. So they just made a statement without even speaking to you? Well, they, I'm not involved. My office is not involved at all in the approval of vaccines. James O'Keefe joins us now. By the way, the entire uh, uh, tape is on his website. It's linked to my website, Hannity.com. Uh, this is blockbuster in so many different ways. Now, they claim he has nothing to do with the vaccines, but he has a big role to play in the authorization of emergency use for vaccines, uh, and he's an FDA executive officer, James. That would seem like a high up position. And if you're involved in the emergency authorization, that would mean you have to know a thing or two about what he was saying. Yeah, Sean, thank you. I mean, this is extraordinary because we received not one, but two on the record statements from the Food and Drug Administration in the last 24 hours. The first, the person purportedly in the video, there he is in the video, these are not my claims, they're the claims out of the mouth of an executive person inside the Food and Drug Administration. The person purportedly in the video does not work on vaccine matters when he says, and in, repeatedly, that he handles these emergency youth authorizations uh, on toddler vaccines. He says they're the FDA, is not going to not approve this so-called toddler vaccine. He's basically rubber stamping it. And a video we just broke moments ago, Sean, talks about the fountain of money, the fountain of revenue that goes into the FDA. Uh, the money they get from these pharmaceutical companies makes it more likely to approve their products. So this is an extraordinary story. Now, the FDA has given us yet ahead, another it. statement tonight, Sean. All right, so... <clears throat> I have this question. The FDA is taking money from all these drug companies, right? Tim Myers did the big thing what if, that a couple months What ago. if you just looked at Pfizer like it was the East India Company? Could you see what's going on maybe? Because, you know, these mandates and the drugs and the power, there's like an overlap between the 
the royalty and the royalties become a private extension of the government essentially like the recurring revenue that's royalties that's one and another type of royalty all right i think we're ready to roll into intermission so that was me doing the segue uh, the first up, we're going to play uh, from Nuremberg 2.0 Grand Jury, day two, giving you the history of the institutions behind uh, the Great Reset pandemic situation that has been going on, besieging the world in a type of warfare for the past two years. Economic, social, civil, all sorts of different warfare, inf- informational, uh, all at the same time right? Broad spectrum, full spectrum dominance type of technology they're bringing. Let's learn a little bit about the history. Uh, the first gent is uh, Alex Thompson from British GCHQ. You heard that, right? Like from the people who brought you Black Cube and NSA and uh, created GCHQ out of their own star chamber system. This guy worked there and knows a lot about the history that happened before GCHQ became a thing. Now, I have, uh, I'll have to, I have the GCHQ. Oh, here it is. It's hiding. GCHQ, the secret wireless war. They came around in 1900. Okay. So he's going to talk about some history prior to 1900, and then he's going to bring you up to speed on what's been going on. And particularly what I liked about Thompson was he gives you the perspective of inside the British elite. Insofar as if you're if you want to be upwardly mobile in the United Kingdom, you can either go work for the banking or you can work for national defense and the intelligence agencies that defend the banking. Like there's two things. These are the two routes to power in their system. And he chose to go work at Signals Intelligence. And uh, he's followed up by Matthew Arrett, uh, who I was also new to his work. But I had several people send me these clips and they're like, uh, this is very similar to the research that you've been doing for the past 15 years. You should take a look. And I did. I watched it a couple of times and I showed my wife. I'm like, look, it's other people saying basically the same thing that we've been pointing out, but they have different sets of evidence. They have different sets of experiences. And to come to the same conclusion independently, I think, is a very monumentous, uh, monumental moment, momentous moment in uh, history of freedom. So let's go ahead and spin up tonight's intermission, which is coming from Nuremberg 2.0, day two of the trial. We're also going to be checking out Patrick Wood's uh, testimony, but that'll be probably next week's sample. This week's sample is going to come from the historians uh, heretofore mentioned and let it roll their LD. So that's two nine eleven callback references. Let's mm-hmm. roll and pull it. Real quick, real quick. Um, Alex Thompson is the... Yeah, PCHQ. Yeah, I know that, but he's. Yeah. I have him as the, the his entire forty five minute segment. So you just let us know if you want to cut it off. Well, do you know if you want to cut it off and move on to how much time? Did we, how much did you have Eric's presentation to? I didn't get it, but I mean, we could find it within you know while right. running the other. So let's he play find it That's fifteen just... of Thompson. Play the first fifteen because he gets the Carol Quigley by minute eight, if I remember correctly. And then jump into uh, Eric's presentation when he's covering, like yeah. any uh, any of the East India Company machinations. I'll have to go back and look while we're doing. Yeah, I'll look as well. See if we can find. All right, but we're gonna get it moving, and then we'll like adjust it on the way. <laughs> 
I am Alex Thompson, and for eight years I was an officer of Britain's Signal Intelligence Agency, GCHQ, the partner agency to NSA. And there I was a desk officer for the former Soviet Union and a transcriber out of languages, including Russian and German, of intercepted material. And in the latter half of that period, I was also a member of GCHQ's cross-disciplinary team for chemical, biological, radiological and nuclear threats, CBRN, in which capacity I came to know something about how the Anglo-American intelligence and military establishment regards its state of dominance in knowledge uh, in all matters that can affect health on a mass scale and the potential for weaponization of such agents. Uh, but you've asked me to give uh, something like a 20-minute uh, summary of the geopolitical situation as it was in the world in the crucial period leading up to the post-Second World War period, because most of the testimonies this evening, and I understand in subsequent uh, sessions of the grand jury, will concentrate much on the post-1945 world and that really being the uh, time when a lot of plans for uh, unification of world government began in anger, including the health issues that you are concerned with. And my contention is that the dominant power in the world, namely the city of London, the financial heart of the British Empire, uh, readied itself for that situation from roughly 1870 and that the modern world, the monopolization, the cartelization of the world begins in anger at that time. Uh, everything that we do, and by we I mean UK column news, uh, I am also joined this evening by Brian Gerrish, the joint editor who will testify later, everything that we do in investigating the corruption emanating from uh, British crown monopolies and City of London money uh, does seem to point back to this period from around 1870, in which, in a nutshell, there were several revolutions by the British elite, and they all revolved around containing productivity and preventing a growth of uh, intelligence and uh, intellectual property uh, among the native peoples of the British Empire and in competitor nations. So there was a revolution in what you might call mind space, which since 2010 has been an uh, explicit term used by the British government's central department, the cabinet office a revolution in the quality of education offered to British and later other Western school children, a revolution in the theft of intellectual property by the elite, a revolution in the model of healthcare and free access to it, and at home a constitutional revolution uh, from the classic British uh, liberal democracy model, which I know that the continent of Europe and its law schools have uh, explicitly copied from Britain, to a model in which there is close control of what happens in parliaments and in agencies under the control of governments uh, using the whipped party system. This all happened, as I say, around 1870, and at home in Britain, it was largely complete by the crucial year 1947-1948, when Britain had a unique uh, other than Canada, a unique situation of a national health service uh, and was pushing the way towards the military unification of the European continent and the whole of NATO, and in many other ways, including planning law and citizenship, was leading the world in reinventing how it managed its population. The centre node here is the City of London. 
That is the square mile uh, at the very heart of what is now called Greater London. Uh, why this is important is because the City of London and the Church of England are the only institutions that have endured every constitutional revolution in the British Isles with their privileges and their vast wealth intact. The City of London is distinct from other world metropolitan areas, uh, megalopolises, in that it chose to keep itself geographically small as the urban area around it grew. The City of London still has a legal status apart from the 32 under other London boroughs and does not really form part of Greater London as, uh, as such. Its privileges were entrenched as early as Magna Carta 1215. Its self-government has never been challenged. It has at many times in its history had power over the British crown and hence over a large slice of the earth during the British Empire, uh, notably during the civil wars of the mid-17th century, uh, when the city of London continued as the financial power rivaling the crown and even in some ways abolished the crown for a decade. And after the restoration of the crowns and ultimately the English Revolution, uh, just six years after that with the Dutch Dutch King William III coming to the crown of Great Britain, the Bank of England was set up in 1694 with a £12.5 million uh, injection of cash into the crown uh, by these private shareholders, uh, which uh, we are reliably told forms the basis of all the debt which has been leveraged since to this day. And the current descendants of those shareholders and others entitled uh, to shares of the Bank of England are kept secret. Uh, the City of London also has control over the so-called Mother of Parliaments, the Westminster Parliament, notably in the form of an official of the City of London known as the Remembrancer, who sits in the House of Commons where not even the monarch is allowed to enter and records what is being said against financial interests. It's too complicated uh, to give a definition of the Crown in the British model, uh, but what is important is that the Cabinet Office, uh, a department which was set up in the early 20th century, is the repository effectively of Crown prerogatives. And so when people outside the United Kingdom think of the Crown, uh, they often think excessively of the old situation with the monarch standing on the coronation oath and being responsible to the people. Uh, in practice, uh, in this period from around 1870, the constitutional revolution has ensured that financiers controlling political parties uh, actually pull the levers of crown prerogatives. Uh, behind the scenes, the model of government Britain still has, and which it has exported to the Commonwealth and the whole world, is that of an inner sanctum, the Privy Council, which actually governs in the name of the Crown. And it is only for show, as the main constitutional writers have admitted since the 1870s, only for show that Parliament and government departments are consulted as if there were a separation between executive, legislature and judiciary. At Privy Council level, this is not the case. Uh, in this crucial period about which we are speaking, the preeminent English constitutional writer, Walter Bajho, admitted this in the, 17th, in the second edition of his book, The English Constitution, written in 1873, just when the modern whipped party and behind them the think tank were coming into their own to establish the will of monopolists in the city of London. Walter Bajho wrote in one paragraph there about a distinction between the, quote, dignified parts of the government, that is, the parts that are there for show, uh, the crown uh, in its personal sense and the quote efficient parts in the sense of the working parts of the machine and he admits that the attractive parts do have a purpose but that is only to attract the force of national support to the really working parts behind the scenes now 
to simplify this as much as possible, uh, what I think is important to point out is that uh, the uh, history uh, academic at Georgetown University, Carol Quigley, that's C-A-R-R-O-L-L Quigley, who was the tutor of Bill Clinton, among others, uh, uh, wrote quite frankly in his book, Tragedy and Hope, A History of the World in Our Time, that there have been four industrial revolutions. Yes, that familiar language coming from the World Economic Forum uh, was being written about in the 1960s already by Quigley. And we will not understand this unless we see that the perspective which is being assumed here is that of who owns the population, first in Britain and then in the British Empire. In the first revolution, uh, the ownership of land, of agricultural means, uh, provides wealth. Then there is a mechanical industrial revolution, a second revolution, then one in which financial capital dominates the world. And it's from this period, period around 1870 onwards that the smart money in the city of London realises that even that bubble is going to burst and that the really important way to own the world in future will be to own the mines and the productivity and the thoughts of those uh, in the model to make to stop them running away uh, and becoming and outproducing their bosses. So the modern era of cartelization in both industry and geopolitics began around the year 1870. In the space of just a few years around that date, the world underwent a fundamental shift from a situation in which the city of London and the British Empire lacked any serious competition to a world in which several industrialised economies were able to outcompete Britain. The British Empire and its financial hub in the city of London had massively overextended themselves across Asia in the previous generation, especially with the Afghan wars and the Opium Wars in the 1840s and the Crimean War and the Indian Mutiny of the 1850s. One of the City of London's most powerful banks, HSBC, dates, in fact, from the time of the Chinese opium trade. Uh, there is quite a lot of criminality involved in the City of London's banks uh, in the outset. In Europe, the post-Napoleonic order imposed by Britain at the Congress of Vienna in 1815 had begun to crumble with both the successful and the failed socialist revolutions of 1848. Russia and Austria-Hungary were the Eastern European countries with the most powerful land armies at that time, and it was they who safeguarded Europe by restoring the crowned heads. Therefore, the obsession of British foreign policy from the midpoint of the 19th century, uh, and this is something I saw when I attended Chatham House meetings, the, the uh, supreme, the world's supreme geopolitical think tank in many ways, which tells the Foreign Office what to do. The obsession of British foreign policy from the midpoint of the 19th century was a new strategy, namely to ally with the arch rivals of the past, France and even the Ottoman Empire, against Britain's historic allies in Northern and Central Europe in order to prevent any future Russo-German alliance from becoming the world's dominant bloc. And a secondary strategy there was to prevent the meteoric rise of American intellectual productivity and democratization of invention, uh, and to try to capture that. As early as 1812, British troops invading Washington, D.C., notably spared the patent office because they knew that if they burnt that, they would be shooting themselves in the foot and stopping themselves from being able to continue to dominate American invention after the American Revolution. Now, in the years around 1860, under Bismarck, Garibaldi and Tsar Nikolai I, 
three major European nations, which previously had been great only in cultural terms, had suddenly become politically unified and economically modern states. And with the Großdeutschland, Kleindeutschland debate, there were serious indications that Germany might ally with Austria into a single Germany-speaking state. And it was obvious to the British elite that within a generation or two, all three of these countries, Germany, Italy and Russia, would become great powers at roughly the same level as Britain and France. The United States emerged from its civil war in 1865 and began a staggeringly rapid rise to industrial supremacy. Britain's elite correctly foresaw that by around 1900, all four of these new powers would begin to have navies as strong as France's or even as strong as Britain's, and foresaw that the land armies of these European powers would be far stronger than Britain's, so that only a previously unthinkable Franco-British alliance in the name of human rights and a spread of liberal democracy would be able to hold these powers in check. By 1880, the so-called scramble for Africa was in full swing, which allowed even territorially minor nations in Europe, such as Belgium and Portugal, to acquire substantial resources from colonization of the African interior and to become serious rivals to British industry and commerce. This was a severe embarrassment to the city of London because, for example, Portugal was Britain's oldest ally and Belgium was a state that owed its very existence to British negotiation in 1815. Serious arguments have been made by historians that the, well, the wave of assassinations in the Edwardian era, including that of the Portuguese royal family in 1908 and the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand in 1914, were engineered with secret City of London connivance. There was also an Asian country that became a great power in both industrial and military terms at the end of the 19th century, namely Japan, which to the world's frank astonishment beat Russia in 1905, thereby giving many colonial populations in Africa and Asia the inspiration that there was no reason why they too could not assert themselves against European rule in the way that the Latin American republics already had against Spain. The following year, 1906, was the year of the naval race, the Dreadnought Crisis, which perhaps inevitably started the countdown to the Great War, the First World War, because both the British and the German elite were now determined to achieve Weltherrschaft, world domination. Both were rightly suspicious of each other's motives. Both were technically capable of achieving world domination, both industrially and in the mind space, and both had powerful blocks of allies for the first time. In a nutshell, the change brought about by the existential crisis of the mid to late 19th century was that the City of London's trading model, as described by Quigley, the successive waves of monopolies, this model came to emphasise the importance of controlling not just military force or physical assets anymore, but the minds of people, now known as human resources, in the British Empire and further afield. And this is why science fiction starts speaking about ownership of man's genetic makeup from this time in order that the City of London could sell goods and increasingly services to the rest of the world, which would never catch up in the mind space. It is the consistent finding of UK Column and of allied researchers and commentators that the City of London and Britain's very wealthy soft power institutions, the ones that Tony Blair even this month has once again told us we must keep and become well-beating using, such as the British Council, the BBC, British Academia and the Church of England, that these institutions continue to regard that battle for the mind as their top priority for world domination and that they regard health as a subsector of that battle. We are also fully convinced from repeated findings that the British elite regard themselves with some justification as still the world's leading power in mind space. 
In other words, the City of London gets other nations to do its donkey work and its dirty work for it, and it does this, above all, by pulling off the trick of making its own population, Britain and the Commonwealth, and the elites of other nations assume its perspective and its narrative, rather than their own perspectives and narratives. This is the concentration that I had in my British elite education, and this is the concentration that the British intelligence agencies have had through both World Wars and the Cold War. It is not a formal strategy that is taught in boarding schools or universities or officer training or intelligence agencies, but it is very much the credo of the leading so-called bloodlines of elite families that run the City of London. And it is the modus operandi of the Anglo-American tax-exempt foundations and of the think tanks, such as Chatham House above all, which push the agendas of those bloodlines upon the Western governments. Uh, a key figure from the year 1870 is that uh, of John Ruskin, uh, seemingly an innocuous figure because he was the first professor of art at Oxford, uh, but he brought the doctrine that the uh, British elite really had a duty to export its own worldview to the rest of the world in very broad brush terms. And his key student whom he inspired was Cecil Rhodes, who of course became fabulously wealthy in Southern Africa. Cecil Rhodes, and this is all documented by very many historians, uh, wrote secret diaries and formed secret societies. In 1891, after 16 years planning, his main secret society was formed. The Rhodes Scholarships are part of that society. Um, Oxford members of the Rhodes Network were the likes of Lord Toynbee and Lord Milner, well-known geostrategists. In Cambridge, there was the future Foreign Secretary Lord Grey and Lord Esher. In London, there was the leading journalist of the time, W.T. Stead. And initiates and members of the executive committee of Cecil Rhodes were the above-named men, plus Lord Rothschild. After Rhodes' death in 1902, other leading English bloodlines that repeatedly plague a City of London history, such as the Astors, came into the same circle. The outer circle uh, to achieve the will of Cecil Rhodes, this uh, seemingly benign vision of Britain forcing the world to accept its liberal democracy and accept its way of uh, viewing the world, the outer circle became known as the round table groups, still functioning in the United States and seven other countries set up from 1909 onwards. Uh, this group regarded the, the success of the Canadian Federation 1867 as its leading case study. You'll be hearing more about that from Matt Ayrett later. Canada was effectively politically unified and later the other white colonies, the white dominions, in order to prevent there being a spread of different views, uh, different uh, English-speaking democracies in the world. They must instead all be traced back to the City of London's control. And this is very contemporary, too, because uh, among the many Rhodes scholars uh, of, uh, that dominate world politics and push the world towards globalism are the aforementioned Bill Clinton and, from the World Economic Forum, uh, the New Zealand lady, uh, Professor Ngairi Woods, who this year became very well known for her saying at the WEF that the elite can do beautiful things if they come together and if the people of the world simply accept that they are in the lead. Rhodes wrote in one of his secret diaries, quote, why should we not form a secret society with but one object, meaning with only one object, the furtherance of the British Empire and the bringing of the whole uncivilized world under British rule for the recovery, that means recovery for Britain, of the United States and for the making of the Anglo-Saxon race but one empire? He also wrote, let us form the same kind of society, a church for the extension of the British Empire.
This is mind space, my comment. Rhodes continues, <clears throat> a society which should have its members in every part of the British Empire working with one object and one idea. We should have its members placed at our universities and our schools and should watch the English youth passing through their hands. Just one perhaps in every thousand would have the mind and feelings for such an object. This is what Rhodes scholarships are for. He should be tried in every way. He should be tested whether he is endurant, possessed of eloquence, disregardful of the petty details of life, and if found to be such, in other words, a psychological test, then he should be elected and bound by oath that is sworn to secrecy to serve for the rest of his life in his country. He should then be supported, if without means, by the society and sent to that part of the empire where it is felt he was needed. And in this vision, of course, the United States is part of the empire. In another of his wills, Rhodes described his intent in more detail, quote, to and for the establishment, promotion and development of a secret society, the true aim and object whereof shall be for the extension of British rule throughout the world. The colonisation by British subjects of all lands where the means of livelihood are attainable by energy, labour and enterprise, and especially the occupation by British settlers of the entire continent of Africa, the Holy Land, the Valley of the Euphrates, modern Iraq, the islands of Cyprus and Candia, that is Crete, the whole of South America, the islands of the Pacific not heretofore possessed by Great Britain, the whole of the Malay archipelago, those aboard of China and Japan, meaning offshore of China and Japan, and the ultimate recovery of the United States of America as an integral part of the British Empire. This vision did not remain the ravings of a particularly wealthy Englishman, uh, but they nativized themselves in the United States, in the so-called Eastern establishment, the Eastern seaboard, as the United States became the world's dominant power. The key testimony on this is that of Norman Dodd, the ODD, given shortly before his death in 1982 to G. Edward Griffin, easily found online uh, as Norman Dodd on the tax-exempt foundations. Dodd was the key staffer for uh, Reese, the congressman from East Tennessee, R-E-E-C-E, -E, um, who in the 1950s carried out on behalf of Congress an investigation into the effect of these tax-exempt foundations in the United States, which implemented the City of London's and Cecil Rhodes' vision for world domination. Uh, now, I'm going to uh, read what Dodd said uh, in this interview. He speaks about having hired a sceptical, level-headed practicing attorney in Washington. Uh, this is in the 1950s and sent her up to the library of the Carnegie Foundation, one of the key tax-exempt foundations, uh, where she was given access uh, with a dictaphone belt, the technology of the time, to record efficiently what she was reading, uh, to, uh, to scan the library and see what was being said in the years 1906 that I was mentioning earlier and 1908. And this initially sceptical woman, quote, unsympathetic to the aims of the Rees Committee, found this to her lifelong horror. <clears throat> she dictated into her belt, according to Dodd, we are now at the year 1908, which was the year that the Carnegie Foundation began operations. And in that year, she reads as she is in the Carnegie Foundation's library, the trustees meeting for the first time raised a specific question which they discussed throughout the balance of the year in a very learned fashion. And the question is, is there any means known more effective than war, assuming that you wish to alter the life of an entire people? 
And they conclude that no, no more effective means than war to that end is known to humanity. So then, continues the lawyer with her dictaphone belt on, in 1909, the Carnegie Foundation raised the second question and discussed it, namely, how do we involve the United States in a war? I could go on, but I don't have the time on that strand, but I think that is enough in itself to establish the key insight in people's minds that it is not enough to be by far the world's greatest military and economic power as the United States has been arguably since before the First World War, certainly after it. If your mind space is still controlled by this uh, argument that the Anglo-Saxon liberal democratic model is the only game in town, if it's still controlled by the unexamined assumption that everyone at the top of that model is paid up to uh, liberty, uh, then you are still going to find that a club with self-interest is going to run the world. And even in areas such as healthcare, which Britain, uh, first of the first country in the world, socialised in 1948, you're going to find that people uh, wrongly and blithely assume that their best interests are, at, uh, are kept at heart. Uh, in perhaps two minutes, I will... All right, going to skip ahead to Eric. About 47 minutes in. Matt Eretz. To fuel derivatives uh, by hunger. Yes, thank you. I, I have to say that that presentation was was more than I expected, though, and that I think sets the tone very well for uh, the torch that I'm, I'm being handed right now. Um, I would just make maybe push back on one single point, which is that no matter what the oligarchy might wish legally or formally be uh, the claim of who owns the soul or the the, the body and, and freedom of people, it has no bearing in reality. There is a natural law uh, that is higher than the law that they wish to impose onto the universe. And that's part of the problem with ivory tower thinkers, right? They always want the universe to conform to their mathematical models. And they kind of go into uh, conniption fits of rage when uh, they discover that the universe is much more creative and nonlinear than they want it to be. So it's this sort of God complex, which is ultimately the downfall, I think, of empires historically. Every time you see the oligarchy sort of self-catabolize and melt down under its own self-contradictions, it's a natural thing that should happen the way it does. Uh, the question is, are we willing to tolerate that level of folly and immorality uh, to the point that we go down with it? Right. And that's always the, the challenge for every generation. This isn't a new thing. And obviously we are at the end of a system. Um, I'm going to do something uh, a little bit uh, different. Um, I will deal. Well, originally I was going to talk a lot more about eugenics. Now I understand that in, in February 26th, we're going to focus a lot more on eugenics. So I won't do that. I will uh, carry on. Uh, the theme that Alex raised, but I will do this by first dealing with about eight minutes of the present situation, uh, just to get across what is the British hand in global affairs today in a little bit more detail, using a, a little one minute video from uh, Justin Trudeau here in Canada, where uh, we have this shadow of a shadow who's been, a, you know, imposed onto the people to carry out a policy that really doesn't come from him. And I think everybody recognizes that there's nothing really there. He's kind of like a young version of Biden. Um, his whole life has sort of been handled. Um, but the question being, well, obviously, if this guy is too, uh, too much of a Ken doll without a brain or a soul to actually carry out or make decisions, then what is the power behind the so-called throne? Um, so I'm going to start with a video. Then I'm going to go back after uh, dealing with the presence a little bit more into uh, the 18, uh, the 19th century, a little bit uh, with a Canadian focus, just because this is 
something on people's perspective right now being <clears throat> being what what is happening is currently happening in, in Ottawa. And then we're going to carry up uh, to the battles in the post-World War II age just to see how this thing transmogrified um, and recalibrated after World War II. So we'll just do this in a summary way. I'll try not to oversimplify too much, but obviously this is a complex issue and I I will try to do justice and rigor to what needs to be understood. So the first thing is the video that I promised, um, which I'm going to play here. It's about a minute and a half. Um, oh, share sound. Share sound. All right. I hope people can hear this. This is not the video. I'm so sorry. Let's try that again. Share sound. Share. Okay, can people see the, uh, the Canadian press? Yes, we can see it. All right. I, Justin P.J. Trudeau, do swear that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, Queen of Canada, her heirs and successors. So help me God. I, Justin P.J. Trudeau, do solemnly and sincerely swear that I shall be a true and faithful servant to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II as a member of Her Majesty's Privy Council for Canada. I will in all things to be treated, debated, and resolved in Privy Council faithfully, honestly, and truly declare my mind and my opinion. I shall keep secret all matters committed and revealed to me in this capacity or that shall be secretly treated of in council. Generally, in all things, I shall do as a faithful and true servant ought to do for Her Majesty, so help me God. I, Justin P.J. Trudeau, do solemnly and sincerely promise and swear that I will truly and faithfully, and to the best of my skill and knowledge, execute the powers and trusts reposed in me as Prime Minister. So help me God. Okay. Uh, no one can hear anything anymore, right? No. The video no. is over, but we can hear you. Great. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> so that is a little bit of a confusing thing for some people who saw this in 2017. Um, not your typical thing you would expect a, a so-called Democratic head of state to be doing um, when he's declaring his oath of office after an election. But then again, he, Trudeau is not really the head of state. As we've come to see, he's both a member of the Privy Council office, which you have to be if you're going to be in a cabinet position in government or in the opposition. Um, and uh, the actual head of state is the governor general, that older gentleman standing next to him, who is the appointee uh, carrying out the emanation of the powers and authority of the, the crown to give royal assent um, to any law that becomes law in Canada. You have lieutenant governors, a position in every single province. You have a privy council office. You have this whole weird Byzantine structure above the apparent um, public aspect of our so-called democracy in this monarchy of the north. Uh, which is, again, very confusing It's for a lot of people. Um, <clears throat> we're going to go into a little bit more of what this is. What is this anomalous thing and what is it a part of internationally? How did it come into being? Um, so here I've prepared a series of slides uh, just to get across that Canada is, is, after all, a part of the Commonwealth, the British Commonwealth. This is something that was set up in the late 1830, uh, 1930s in preparation for... Um, well, essentially, the, the transformation of the British Empire's outward image. 
Today, there's about 40, 54 countries in the British Commonwealth, with the centre being the United Kingdom. The head of it is the, uh, the Queen of England. Um, you have uh, this thing occupying about 12.2 million square miles of territory. 2.4 billion people are represented within territories here. Uh, 21% of the world's land area. And, you know, people celebrate this thing as if it's somehow a democratic institution. And it's a bit weird. Like, what is what is this thing that also, if you look at a lot of these territories, a lot of it is, is the Caribbean, uh, the uh, the Latin American uh, areas aren't so touched. But a lot of the Caribbean is um, a lot of Africa. There's 19 African nations in sub-Saharan African uh, Africa. There are um, eight Asian nations, India being the biggest, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, obviously the five eyes minus the United States. But let's just compare this to the the old British Empire. There's a, a screenshot from uh, an 18, a 1920 map. It looks pretty similar, doesn't it? So people say, oh, the British Empire just it disappeared after World War II. It, it let its territories go free. And now the empire is the big bad American empire. That's the mythology that's been passed down to us. And it is a mythology. As Alex went through very concisely, the real power the, the, that controls the fifth column inside of the United States, which has always been there since 1776, um, has always been centered in London. Uh, we're going to flesh this out a little bit more, um, but it never disappeared. No, no empire of this sort ever just willfully gives liberty. Liberty is something you fight for. Um, just quickly, the issue of... Uh, current mining interests today. I mean, this is not something that just occurred in the 1880s, 1890s with the, the land grab for Africa and Cecil Rhodes's creation of De Beers and, and Lonerhoe and other, other mining interests. This is something, this is a 2016 report. It's a, it's a fantastic report by a nonprofit that conducted audits on the, uh, the British uh, interests, those interests that are controlling mining in Africa um, with headquarters in either the UK or within Commonwealth territories uh, measured on the London Stock Exchange. And just a small quote here, it's a new colonialism, Britain's scramble for African energy and mining resources. It says 101 companies list, listed on the London Stock Exchange, most of them British, have mining operations in 37 sub-Saharan African countries. They collectively control over $1 trillion worth of Africa's most valuable resources. The UK government has used its power and influence to ensure that mining companies, British mining companies, have access to Africa's raw materials. This was the cause, uh, the case during the colonial period, and it is still the case today. This report is available for free online as a PDF. I'm not going to go into details. Um, it is upwards of 70% of the mining interests, which also include uh, refining materials uh, by companies that are in British-controlled uh, territories. Um, how? What is the infrastructure carrying this out? There's something that a lot of people don't even know about. This is an organization affiliated with the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, as well as the World Bank, uh, called Crown Agents. It was set up in 1833 as a, on its official, uh, uh, you know, self-description, as an emanation of the crown. It's not part of the government, but its authority comes from the fount of all honors, the crown itself. That's the way the sort of Byzantine structure is, is emanated, the shadow government. There's a sort of hierarchy of authority. It doesn't come from the consent of the governed. It's, it comes from the singular, singular sovereign, the crown, whoever that may be. Um, as a hereditary institution. So this was set up in 1833 as a branch of the British colonial office to manage the infrastructure, hard and soft, a lot soft, 
of the colonies internationally of the empire. It did a few name changes over the years. And in 1996, it uh, went through another name change called the Crown Agents for Overseas Government Administration, where it also has been managing the, uh, the health infrastructure, including COVID protocols of Eastern Europe, especially Ukraine. Um, it manages many African countries, uh, South Sudan, Myanmar, and it deals with governance. It helps these countries adapt their uh, their governing mechanisms according to World Bank and IMF standards. It's been there and doing this for a very long time, and it's a very strange thing. And again, they call themselves crown agents. It's not me slandering them or calling them. And this has been around, as I said, for a very, very long time. So that's one aspect of this thing in terms of the maintenance of the shadow empire. Now, one thing about the... <clears throat> about this uh, Commonwealth City of London managed system is that the Cayman Islands and offshore banking is the center of this. There was a wonderful documentary that people can watch called The Spider's Web on Britain's Invisible Empire uh, that is available on YouTube even. Um, it goes through this in a, in a nice way, um, but it just gets across that internationally, um, you have 24% of the financial services moving through a lot of, the, uh, of British-controlled Cayman Islands, um, Caribbean and other um, offshore uh, tax havens, but also within these is the center of global drug money laundering and terrorist financing. People think, oh, drugs, it's just a natural plague of our society. Terrorism, it's just a natural thing that just happens. And it's like, no, no, this is very artificial. This is not the way human society just comes up with these plagues of sociology. These were created diseases that are geopolitical in nature, not even religious in nature, um, that are cultivated from the top. This is a 2012 uh, Senate report uh, conducted over many, uh, a long period by the recently deceased Senator Carl Levin um, on U.S. vulnerabilities to money laundering, drugs, and terrorist financing, the HSBC case, whereby in the course of this, it was discovered that HSBC was the primary number one offshore account um, money laundering bank in the world. As Alex pointed out, they were set up in 1865 in order to enforce the uh, or manage the opium trade to destroy China. That never stopped. Um, they were found guilty. They were slapped on the wrist with a, uh, a certain fine of $1.9 billion. They were allowed to appoint their own auditor to sit there for five years. And as far as I can see, they're still doing what they do. They have a huge stake in Air Canada as well. Um, anybody who takes a plane to Canada We'll see HSBC signs everywhere. Um, that is a huge piece of infrastructure as part of the silver triangle um, that's been underway for the whole of the 20th century. Um, other than, you, have, you have there a picture of the queen with Bank Coots. That's the, that's the queen's personal bank, which was also 2012 found guilty for drug money laundering. It paid its own little, I think, maybe $10 million fine. And the, uh, <clears throat> the bad publicity resulted in the Bank Coots' offshore accounts that were conducting the, uh, the laundering to be sold off to the Royal Bank of Canada, um, which currently conducts the same operations. So that's that's that. Africa as well has $177 billion of debt holding it hostage. Meanwhile, about $944 billion of revenue from the extraction of wealth sits in British offshore accounts. So it is not a debtor, but a predator nation en masse. Um, this is, uh, this is a whole story unto itself. The city of London, as Alex pointed out, it's a separate entity. Even the UK government can't really do much legally to stop it. They have their own courts, their own police. Uh, it's a weird structure. Um, so, okay. 
I just want to throw that out. And I didn't even talk about Iraq, the Iraq war, dodgy dossiers being justified and created by British intelligence that justified the bombing of Iraq, uh, Libya as well. That was more MI6 intelligence. Uh, I didn't talk about that. I didn't talk about the Syrian uh, dodgy dossiers of chemical weapons that were never actually proven to be used by Assad, but that have been justified for sanctions and justifying the regime change that has been attempted now for seven years. I didn't talk about that. Um, but all that to say, it's everywhere. The British hand, everywhere you scratch a little bit, even in, in the course of the dodgy dossiers to try to put uh, Putin as the uh, the big bad guy controlling uh, Trump, those dodgy dossiers were brought to us by people like Sir Richard Dearlove, the guy who brought us the original Iraq war yellow cake dodgy dossier. That was always a fraud. And the Chilcot Commission report proved that to be the case. Um, so and also the question of Rhodes Scholars, people like Strobe Talbot, uh, who was a Rhodes Scholar, came in with Clinton and uh, and has been there running Brookings for a very long time. This is also be, he's been behind Russiagate with many other Rhodes Scholars currently managing the Biden administration, like Jake Sullivan, Sullivan Susan Rice, um, Eric Lander, the science czar, Rhodes Scholars. So, I mean, they're just everywhere and I won't go into that. Um, so, OK, some historical context. I'm Canadian. So. Uh, the question of Justin Trudeau, I hope that that's still an imprint in people's uh, mind is what the hell is that? So the Privy Council office, unlike the United States Constitution or Declaration, the Canada was founded in 1867. The original conference with our founding fathers was not something that was a part of a fight for freedom, unlike the U.S. This was something where these were all British loyalists, anti-Republican. Uh, they were all like our, our founding father uh, who's standing up there in the painting, Johnny MacDonald, was an Aryan, complete race patriot wanting an Aryan Canada, and who said, a Britisher I was born and a Britisher I will die. He was a, a filthy, filthy immoral scumbag. Um, and these are the people celebrated as our sacred cows that we're supposed to honor in Canada. Now, unlike the US, which enshrines the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in the Declaration of Independence, as well as the idea of the principle of the general welfare, both now and into posterity in the Constitution, the Canadian founding document um, says literally, Whereas the provinces of Canada, at the time there were four of them, uh, have expressed their desire to be federally united in one dominion under the crown of the United Kingdom and of Great Britain and Ireland, with the constitution similar in principle to that of the United Kingdom, which is itself a bit of a fraud since the UK doesn't really have a constitution. Um, so it's sort of a, a, a mirroring of a shadow. Um, and whereas such a union would conduce to the welfare of the provinces and promote the interests of the British Empire. So that's our, our so-called preamble is to promote the interests of the British Empire. That's why we were created. We were also created. This conference that that drafted that was it occurred three years earlier in 1864, while the Civil War was just winding down. It was still being fought. The British had put a lot of resources into breaking up the Union, as I, I've gone through in previous presentations. Uh, a lot of this is in my books as well, on the clash of the two Americas and the untold history of Canada. Um, the point that the British were afraid of, as, as I demonstrate, was that Canada had pro-Lincoln statesmen in positions of leadership who were fighting to create an independent country at that time. Um, there were also... Uh, there, people who are working to create an American Zolverein with the Canada and the United States together in one customs union based upon industrial development with the type of policy, not like America today, but it was a different policy of the, the Lincoln McKinley orientation of, of a real long-term thinking where human beings were seen as uh, a good a, a creature that money had to serve by virtue of investing into large scale infrastructure, science and technology, but also working abroad with Germany, doing the same thing under 
Otto von Bismarck with Russia uh, that had just sold the Alaska territory to the United States with the intent of, of building rail through the continent into Eurasia. So this was seen as being a, a vital territory that had to be kept under the control of the British Foreign Office. And so this constitution was drafted. Lincoln's allies were ousted from power. And uh, it was kept as a wedge between the danger of a U.S.-Russia collaboration. Um, except one Lincoln admirer did become prime minister at a certain point, Wilfrid Laurier. And he did, by 1911, organize to create a customs union. Finally, all the bills had been passed and it was about to go into law. Finally. And unfortunately, he was ousted in a, uh, in a coup d'etat that was orchestrated by the round table and some Orangemen Freemasons that have the queen, the crown, the, the head of the these different Freemasonic outfits. Uh, a paper was written that I've, I've published on the, the Canadian Patriot site going through those details. But just two years later, Wilfrid Laurier writes to his close ally, O.D. Skelton, that Canada is now governed by a junta sitting in London known as the Round Table, with ramifications in Toronto and Winnipeg and Victoria, with Tories, that's conservatives, and Grits, that's liberals, receiving their ideas from London and insidiously forcing them on their respective parties. So... Um, that was an admission directly from the man himself who he had a vision for turning Canada into a Lincoln modeled nation um, with a population of 60 million within a generation based upon large scale electrification and industrialization. That was all ousted, uh, ended. And again, the round table took control. Robert Borden, who was the uh, his replacement, was a round tabler who, who ended up controlling the Chatham House of Canada at its inception as its first president. Um, <clears throat> By 1918, the Roundtable had already initiated a takeover of the British government. They had ousted Herbert Asquith in uh, the Labour gov uh, government in 1916. Not that he was such a great guy, but they really wanted to have their full controls on the terms of the Versailles Treaty and the end of World War One. One of the problems they needed the United States. They really needed the power of the United States behind them. And that's been always the objective of the Cecil Rhodes design. Lord Lothian, who was a leading roundtabler at the time, he was the ambassador to the United States, had written, his other name was Philip Kerr. They always have names that sound kind of like uh, Star Wars villains. Um, he wrote, the problem of the American psyche that had to be dealt with is that there is a fundamental different, fundamentally different concept in regards to the question between Great Britain and the United States as to the necessity of civilized control over backward, politically backward peoples. The inhabitants of Africa and parts of Asia have proved unable to govern themselves. Yet America not only has no conception of this aspect of a problem, but has been led to believe that the assumptions of this kind of responsibility is iniquitous, iniquitous, I can't say that word, iniquitous imperialism. <laughs> Um, so it's a problem, right? The Americans have this damn, they don't get that there's a white man's burden that they have to impose, you know, because they're just scientifically better than the darker skinned people. They have to morally and scientifically impose an Anglo-American control over the backward peoples and they don't get it. And that was a problem. Not there were Americans that did get it. And that was, again, part of the American deep state problem that I had mentioned that Alex went through a bit. Um, but what had happened? So there were several attempts at, the, at new world orders. Okay, what we're seeing today is not a new thing. I alluded to this in previous uh, presentations, but in 1919, you had the, the creation of Chatham House, you had the creation of the, the Versailles Treaty, the League of Nations, all orchestrated by, by Lord Milner, who at this time was a leading figure controlling British foreign policy, along with many other roundtablers. Um, the idea of the League of Nations was to get, create a, an, a collective security pact, 
Article 10, get rid of national sovereignty over, over economics and military affairs and create effectively a one world government. Part of this was also part of the, the Imperial Federation, uh, kind of like what the European Union is, is what they wanted for the all of their, you know, basically the world. That failed. Why did it fail? Because people, both in Canada, the Laurier Liberals were had made a comeback through the 1920s, and they resisted it. Irish Free State movements resisted it. People like Warren Harding, who was assassinated, I say assassinated, I've never seen evidence to the contrary, the American president, uh, from eating poisoned oysters, uh, died. But point being is you had nationalists that didn't, that resisted and didn't succumb to this pressure at the time. So it petered out and they tried again. 1933, there was the International Bankers Conference in London centered around the Bank of International Settlements, the Bank of England, and 66 nations had been a part of it, all with the design that the Great Depression would be solved by moving sovereignty economically from nation states into officially a central bankers coterie under the Bank of England. And the only reason after six months that failed is that Franklin Roosevelt pulled the U.S. delegations out of all participation and the thing just fell apart. Um, I wrote about that in chapter seven of my uh, Clash of the Two Americas in detail. Then there was another attempt in 1944. Again, Roosevelt had not yet died. John Maynard Keynes was assigned this time to represent the British Empire at the Bretton Woods Conference with the idea of a one world currency run by the Bank of England called the Bancor, an international exchange rate that would be, again, uh, effectively a one world currency um, with the idea of the Americans who had come out of World War II as the only unbroken country to be the battering ram or the enforcers of an Anglo-American reconquering of the nations of the world, many of whom had fought during the war and many had ideas of independence and freedom alive in their hearts. That was not acceptable. At there, I, I just have a little quote by Franklin Roosevelt, which I really like where he, uh, he made the point that they who seek to establish systems of government based on the regimentation of all human beings by a handful of individual rulers call this a new order. It is not new and it is not order. Um, that was a sharp quote. So to pick up here a little bit now where Alex has left off, um, there's a book called uh, As He Saw It, written in 1946 by Roosevelt's son and his assistant, his personal assistant, um, Elliot Roosevelt. And he documents a lot of the battles between Roosevelt versus the, the Churchill gang uh, that were trying to always pull the U.S. into a brotherhood of control a la Cecil Rhodes, right, a la uh, Five Eyes, which is already what was creeping up and happening from the Black Chamber being transformed into the NSA uh, in 1930. Um, which became integrated more and more into their British Five Eyes thing, which was, again, always the Cecil Rhodes will orientation. Um, but in this book, it's a great book. Uh, people can find this on online. They could buy it. They should buy it. It's on archive.org. I use it extensively. Um, but he talks in 1944 after a battle with Churchill, I think at the Turan conference. I'm not too sure which conference, but he speaks to Elliot. Um, saying, you know, any number of times the men in the State Department have tried to conceal messages to me, delay them, hold them up somehow, just because some of those career diplomats over there are not in accord with what they know, I think. They should be working for Winston. And as a matter of fact, a lot of the time they are working for Churchill. Some of, uh, stop to think of them, any number of them are convinced that the way for America to conduct its foreign policy is to find out what the British are doing and then to copy that. I was told six years ago to clean out the State Department. It's like the British Foreign Office. So the OSS had not been. <laughs> it's like the British Foreign Office. That's Dude, it's true, though. I know it's 100 percent true. 100 percent. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, going back to 2014, you did a whole piece revolutions on that. One of the key researchers at the Schiller Institute. <clears throat> 
forget his name, but you were playing clips from him. He was talking about how MI6, I believe it existed at that time, and fully infiltrated uh, oh, here it is. Uh, Roosevelt's cabinet and uh, many okay. key members here's, of... Yep. Here's your homework. You got the Irregulars, Roald Dahl and the British Spy Ring in wartime Washington. This is um, FDR's Washington, and it's Roald Dahl, uh, <clears throat> Ogilvy, and Ian Fleming. They're the British spies, right? And then when you look at like the war report of the OSS by Kermit Roosevelt, well, he did the introduction. So Elliot Roosevelt is telling, you know, he, he's talking to his dad. And his dad's like, dude, there's these people that aren't listening to me. They're like, it's like the State Department here works for the British Empire or something. Yeah. The, yeah. But no, literally, that, but it, but, that's literally what was going on. But, know, but, right. but FDR comes from the it's fifth delicious. column of British Eastern establishment, opium families, but like the, he was related to two of them. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, no, that's absolutely. I was going to say the Roosevelt's he, and the Delano's. The mm-hmm. Delano was a drug dealing family too. I got them in the history blueprints. So let's go over here to the cornice, like Mr. Rogers. I was going to take you to the X2 counter espionage. Cause this is uh, where, yeah. British intelligence connects into ours, but let me just go to uh, what was I just formation double cross? You're talking about Delano, Delano, the Delano family. This falls under to Roosevelt when they married the Boston Brahmins. Oh, you got families of Boston. The hilarious. So Russell and Company, the Opium Companies. This is what made them first families of the Eastern Coast. And this is documented by Anthony Brahmins, for God's sakes. And Brahmins is like the the top tier cast. These are Anglophiles, part of the British conquest to recolonize America, getting money from the British East India Company, enforcing a caste system. They practice under the Grand Union flag so they can still sail on the Canton and get their opium. They uh, mimic the Levant company, the Turkey company. They're doing this kind of illicit uh, spice trade. Uh, These are families of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. So prior to the old China trade taking over, these were already powerful families who made money a lot of times in the slavery of the British Empire, right? Correct. Below them, you've got, uh, let's see, Ben Bradley. Remember him? He was like a big news correspondent. He's he's uh, his family tree uh, goes into the Brahmins, the Cabot family, the Bradley family, the Choate family, the Crown Shield family, Delano family. That's where we were at. I mean, they literally FDR. call themselves by Oliver Wendell Holmes. He coined the term in 1860 in the Atlantic Monthly, and the term Brahmin refers again to the highest ranking caste of people in the traditional Hindu caste system. Now, the question so they is, literally saw themselves as being part of the highest caste. I mean, think about that sort of psychology of those individuals that see themselves that stand apart from other other people. Now, let me just see if mm-hmm. I could if I click this and go to the browser page will open for me i just wanted to do a search for opium to see if it was still openly available without uh god look at the family as part of this jesus christ dude. right sam so, adams john adams john yeah. quincy adams the amory family America. opium look warren delano's career smuggling opium into china Bates. You think he was working with John Perkins Cushing and these other people working with the British Empire doing that? Or do you think he's doing it by himself? What do you think? Holy shit. Look at this. Cool. Yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, I mean, right. you're exactly Oh, his right. descendant is Calvin Coolidge. You ever hear of him? Who's this guy? 
That is an analogy. It reminds me of Hunter Thompson. Hunter Thompson's related to him. Did you know that? Maybe that's why he's working at Rolling Stone and talking about uh, adrenochrome in the seventies because they're connected. There's a whole club and you're not in it because your family didn't smuggle opium to subjugate China. So that's why you don't know about this. Russell and company. Oh, this is the people that fund like Yale and skull and bones and all sorts of fun stuff like that. But there's nothing to see there. That's where Cushing's work. uh, John Perkins Cushing Mm -hmm. work. Right. And then Caleb Cushing, he gets busted in like 1805. I'm pretty sure. No, that's a different connection. to Oliver Pike. What's that about? Well, Scottish, right? Well, uh, let's see. Cause I don't remember that one. Could be going down a deep rabbit hole, but that's a good point, Tony. Yeah. I mean, that's a very important Scottish, when, right? Is a when very Matthew Eric was showing the, the Commonwealth and mm-hmm. then he took you back and he's like, Oh, here's the empire. Shows you the same empire map. You go back one more step and it's here's British Freemasonic lodges in the 1700s. Sure. Yeah. So it goes from them having lodges and trading posts to them colonizing to them calling it a commonwealth and taking over you know the world. We should do. We should superimpose the map that Jessica Harlan Jacobs has in her right. book. That's right. what we need to do. Because I have that map in my I have library. that map too. Okay. It's upstairs. Because yeah. I but, bet it's uh, very similar. And then we can juxtapose that to like critique and crisis and other works to, involving British Freemasonry and Illuminati infiltration and then the subjugation, then 18th and 19th centuries manifestations after that period of the eight, like mid to late 18th century. Freemasonry became, it started as sort of like a, almost a the, metaphysical group that became a political group over time. All right, I got to show you this real quick. Cause like FDR was more right than he knew. I mean, this okay, reminds this is, me this, real quick before you go, this, yeah. it, it kind of reminds me a little bit before we get into this quote of what happened with a little bit as an analogy to Woodrow Wilson and his, his recognition of a great sort of transcendent power. I went over like the, the, the reference to that specific quote as from one of his memoirs or something of that nature. This reminds me, like, it's almost like he's recognizing towards the end of his own presidency and his own terms and power, like, oh, wait, something bigger here is happening. I don't know if that's a fair comparison, but it just seems like at least there's a loose analogy there. But go for it. All right. So um, the Irregulars is about, there's, there's a couple things going on. This is pre-World War II. This is FDR's administration. You've got uh, British Security Coordination, BSC, uh, taking up residents in America and where, who gave them housing Nelson Rockefeller and Rockefeller center. So British intelligence runs out of Rockefeller center under Nelson Rockefeller's approval in FDR's administration. Then they bring in these spies. Now this is the part where I'll show you the book. They're talking about this map about uh, Nazi invasion. So with the map's true origin, uh, not discovered at the time, Adolf Burrell strongly suspected that Stevenson, now this is William Stevenson, uh, British intelligence guy who trained our intelligence, and his boys were behind it. So that's the double-cross system. That's true. Another document cited by Roosevelt in the same speech, supposedly detailing a Nazi, Nazi plan to abolish all the world's religions, seemed equally spurious. So this was MI6 through British security coordination, floating propaganda in our country and getting Roosevelt to circulate it. Burl knew that British security coordination specialized in manufacturing fake documents and the written proof outlining German plans for world domination struck Burl as a bit too convenient. Oh, is it like all the rest of these dossiers we just heard about in the last 15 minutes? 
right. how about the steel dossier steel russian inf- misinformation with trump they're, there's they're a still doing the same here. thing right right they haven't had to change because no one's caught them in right. a Moran- memorandum for the cordell hall burrow warned that americans should quote be on guard against these false scares concocted by the british only a month earlier Burrow had written a detailed memorandum enumerating the potential dangers of the British operation being run by the security coordinator, Mr. William S. Stevenson. He's a character, man. Arguing that it was developing into a, quote, full-size secret police and intelligence service, end quote, and was supported by a shadow force of, quote, regularly employed secret agents and much larger number of informers, et cetera. Then it goes on. I mean, Rockefeller Center right there. And then I got a whole book. There's talking about Ian Fleming, Right. Stevenson allowed Fleming privileges far above his rank. That's because he's above Stevenson. They just don't tell all this stuff to the Americans. No. Here it is. Oh, uh, well, yeah. This is Rockefeller Center <laughs> right there. This is Rockefeller. This is Nelson Rockefeller's office. <clears throat> the Secret History of British Intelligence in the Americas, 1940-1945, British, British Security Coordination by Nigel West. Uh, introduction. It's actually like 1930s, mm-hmm. but they don't want us to know that because like we were in the war with them because they got us in the, the war with them. So, <clears throat> you know, and then there's um, there's the other one that's named after the room. What is it? Oh, called? you get. Yeah. 3603. Yeah. I just want to get this for people that are interested in doing some deep dives in this peace revolution um 82 the british elephant in the american living room peace revolution 83 america and the great game a strategy of tension and peace revolution episode 84 builders of empire how fraternal orders create world order very very uh uh precise and detailed information those peace revolutions that'll get into how how rife throughout the roosevelt administration the infiltration of british intelligence actually was I mean, it was a staggering to me when I listened back to it in 2014, when these, yeah, it was 2014. I could see the dates, February, you have a February, you have an April, May, and then July going over this in specific detail. And it's, it's wildly fascinating. I can't remember all this, but I remember like the general characteristics, but it was how extensive the network had infiltrated the Roosevelt's administration. I mean, when he says that quote there, when Earhart is Quoting Roosevelt, I'm laughing because I'm like, I remember those episodes you produced back in 2014 of individuals talking about this and going into great detail. I mean, it's unreal. Sorry, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, I mean, this book here, it's different than the British Security Coordination. This is room 3603, forward by Ian Fleming. Let me just read the little summary in the back <clears throat> for the record. With headquarters in New York City at 635th Avenue, room 3603. The organization known as the British Security Coordination, or BSC, was the keystone of the successful Anglo-American partnership in the field of secret intelligence, counter-espionage, and special operations. The man chosen by Winston Churchill to set up and direct this crucial effort was Sir William Stevenson, known to the world of espionage as the, quote, man called intrepid, end quote. That's also the name of the book. And the book is by a guy named William Stevenson. It spells it with a V. So it's really confusing, much Mm -hmm. like the spies who it's about. The late General William Bill, Will Bill Donovan, 
he's a crazy character yeah too. bill donovan whole bunch like a of psychopath families dude, dude yeah. was, yeah. <laughs> that dude's director crazy. of the office of strategic services hired by ian fleming said of him bill stevenson taught us all we ever knew about foreign intelligence sir william stevenson put all of his papers and much of the other relevant information by the way stevenson's a canadian by the way so it's interesting, this whole Canada thing going on. Uh, material at the disposal of H. Montgomery Hyde, a member of his wartime organization who knew him intimately. The result is Room 3603, a unique portrait of the British Secret Service in action and the remarkable exploits of its brilliant but personally unobtrusive chief in the United States. So that shit went on. Just saying, FDR, you know. He never, he never saw it coming. He's part of it. Like he's, uh, FDR is related to Churchill. They're like 10th cousins or something. So there's a lot more to that Anglo-American relationship. And now I'm seeing it's more the Anglo-American Canadian relationship because it's not just us that's being subjected to it. It's a commonwealth relationship. Everything's hunky-dory in Canada and it's just here in America. It's like, it's happening there too. It started in Australia, for God's sakes, many, many months before their commonwealth, part of the commonwealth, I should state. So it's, you know, Australia, Canada, America, the Caribbean islands. That's interesting. We've sold products down there to major corporations. And it's interesting because as my dad noted, many years ago, it's like, it's like the old British corporate model. And I'm like, Oh, you're just starting to realize what's going on. Now I got to show one one or two more artifacts. So we got this one, the double cross system, right? But when you get into it, it looks like, uh, I moved it off the brain. I was going to double cross system when we came out of that last break and we got all into the Boston Brahmins, which isn't too far from it. Ain't too far from it. So we back up. Should look at the, the families of part of that Boston history. Blueprint. Shit. Okay. X2, counter espionage branch of U.S. intelligence, which is the American part of the double cross XX or 20 Roman numerals committee. And they call it the double cross system sub project with United States. So if you crawl up here to the head, the double cross system, the 20 committee, this is where you see uh, the Joint Intelligence Committee um, and then Edward Gray, who got us into World War One. Yeah. Sir William Stevenson, a.k.a. Intrepid. Right. So he's on the British side of the double cross system and it rains down to you can see who were the Americans who serviced the British as the their fifth column. And you got people like James Jesus Angleton, or it's James Hesus yeah. Angleton. He's, he preferred Hesus, but like he's the mole. He's the mole to British intelligence and Israeli intelligence inside of American intelligence. And he's, he's the, the counter espionage guy. Right. Yeah, it's just amazing. He's the middle term in that regard. It, and he was schooled in, in England. Yes. See, right. these are the whole bunch of stuff people don't know about Angleton. It's like, they just think in blame. How you do know, you think he got his information? Just, how do you think? Well, his dad, his dad handled um, Roberto Calvi and Sedona <laughs> and those guys. Yeah. So it's fascinating to learn That's about, hilarious. you know, the Kim Philby's, the St. John Philby's, yeah, the, the Philby's. Roll, Roll Dolls, you know, how we got into Pearl Harbor, even though the British intelligence knew it in August of 
1941 and didn't want to tell us. They were giving the the Roosevelt administration the information that to create the policies that forced the Japanese into the scenario in which they then were had to take action because of oil imports. And it's through this fifth column that the British empire has influenced into American intelligence always has always will, as long as things stay like they are. Look at this, Rich. I mean, this just comes from the Wikipedia, you know, the Cushing family talk. We just talked about Caleb Cushing. Yeah. Um, obviously William Cushing was a U.S. Supreme court justice in the basically in the 18th century. Uh, Dana, the Del- Delano family, you know, uh, going down Franklin Delano Roosevelt, 88, 1882, 1945. I mean, it's like as conspicuous as it can be. It's like right, right there in front of us. If people are willing to look. So China trade merchant investor, John Perkins Cushing, U.S. Mm-hmm. Congressman is Caleb Cushing. Then like two, two down there, you got the Delano family, Columbus and Jane and Paul Delano and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And then Frederick A. Delano, civic reformer, railroad president. So it's just, you know, but this just comes from the wiki of all things. So this, this is a sort of timepiece of all the families, Choate family. The Choate, Choate mm-hmm. uh, private school. New England private school for the elite, right? Yep. Bates so, Bacon family. And then there's obviously the uh, Amory family and the Adams family, Samuel Adams, John Adams, Adams John family. Quincy family. Yeah. All right. So uh, then you got people like Elihu Yale who worked mm. for the East India company and their little slavery system. And then he took a whole bunch of scuttle from there and made Yale university as yeah. a British installation in America. It's like the Oxford of America. It's the Oxford. We all know That's this. A great amount. Yes. Come yes. on now you know but we're just taught to be like ivy leagues just about america what are ivy league i thought it was like the seven royal colleges that were set up here uh before, while we were like still colonies isn't that part of the ivy almost league? like all souls well it's almost the, like a way that they spread like the, the college speaking ideas Oxford. around maybe it's how they from the ivory towers you know generate prescriptively their vision of the world and then try to enforce it upon the ignorant masses I mean, they already had Oxford's a thousand year old university. It's they gone had a long history like of like supporting slavery and East India company. And then Cecil Rhodes comes along and those dudes all just got like wood. They're like, this is our guy. Let's make, uh, you know, scholarships and Balliol scholarships and Rhodes scholarships. And then we'll get a Rhodes scholar to go back to America and create, let's call him Fulbright. And then he'll have Fulbright scholarships, which will be the American Rhodes scholar program. No one will think anything of it, but just if you listen to this one episode of this one podcast, you must have heard 30 different Rhodes Scholars names said by four different people tonight. And also World Economic Forums and you know, the Young Leaders Program, what they're pointing out, the connected Rhodes Scholars that are helping to, we remember we were showing with Carl Rove last week, not that he was a Rhodes Scholar, but he was one of the handlers of Bush, right? Just yeah, as Kissinger is connected to Nixon. Third generation Bush. There you go. You know, so it's like you have these people family. that, stand behind the puppets they put in, you know, they're allowed to be like front pieces, if you will. They have useful idiots. Right. You got it. Yeah. That's the point. They have useful that's the point. idiots. And what's the essence here? It's about managing human capital, which is a form of energy. It's about managing energy itself. And finding corrupt people to help you manage that human capital. It's going back to what Patrick Will was saying earlier. It's all about the control of they, they want to take out even of the financial sector. It's about controlling your thoughts. It's about controlling your actions. It's about controlling the rights to raw materials and resources. It's a whole nother level of control that they're, they're envisioning controlling the for mind the world. Space. The mind space. You got it. So that's the goal. Be a good name for a podcast though. 
next on the mind space. Well, we'll save that. We talk um, about the Bay of Rigs. We're all forced into uh, our little pods with our <laughs> implants. And we don't even need implants, probably. They'll probably have some sort of holographic technology to beam inside our... These people are silly. People what else do we got to cover before we get out of this episode? Uh, All the crazy shit that's going on last week. Did we do a good mosaic of it? I think we did a hell of a mosaic, especially with Patrick Wood and then getting into the Privy Council and what's going on Sadly, in Sadly, it's acted as a vaccine. <laughs> we got that in there. Got the vaccine. Um, yeah, we got enough about the vaccine. I mean, obviously, there's the Russia-Ukraine uh, big pharmaceutical corruption news. Um, the, uh, Does I guess anyone think that NATO is provoking Russia vis-a-vis Ukraine because it's George Soros's plan from 1993, uh, New World Order and NATO in the future of Europe? You think maybe? Right. I was going to do a deep dive using that and tragedy and hope to sort of bring some context to I mean, Soros what the original about, goal like, of NATO actually is. Negative influencing Ukraine just like four years ago. Yeah. He has new. a history over there. I forget we had, we think we had him on talking about that last or no it's like guess earlier in the show like Luke showed a, a thing about him how he financed certain groups within uh, Ukraine. Anyways, it's been too long. I'm too tired, but I I remember we had someone talking about that. Anyways, we have a uh, this going through here. Let me just put it on the screen. Um, I think we got to the majority. I mean, there's so much. Everyone knows this every week. I mean, just look at the mandates and lockdown section. There's this like, if I were to break open each of these drop downs, I mean, here's the trucker protests. What, you know, New Zealand, it's not as big. Some EU news, basically the same thing going on. It's, it's the same stuff. We have the vaccine, vaccine injury. That's never going to stop as, as, as they continue to perpetuate and enforce this on individuals. Frequent boosters threaten the immune system. European Medical Agency, I have a Reuters article that I've, where the fuck is it? I can't find it. Um, I'll have to go back through and find where I had the Reuters article talking about the European Medical Agency. Let me see if I can put find it real quick. Talking about the issue of immune exhaustion, the fact that it's not helped more of the vaccine isn't producing the antibodies long term. All these sort of issues that uh, that Pfizer, or not Pfizer, yeah, not Pfizer. The FDA executive was talking about. There's just always so much um, that we can't get to. And so it's just important to have that frequent boosters. We talked about that. Big trees opening monologue. This was interesting about myocarditis and vaccine injury. That was fascinating because he juxtaposes. Remember the comedian that fell on stage last week to what happened to Bob Saget? So Bob yeah. Saget, had, he died from bleeding in the brain, essentially from a fractured skull, something of that nature. I forgot the specific terminology. She had a cracked skull because she fell Sub- straight down and smashed her head. Cranial and, subdural hematoma. Yeah, that's it. Cranial thing. subdural hematoma. You got it. Yes, that's correct. And um, yeah, so the um, she had a similar situation, but she had people around her. He was by himself in a hotel room. And apparently there's some reports that he was clutching his heart, saying he's experiencing severe chest pain while talking to his wife before he fell over and then experienced that subdural subdural hematoma so unfortunately bleeding under the skin it's a bleeding under the skin right yeah. and brain um german so yeah he did make a comment in his uh opening monologue that mm-hmm. you know, the comedian was one thing and then seeing what happened to Saget was another and he had been like boosted and vaccinated these sort of things and if that's a symptom 
maybe she had hers happen and received medical attention and he had his happen and medical attention wasn't available and or father just doesn't like people who might you know make fun of them yeah I mean, it was Dr. Drew of all people had on. I mean, they're a drug company. The theme is the people putting the pressure on Trudeau and these other governments is the same drug cartel that was subjugating China 150 years ago. HSBC at all. Yeah. Hong Kong, Shanghai, that right. So, you know, what's interesting about this is um, Dr. Drew had Heather McDonald, who's the comedian on, and he actually acknowledged he knows someone that can't even walk or can't walk more than like 15 steps or something as a vaccine injury. He, of course, he has to say that you still should get it, but he was willing to admit that he knows maybe this is, I think what's happening Guillain is so Beret. many people. She's wearing gray. It's Guillain yeah, she's wearing syndrome, sunglasses but, because she has black eyes from having her head hit. Oh, uh, there you go. I had not realized that. I just thought she was into the big sunglass thing. Like so many of those no, other, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Kardashian that, types. Yeah. But the point is, um, juicy couture. Uh, but the whole point is, um, the fact I think we're okay to Bell Del Big Jeff, it was on Jeffy Jackson. The reason why they're all of a sudden, at least local news stations are starting to report vaccine injury is because six degrees of separation, too many people are knowing people who have probably been injured at this point, and they're not talking about it, including maybe producers of these various shows or executive producers or whatever. And, um, word is having it slowly trick trickling out from that. Um, from that revelation for the people that just know other individuals that have had severe issues. So anyways, going back to, that's my theory around it anyways. Um, Jay Dyer had an interesting thing about the Bilderberg history of the Bilderberg group and how it relates to, Dude, he, I didn't see it, but he got a hundred thousand views like in a day on that. That's yeah, good marketing good. on his part. Good job. Tell him about Klaus. Keep doing it's it. Good. Yeah. So he shows the foundation of, you know, these sort of front groups, if you will for these other think tanks like trilateral or club of Rome, for example, uh, religion evoked same stuff going on with culture. No, I don't think we need to comment on Russia and Ukraine was really, Oh, Russia and the Ukraine was big news. We know about this. So that here's the narrative here. The Biden administration keeps saying that war is imminent. Whereas at the same time, you're getting information out of Eastern Europe saying the Russia is pulling troops out of the border or from the border. So it's like, there's this contradictory narrative between the two sides. Um, then there's Russia the doesn't want to give NATO the excuse to expand of this Durham probe. Okay. So Durham probe, the Durham <clears throat> probe. I mean, come on, man. First off, <laughs> they threw out this smoke grenade of Russia, Russia, Russia. And it took like four or five years for the smoke to clear. Mm-hmm. And then when the smoke clears, would you find out those people? Cause it's not Clinton. This not, oh, see, no. I, this is, is it, where I stop with the Durham probe. It ain't Clinton. Oh, it's a lot she and her Clinton. husband, the Rhodes Scholar, they're agents for the crown. Okay. Mm-hmm. And when you look at it like that, it all makes a lot more sense. And 100%. if you want to figure out why the people who shot Abraham Lincoln ran to Canada and got protected by the Hudson Bay company, you might ask that too. How does it benefit the queen? The queen, supposed networks, monarchy, of networks, the city of London, how, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. It ain't America. That's doing that. They're supposed to Jesuit networks, supposedly, <laughs> when the fleet of Canada. I'm not yeah, saying yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. yeah, but I mean, it's all over. He got a papal yeah. zouave uh, ceremony for his funeral. Very strange. So just saying, just speaking out loud, sort of thing at yeah, four in the morning. Uh, it's, you know, so this is, yeah, just you had the con. I just wanted to comment on that. I'm glad you did. So, you know, get that in the record and just more belligerency. Does make a word belligerent activity 
out of the White House and all that sort of stuff. Uh, senators reveal illegal spying on Americans. We already know that was taking place in Canada. Uh, in fact, uh, there's a university that this week that's apologized for the spying that was conducted. Let me see if I can find that. Um, spying. Yeah. Yeah, you illegal. Can, you can apologize for the spying, but they're not going to delete the data or unlearn the AI right. that they're training to subjugate humanity with it. Uh, so many damn articles. A campus rewrite. See, GWG. W George Washington. U, George Washington University admits that it tracks student employee locations on campus. Dun, dun, dun. What a surprise. George Washington University pilot program used locational data track. Just like Bill Wi-Fi Gates tracks points. you in his house 20 years ago. <laughs> Put on his pen. I'll show From you art you like and have the music follow you. One of the five eyes blinked over China and New Zealand free trade. It's all that stuff. It's a, it's just a continuation of a lot of the same themes, but I think we got a good mosaic, good panoramic view. Just remember, Bill shot. Gates is sad. Sadly. Yeah, he is sad. He's very sad. Oh, and then there's the Epstein. Um, John Luke Brunel. And Moderna well. lost 134 or $140 billion. Yeah. There's a, the J&J cover-up as well, a big pharmaceutical cover-up going on, or corruption in the sort of, not a cover-up, but sort of revelations. They're well, getting ahead of the virus. HIV connection. That's what they're doing. Speaking of that, losing money. I had a bunch of stuff on that this week. Um, <laughs> you can see all the videos we didn't get to. Oh, uh, where is it? It's from maybe under COVID nineteen. Doctor Ben, no. Bain's vaccine acquired immunodeficiency syndrome infected backs for a while. No, Reuters fact chat told me this week that it's not a thing. Tony, doctor who was reporting on vaccine <laughs> side effects on pregnant mothers. He disappeared in Canada. So I don't even have to we think about it. a couple it. of times. Blackwalk whistleblower talked about Moderna breaks new bombs. No, oh, the, Moderna the stock corporate front for the Rothschild Pigeon Courier Group, Reuters, they told me they did a fact check that there's no connection between HIV and uh, the vaccines. So, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I happen yeah, to tell you have to four th- stories I had at my back and call to say this is bullshit in my own way. It's like, here's contradictory evidence for Reuters You're doing fact checking for you. They're attempting to do the thinking for you, but it's a good thing you had the ability to counter Something fact I check. Something I won't outsource. Um, Moderna stock, stock price is obviously collapsing. We talked about Stefan Bonsell. He sold off. He's completely nuked his Twitter account last week and has been s- steadily selling off shares hmm. of his ownership in the company over the past year. So they must know some major bombshells coming out. It's been some allusions to that in regards to information, both from the UK and America and from around the world. I know there's been issues like in Japan, I've mentioned many times with their Moderna contract and the quality control issues related to the vaccine. Australia started paying out to vaccine injured uh, injured people. So yeah, I mean, it's coming to a head as far as the issues associated with the vaccine, which means they now need to probably transition to, I don't know, AIDS or something. HIV virus and AIDS and try to get a new I mean, vaccine Luke in Monty place. I don't passed, know. They could pretty Luke, much do whatever they want now. Just like with Carrie Mullis and the PCR test. As soon as he passed, they're like PCR everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> At a cycle threshold Let's of 25 to 30. Hey, as soon as Hagel died, pieces. same thing. They were just waiting for him to, you know, so he's not around to say anything. Now we can That's a fair him. point about Hagel. A lot of people lot of mischaracterize people. Hagel a little bit. I'm yeah. not saying he was necessarily a good person, but it's also the same with Emmanuel Kant. It wasn't like Kant was necessarily an evil person, actually far from it, uh, based on the information I've been able to glean. But it's the way his ideas have been used and abused by people that took them to justify irrational actions. That's a whole, I could do a whole course in that. Speaking of courses, 
<laughs> let me just give a little shout out. I've been getting a lot of, a ton of interest and I can't, I'm very humbled by it. And now has pressured me to make sure I deliver a good product in regards to the logic course I'm hosting for the GTW community. Um, for those that if you're interested in being a part of that pilot course, join the GTW community originally. And right now I'll state for the record that it's supposed to the first, uh, first date for that is supposed to be Thursday. Let me look here, March 3rd at starting at seven o'clock PM. It may be pushed back one week. I'm not sure yet. I'm going to speak with our internal production crew about how I want to go about handling this because we're going to tomorrow, I'm going to get out a sign-up sheet just to get a head count and idea of the interest. Yeah, Overwhelming how much... interest made Tony take it more seriously. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, it's going to deliver a hell of a product either way, but all of a sudden there's a lot more people might be attending than I at first thought I was going to Who'd have manifest. thought logic and reason would ever be important? <laughs> well, you know, it's not exactly the it most used exciting to be so topic. Common. It was common. It was very common. That's a good point. They're making it scarce, same as the fresh water. And so, and again, we're going to review two, two of the four general subjects that make up formal logic or Aristotelian logic, uh, informal fallacies and definition, essential, uh, essential definition, I should clarify and be specific. And those are the two issues I see that people can take action on immediately, understanding how the ways in which they're manipulating definitions and the way in which they're misdirecting from evidence, which is what informal fallacies are going to deal with. If at worst, I may have to push back one week, the initial start date to Thursday, March 10th. I'll discuss this. We have a meeting set up on Tuesday with our production crew to discuss how we want to go about manifesting this. Um, but we're going to get out. I'm not sure yet. And I'll have more, once I get more data feedback early on to hopefully midweek, I'll be able to post something by the end of the week and get, let people know when the first date will be. It'll be one of those two dates for sure. Either the third or 10th of March. Again, if you want to be part of the pilot program, all you got to do is sign up for GTW, uh, a GTW subscription and, um, you know, it'll be a lot of fun and there's a lot of information. I also, people have requested a syllabus, interestingly enough, and reading material, all these books here are kind of actually related to it. <laughs> Don't worry. I simplified it to two general resources that from which I'm going to be extricating the most information. And I also honed in on just a couple preliminary, some preliminary reading that individuals can do that won't be overwhelming. And just I'll read Lionel Ruby. Well, I'm going to use Socratic logic. I think it's more, it's a little bit more. Lionel Ruby tries. Yeah. I do have his book right here. Um, yeah, I got Ruby here books too. And I but Kreeft, Kreeft is, uh, yeah, I think he has the best representation in modern parlance. Yes, in modern parlance. Yeah. yeah they, I, mean, I, I can see the book from here and it has like 60 pages marked. So, yeah, same. That's a good job. I the same. I have here Kreeft's book as well. So, we're going to get into that. I've also Joseph's book, An Introduction to Logic, but this is the book we're going to be using. If people just read the introduction to this, you know, that'll be a perfect for preliminary, but I'll, I'll post and pin a um, syllabus for individuals part of the GTW community that plan to participate so they can do some uh, preliminary reading uh, to get ready for the course if they're interested and also some of the resources I'll be using throughout the course I'll be referencing quite a bit as well as Ruby's book and the Organon itself Aristotle's yeah Ruby is more uh, you know it's dry. dry yeah it's laborious it's yeah. academic yeah somebody was trying to like get paid by the page there but yeah. Kreeft, uh it, it's logic that applies to Christians and non-Christians so it's a good place to start <laughs> <laughs> yeah, logic. To sub, the subtitle is a logic text using Socratic method, Platonic questions, and Aristotelian principles. If you can ignore some of the times in which he throws the God and the the God stuff in, because he is a he's a Catholic, MIT professor by the way, um, but he's a Catholic. Um, so sometimes 
that's why he has the platonic questions in here because that relates to monistic idealistic anyways we'll get into that what does that even mean i'll tell people that when we get in the course ld who do we got to thank for tonight's episode all right well we got some people on rockfin of course but thanks everybody subscribing to grand theft world um to the rockfin supporters t can calamony dj uh dz lizzie i thought it was dj uh scott hayes sultan of yat nicholas augustine denver attaway jim garrison and sean eden thanks so much uh, uh thank you guys support that was us. awesome yeah thank you yeah. thank you for all everyone that supports us and donates each week it really I means and everyone who shares going. the episodes yes. and shares uh the extras and shares the previews because not everyone wants to start with this but if you start them out with the preview or the extras that i post on the uh my youtube page or grand theft world's youtube page wherever it floats around to in the pirate land out there we lost uh felix rodriguez are we floating on jules kroll presently that's right. Jules awesome. is carrying Thank you, Jules. Carrying the uh carrying the torch forward. He's got the now. crown jewels. Kroll Associates was actually mentioned during the Nuremberg 2.0 hmm. by Alex Thompson in reference to Kroll's security work in South Africa helping demand uh, uh, update uh, apartheid down there for the British Empire. Update So they're rolling 9/11 and being the, the securitors of the gold under the World Trade Center that went missing should not be, you know, that apple's not too far from the tree now that you understand a little more history. So uh, thank you everyone for supporting and for sharing and for doing the things you do out there to get other people to see this show. Go ahead, Tom. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, obviously we, we, could, we wouldn't do this or we couldn't do this without the support that we get. Um, it's a lot of work each week and we just, we appreciate so much all the support we've been getting uh, from so many individuals, we're getting a lot of people joining the GTW community, which really helps fund this operation and keeps us going. Uh, real quick, two things. One, um, uh, assuming question, what about South Africa as part of the Commonwealth? Yes, that is, they are also part of it. I believe it's, I have it up here. So South Africa, there's a lot. Roads. So commonwealth.org, our member countries. So, and then, uh, beyond that, there's, um, the town hall member run a sort of bi-weekly schedule. And so bi-monthly, this, well, well, I looked it up and bi-weekly means bi-weekly every two weeks. It does mean every two weeks. That's every the, other yeah. week is how it works. Yeah. Basically it's every other week. It can be bi-monthly or bi-weekly. It's a bit of a, there's an issue of definition there. Law. Either way, it's every irony. other week. So irony and the end. Work it out in your logic course. Yeah. So there's a lot of definitions we're going to have to work out. I think we'll be dealing more with vaccines and herd immunity and stuff like that. But either way there, um, this week we're off. That last week's was fantastic, went extremely well. And um, remember, we reappropriated the questions for Richard channel for questions for Richard and Tony. I'll be answering questions you pose to me or to Richard. I have obviously a direct line of communication to Richard. It's a reasonable question. I'll approach him and I'll we'll try to answer it. He doesn't, you don't have to be on for the town hall, but I'll be a mouthpiece and you know give them the necessary resources for whatever the question is that they're, they ask directed towards you. And so for people that are interested in having their questions answered that are part of the GTW community, please go to that text channel. It's in the town hall sort of subcategory of the GTW discord. And it's called cues for Richard and Tony and post your question in there and we'll answer them during the town hall. If it's a question that I feel like I can field in text, I'll sometimes answer it 
right there, but most of the time I save them for the town hall and it was fantastic last week because we were able to, as a town hall, discuss many of the questions that people were, because it's not just me sort of lecturing from the pulpit, so to speak. It was really good. So um, that's sort of the new model. And, you know, it's still, once we finish the questions, it's still just general open forum dialogue. And that's it. I promise I'm done now. Superb. Well, this has been a good workout. And I think we, uh, we put a dent in it. We took a honest, you know, uh, swing. And, and try to get this stuff on the record. There's a lot of stuff we didn't get to, but what are you going to do? You know, six hours flies by pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how it is when you're listening, when you're doing other stuff. I mean, it seems like when you listen, time can fly. Well, when you're on this side of the production, time can also fly. We had like a quick two hour convo with Pat Wood. And then we went through all these other cliffs and a little couple deep dives. And, and we're going to do it into next week because you guys tune in and this is worth doing. It needs to be done anyway. We'd do it. Even if there wasn't an audience, it just needs to be done. Uh, all this stuff can't fall through the cracks. The future needs to know about this. Just like we needed to know about more stuff than we were told. And so we don't want to pass on the problems that we have suffered to future generations. And this, this show is a part of getting that solution out there. Data is nutritious. Think about how many people have perished because the high wire got banned from YouTube. All that information on early treatments, all those interviews, all that stuff, all that censorship killed real people, fucked up real, real families, real businesses. Yeah. And these people have not been knocked off their horses yet. I'm not talking about the protesters and the police. I'm talking about the royalty, because after America fought them off, we should have known better that they weren't going to go away. We should have spread the idea of freedom and empowered other places to do likewise. And that was never done through foreign policy. And when other countries came to America and said, we want to be like America, like uh, who's that guy? Ho Chi Minh. He said he was at the 1919 peace conference, this Vietnamese sure. guy. He's like, I mm -hmm. want some freedom. And then America and France and MI6, everybody was like, <laughs> and like Vietnam for 20, 30 years. So places that wanted to be, Oh, Li Libya, they wanted to become a little free rape that dude with a bayonet yeah. quick put it on tv that's what happens you try to help your people with the resources of your country you know syria now I mean, it's all these like, dossiers that yeah, galvanize the commonwealth to take military action that's just been going on for hundreds of years yeah. so people better wise up because believing that misinformation has been getting people killed and now we're funding radical groups in the Ukraine. What a surprise. Well, not we, not us. Not us. That's Joe Biden and Hunter Biden funding yeah, stuff over there. That's the American government. And apparently and the Canadian guy, Castro, Trudeau, Trudeau was sending a whole bunch of, and they had Canadian military stuff with the SS type of thing going yeah, on. Yeah, that's over the there. thing of the Nazi symbol. Yeah. That's a he, very, it's, it's, he's it pretty bold. To the he yelled at that Jewish woman in, in parliament yeah, this week and said, yeah, right. I mean, come on, man. He's out of touch with reality and nobody's he's been out of touch with yeah, reality for a long time. The Jordan Peterson said it best. It's the Peter Pan syndrome with this guy. It's um he's such a it's such a facade of even himself with the black face and just like he's lived in some sort of like cannabinated fantasy world uh his entire life. He's the perfect Manchurian candidate. He was groomed from a very young age Dude, and, and so isolated isolated from reality. And that's what Peterson was like. It's, it's this isolation from any sort of semblance to the common person, the common struggle. You know, it's just yeah, it's yeah, crazy. I didn't have sort that of on my bingo sheet, but that he fits that bill right no, there. No, he's a hundred, but it's different because it wasn't like an MK program. 
was an MK Ultra, the various other MK programs. It was something that's like from the ground up insofar as a Kingsman style. They take like the younger children, the younger generation, you know, part of these like elite families, not to mention is the uncanny resemblance to uh, cash. I mean, I know it's absurd and I'm not, you know, but man, that's just, so I know there's some people look like, see, other I don't people know. I don't see why just... it's so absurd that his mom might've had an affair with Castro on well, her that own or absurd. as being directed. Mm-hmm. Right. It's a reasonable and hypothesis. I can't remember new. Uh, I can't remember now who I saw speaking, but there was a video that, that, Somebody was saying the the Darren McCreen, the, the Trudeaus were on a trip to the Caribbean. Yes, eight and a half nine months before um, Trudeau was born. Did you see and the pictures with they? They yeah. also like had some sequestered time, I guess, where they asked the press to lay off. Uh, I apologize, for drawing a blank on who that was, but I thought that was so. You're, a saying, video Pierre, you're saying Pierre Trudeau wasn't a Canuck; he was a can cuck. <laughs> Perhaps that is uh, <laughs> true. <laughs> it was a good little five-minute video by Darren McBreen that went into a lot of those connections and all the all the beat, all the footage, um, juxtaposing his likeness to that of and like then his family being in the presence of uh, Castro. I think Darren McBreen's a nice guy. I think he's honest. I think he's fallible. He can make mistakes. Oh but yeah. Either way, yeah. I'm willing to see what he has composed and consider it and weigh it in my evidence. Let's check. It interesting. Out. Do we have it? Oh, yeah, we have it, yeah. I put it under the trucker freedom section, though, so this give me a section. Uh, give me a under second. the truck Trudeau section? Yeah, here is Justin Trudeau, a bastard Fidel. Oh, I'm sorry. It wasn't Darren McBreen. I'm sorry. It's Brian Wilson. But either the way. The guy from the Beach Boys in the Sandbox? <laughs> he's the one. He's, he's the other one. Politics now? It's like halfway down. Like th- a third of the way down the trucker protest. We can have a little fun with that. And then there's a... Uh, a JP series, what science class in 2022 is like, we can play. Yeah, that was pretty funny. Yeah. That was good. Yeah. We can play those two and end the show with them. All right. So, uh, it's not Darren McBreen. It's, uh, it's, uh Brian Wilson. Uh, yeah. Good. This, this is that what sounds. I was thinking of. I, I didn't know. Oh, okay. Stereo. Stereo. Yeah. I saw you post it. Red pill TV. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. He does. He does some good work. Mine is the, well, the I still think Christian McBreen's reference. an honest guy, despite the fact this is not his video. I don't know why I thought McBreen. I'm, like, I'm tired as fuck. I can't think. I'm not. I'm actually tired AF. Me. That could be a t-shirt. Tired AF. <laughs> you can abstract that as far as you want. Tired of the royalty. Tired of yeah. mandates. I'm wondering if Justin's going to go too far with it and he'll have like a Trudeau as fuck t-shirt. I'm Trudeau as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to like prove he's not Castro's baby. <laughs> Trudeau's. I mean, he'll shave his head like Mr. Burns, like his dad was. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, take off, eh? Let's play it. Is it possible that the Prime Minister of Canada is the illegitimate son of a communist autocrat? By the way he's behaved lately, it certainly seems so, as he expands the power of the federal government to silence the lawful and peaceful protests of his own dissatisfied citizens. After discussing with cabinet and caucus, after consultation with premiers from all provinces and territories, After speaking with opposition leaders, the federal government has invoked the Emergencies Act to supplement provincial and territorial capacity 
to address the blockades and occupations. After According to Dr. Karen Leibowitz, Justin's parents, Margaret and Pierre, were very active swingers throughout the 1970s. After spending his adult years as a playboy, when Pierre Trudeau was he 53, like he and Margaret, 30 years his junior, were married in Vancouver. <laughs> a longtime sure, leader yeah. of the Liberal Party, like member him. of Parliament, and four-year Prime Minister, Pierre was accused of infidelity throughout their marriage, and Margaret was also known to sleep around with socialites. A consequential conception from an affair taking place is certainly plausible, if not very probable. Fidel Castro allegedly had an even greater sexual appetite, fathering 11 acknowledged children and rumored to have dozens of bastard kids. Could Justin be one of them? The Trudeaus adored Castro and made several on-record trips to the then-embargoed communist nation of Cuba to see him. Other than physical comparisons of the two men, the main reason researchers speculate about Justin's true father is centered around a second honeymoon that the newlywed Trudeaus took in April of 1971. A trip all around the Caribbean, from Barbados to Tobago, St. Vincent to the Grenadines, and onward to various other islands in the region. However, according to the Ottawa Journal, in the midst of their Caribbean island hopping, they visited an unidentified island, where they wanted the press to give them privacy. Was this detour to the island nation of Cuba, where a raunchy rendezvous could have taken place? Eight and a half months later, Justin Trudeau was born, and less than five years later, Pierre Trudeau became the first NATO leader to travel to Cuba, bringing his wife and young children along to greet the Western world's first Marxist dictator. Even Justin agrees that he's a dictator. Do you think Fidel Castro was a dictator? Yes. After Pierre's death in 2000, Fidel Castro made an unusual trip to Canada to help console Justin and his family. Unsurprisingly, Justin Trudeau praised Castro after his death in 2016, calling him a, quote, legendary revolutionary, a remarkable leader, and arguing that he made significant improvements to Cuba through his communist policies. It is relatively normal for Trudeau to praise Marxist leaders, like when he dreamed of having a dictator similar to communist China's Xi Jinping where he could do everything he wanted. There's a level of, of uh, admiration I actually have for China um, because their you know, basic dictatorship is allowing them uh, to actually turn their economy around on a dime and say we need to go green as fast as we need to start you know, investing in solar. I mean, there is a flexibility that I know Stephen Harper must dream about of having a dictatorship that he could do everything he wanted. Uh, that I find quite interesting. Whether Trudeau is Castro's illegitimate son or not may just be a distraction from the fact that he is a son, or disciple of sorts, of the Cuban dictator's Marxist ideology of governance, where a strong figure at the head of a nation has absolute control and power over the privileges of their subjects, as opposed to an elected leader who serves their people and protects their fundamental rights, their God-given freedom. Regardless of the fact that we are attacking your fundamental rights or limiting your fundamental rights, and the Charter says that was wrong, we're still going to go ahead and do with it. It's basically a loophole that allows a majority to override fundamental rights of a minority. 
This is Brian Wilson with InfoWars.com. Well, Brian Wilson's not just the guy who made pet sounds, I guess. He's the guy who works at InfoWars. That was a good report. No, I'm not sure if it's the... really Castro's kid, but the fact that his parents were swingers, they like Cuba, they knew Fidel. Fidel probably had a lot of kids. Yeah, I mean, there could be something to it. He's he like, might. one of my children should grow up outside of Cuba. Send this one to Canada. <laughs> Talk about yeah. breaking the embargo and smuggling in yeah, that's some Fabergé true. egg, some Castro <laughs> egg fertilization unit in her BSL-4 lab i have to laugh when he's sitting there praising china and i'm like what do you do become like a automaton for larry fink it's going to going around talking with larry fink the president of ceo of blackrock talking about like oh man i love totalitarian regimes because they have total control over their money supply and the top-down decisions with how you can turn the economy around on a dime we can control it we don't have control on the ground level of how people use money we need that type of control he literally said that, by the way, Larry Fink. I'm not literally, but I'm paraphrasing oh, yeah, 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 what he totally. said. These yeah. guys are unabashed dictator. hundred percent. They're not even wannabes anymore. They're like, we're here. Yeah. We're doing and it. And they support a top-down system, hundred yeah. percent, especially from a money position, which is why the deputy prime minister of Canada and also the finance minister pretty much is saying very similar things to what Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock is saying. They got like, each other's backs. That's why they're all bold saying it still. They haven't heard the word on the street that the jig is up. People are onto it and they're getting more and more articulate and organized about it. So, yeah, we'll have to see. It's going to come to a head at some point. So, yeah. Well, I see that Justin gets his hairline from his dad. All right. That's it for this week's episode. We'll be back next week with episode 69, dude. And uh, until then, thank you for tuning in and not dropping out. Got to get Bill and Ted in there. We'll have JP Sears play us out. Have a good night, everyone. Peace. Welcome to science class. Today, we're gonna to learn the science of where babies come from. Now, back in primitive civilization, when we thought the earth was That's round, true. it was believed that only women had babies. But now through modern advancements in human civilization, we know that earth is flat and that babies come from men. With all these men having babies, we're gonna to have to get men into having abortions soon because they're just populating the planet too much. And a man's right to choose has been oppressed by misogynistic women making everything about their right to choose. Now here's how it works. When a man and a woman or a man and another man come together, they make a baby. Um, isn't it that you need both a man and a woman to have a baby? Because men have the sperm that then fertilizes Look the woman's egg? No, 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 no. That's just medical misinformation being spread by Joe Rogan. You see, it's just like the only way to make water is to combine two hydrogen molecules with one oxygen molecule. But let's say you don't have any hydrogen molecules. Can you still make water? No. Incorrect. Even if you don't have any hydrogen, a vital component of water, you can still make water with only oxygen if you want it to be water, because science. But wouldn't that just be air? No, it's water. Why are you being water phobic, you little misogynistic brat? But it doesn't make sense. It's not actually water. Oh, well, you know what would make sense? How about I go on Twitter and cancel you to help you understand the science? Do you think that would help?
And that is part of the scientific method. Now a person can't get pregnant until they begin menstruating, which clearly men do. It's called getting your period. Most boys begin menstruating between the ages of 10 and 13. And when they do, um, I'm 15 and I haven't got my period yet. Is there something wrong with me? Oh, wow, probably. You might have some kind of reproductive disorder or something. You'll probably want to have your gynecologist check you out. But when your period does come, blood and stuff will come from this general area, specifically your uterus, which for men is also the same thing as your small intestine. From there, shedding your uterine lining causes blood to leak out. Where's the blood leak out of? Yeah, right. Um, it. Uh, comes right out of um, the man's vagina, right between his scrotum and his anus. I don't even think I have a vagina down there. How am I ever gonna get my period? Well, um, do you ever get bloody noses? Well, sometimes if I'm playing football or wrestling and I get hit in the face. Well, there you go. Yours just comes out of your nose. That's your period. Now to keep from getting period blood everywhere, you'll wanna wear a maxi pad. For boys having trouble getting their period for whatever reason, you can eat a bunch of beets and then look in the toilet after you poop. That's also your period. I heard my dad listening to Dr. Robert Malone discussing science on a podcast, and he said with a jab, you need to be- Ah! Stop it! Stop it right now! Don't you ever interrupt science class again with medical misinformation while I'm teaching about how men get pregnant. Um, I don't think men can get pregnant. I mean, I'll have my dad come in and talk to you about it. So your dad's a domestic terrorist. If he steps foot near the school, I'll have him arrested. Now, the vast majority of scientific discoveries during the last century have been made by Nikolai Tesla, Albert Einstein, and Stephen Hawking, but mostly CNN. Next, we're gonna cover what's called natural immunity. It does not exist. Any questions before we move on? A collaboration and discussion around scientific theories and data is an important part of making scientific advancements. So when someone has an opposing theory, especially one backed by evidence and objective numbers, the scientific method requires you to hysterically scream at them, accusing them of being a science denier. And even at times threatening them is an advanced form of scientifically analyzing their data. Like for example, Ralph, do you remember how you were just talking about Dr. Malone? Yes. Well, for doing so, I'm gonna kill you and your family. Now, Ralph, do you still believe that Dr. Malone is a valid source of information that you should be listening to? I guess not. Isn't that just mean? Science. When beginning a scientific study, a scientist should always ask itself, who's funding the study? What do they want to find? And what do they want to hide? And then you go about scientifically creating those results so you can get paid. Now, when doing science, some science could reveal things that you don't want to be correct. Then, in the name of good science, you censor those things. Out of all the fields in science, biology, chemistry, astronomy, censorship is the most widely used one today. Now. What is the most common factor that makes science change? 
Yes. Increased atmospheric pressure? No. Low numbers at the polls? Yes, exactly. When elections are coming up and polls are down, the science completely changes. Physics completely go out the window and the law of gravity no longer exists, which isn't surprising because gravity is just a social construct. Now, this is the science. Now, class, if you'll excuse me, I've gotta go take a pregnancy test because I'm 32 years late getting my period. I hope this is the time. Real quick, I would Conspiracy is the story of history. It's the story of plunderers taking care of people who produce. They claim to take care of them through government, which doesn't give you anything. It doesn't take away first. So it's not creating something out of nothing. It's very real what they're doing. They're taking your rights or taking some people's rights and adding more to someone else's rights. If you haven't heard about our Grand Theft World community membership, here are a few of the things you've been missing. A mobile app where you can access replays of the Grand Theft World podcast and show notes. Access to the Grand Theft World community on Discord, where we crowdsource news and resources, and you can contribute to the show. The opportunity to participate in the Grand Theft World bi-weekly town hall. Exclusive content from Richard Grove, including behind-the-scenes footage and future access to unpublished material. 93 episodes of the Peace Revolution podcast, and the Grand Theft World newsletter delivered straight to your inbox each week. If you want to stay ahead of the great game, visit us at grandtheftworld.com, click or tap the button in the top right-hand corner, and join a vibrant community of researchers blazing a new path to truth. We'll see you there.